Daenerys. The Dothraki named the comet Shirakia, the Bleeding Star. The old men muttered that it omened ill, but Daenerys Targaryen had seen it first on the night she had burned Khal Drogo, the night her dragons had awakened. It is the herald of my coming, she told herself, as she gazed up into the night sky with wonder in her heart. The gods have sent it to show me the way. Yet when she put the thought into words, her handmaid Doria quailed, that way lies the Redlands, Khaleesi, a grim place, and terrible, the riders say. The way the comet points is the way we must go, Denny insisted, though in truth it was the only way open to her. She dare not turn north into the vast ocean of grass they call the Dothraki Sea. The first Kalasar they met would swallow up her ragged band, slaying the warriors and slaving the rest. The lands of the Lamb Men south of the river were likewise close to them. They were too few to defend themselves, even against that unwarlike folk, and the Lazarene had small reason to love them. She might have struck downriver for the ports of Marine and Yunkai and Astapor, but Ricardo warned her that Pono's Kalasar had ridden that way, driving thousands of captives before them to sail in the flesh marts that festered like open sores on the shores of Slaver's Bay. "'Why should I fear Pono?' Danny objected. "'He was Drogo's co, and always spoke me gently.' "'Co Pono spoke you gently,' Sir Jorah Mormont said. "'Carl Pono will kill you. "'He was the first to abandon Drogo. Ten thousand warriors went with him. "'You have a hundred. "'No,' Danny thought, "'I have four. The rest are women, old sick men, and boys whose hair has never been braided. I have the dragons, she pointed out. Hatchlings, Sir Jorah said. One swipe from an arrack would put an end to them. Though Pono is more like to seize them for himself. Your dragon eggs were more precious than rubies. A living dragon is beyond price. In all the world there are only three— Every man who sees them will want them, my queen. They are mine, she said fiercely. They had been born from her faith and her need, given life by the deaths of her husband and unborn son and the magi Miramaz Dur. Danny had walked into the flames as they came forth, and they had drunk milk from her swollen breasts. No man will take them from me while I live. You will not live long should you meet Carl Pono, nor Carl Jaco, nor any of the others. You must go where they do not. Danny had named him the first for Queen's Guard, and when Mormont's gruff counsel and the omens agreed, her course was clear. She called her people together and mounted her silver mare. Her hair had burned away in Drogo's pyre, so her handmaids garbed her in the skin of the Hakar Drogo had slain, the white lion of the Dothraki Sea. Its fearsome head made a hood to cover her naked scalp, its pelt a cloak that flowed across her shoulders and down her back. The cream-coloured dragon sunk sharp black claws into the lion's mane and coiled its tail around her arm while Sir Jorah took his accustomed place by her side. We follow the comet, Danny told her Kalasar. 
Once it was said, no word was raised against it. They had been Drogo's people, but they were hers now. The Unburnt, they called her, and Mother of Dragons. Her word was their law. They rode by night, and by day they took refuge from the sun beneath the tents. Soon enough, Danny learnt the truth of Doria's words. This was no kindly country. They left a trail of dead and dying horses behind them as they went. For Pono, Jaco, and the others had seized the best of Drogo's herds, leaving to Danny the old and the scrawny, the sickly and the lame, the broken animals and the ill-tempered. It was the same with the people. They are not strong, she told herself, so I must be their strength. I must show no fear, no weakness, no doubt. However frightened my heart, when they look upon my face, they must see only Drogo's queen. She felt older than her fourteen years. If ever she had truly been a girl, that time was done. Three days into the march, the first man died. A toothless ulster with cloudy blue eyes, he fell exhausted from his saddle and could not rise again. An hour later, he was done. Bloodflies swarmed about his corpse and carried his ill luck to the living. His time was past, her handmaid Iri declared. No man should live longer than his teeth. The others agreed. Danny bid them kill the weakest of their dying horses, so the dead man might go mounted into the nightlands. Two nights later, it was an infant girl who perished. Her mother's anguish wailing lasted all day, but there was nothing to be done. The child had been too young to ride, poor thing. Not for her the endless black grasses of the nightlands. She must be born again. There was little forage in the red waste and less water. It was a sear and desolate land of low hills and barren windswept plains. The rivers they crossed were dry as dead men's bones. Their mounts subsisted on the tough brown devil grass that grew in clumps at the base of rocks and dead trees. Denny sent outriders ranging ahead of the column, but they found neither wells nor springs, only bitter pools, shallow and stagnant, shrinking in the hot sun. The deeper they rode into the waste, the smaller the pools became, while the distance between them grew. If there were gods in this trackless wilderness of stone and sand and red clay, they were hard, dry gods, deaf to prayers for rain. Wine gave out first, and soon thereafter the clotted mare's milk the horse lords loved better than mead. Then their stores of flatbread and dried meat were exhausted as well. Their hunters found no game, and only the flesh of their dead horses filled their bellies. Death followed death. Weak children, wrinkled old women, the sick and the stupid and the heedless, the cruel lands claimed them all. Doria grew gaunt and hollow-eyed, and her soft golden hair turned brittle as straw. Danny hungered and thirsted with the rest of them. The milk in her breast dried up, her nipples cracked and bled, and the flesh fell away from her day by day until she was lean and hard as a stick. Yet it was her dragons she feared for. 
Her father had been slain before she was born, and her splendid brother Rhaegar as well. Her mother had died, bringing her into the world, while the storm screamed outside. Gentle Sir Willem Derry, who must have loved her after a fashion, had been taken by a wasting sickness when she was very young. Her brother Viserys, Carl Drogo, who was her sun and stars, even her unborn son, the guards had claimed them all. They will not have my dragons, Danny vowed. They will not. The dragons were no larger than the scrawny cats she had once seen skulking along the walls of Magister Illyrio's estate in Pentos, until they unfolded their wings. Their span was three times their length, each wing a delicate fan of translucent skin, gorgeously coloured, stretched taut between long, thin bones. When you looked hard, you could see that most of their body was neck, tail, and wing. Such little things, she thought, as she fed them by hand, or rather tried to feed them, for the dragons would not eat. They would hiss and spit at each bloody morsel of horse meat, steam rising from their nostrils, yet they would not take the food. Until Danny recalled something Viserys had told her when they were children. Only dragons and men eat cooked meat, he had said. When she had her handmaids char the horse meat black, the dragons ripped at it eagerly, their heads striking like snakes. So long as the meat was seared, they gulped down several times their own weight every day, and at last began to grow larger and stronger. Danny marveled at the smoothness of their scales, and the heat that poured off them, so palpable that on cold nights their whole bodies seemed to steam. Each evenfall, as the Kalasar set out, she would choose a dragon to ride upon her shoulder. Iri and Jiqui carried the others in a cage of woven wood slung between their mounts and rode close behind her, so Danny was never out of their sight. It was the only way to keep them quiescent. Aegon's dragons were named for the gods of old Valyria, she told her blood riders one morning after a long night's journey. Visenya's dragon was Vagar, Rhaenys had Meraxus, and Aegon rode Balerion, the Black Dread. It was said that Vagar's breath was so hot that he could melt a knight's armor and cook the man inside, that Meraxus swallowed horses whole, and Balerion, his fire, was as black as his scales, his wings so vast that whole towns were swallowed up in their shadow when he passed overhead. The Dothraki looked at the hatchlings uneasily. The largest of her three was shiny black, his scales slashed with streaks of vivid scarlet to match his wings and horns. Khaleesi, Ego murmured, there sits Balerion come again. It may be as you say, blood of my blood, Danny replied gravely, but he shall have a new name for his new life. I would name them all for those the gods have taken. The green one shall be Rhaegal, for my valiant brother, who died on the green banks of the Trident. The cream and gold I shall call Viserion. Viserys was cruel and weak and frightened, yet he was my brother still. His dragon, 
would do what he could not. "'And the black beast?' asked Sir Jorah Mormont. "'The black,' she said, "'is Drogon.' Yet even as her dragons prospered, the Kalasar withered and died. Around them the land grew ever more desolate. Even devil grass grew scant. Horses dropped in their tracks, leaving so few that some of her people must trudge along on foot. Doria took a fever and grew worse with every league they crossed. Her lips and hands broke with blood blisters. Her hair came out in clumps, and one even fall, she lacked the strength to mount her horse. Jogo said they must leave her or bind her to her saddle. But Danny remembered a night on the Dothraki Sea when the Lysine girl had taught her secrets so that Drogo might love her more. She gave Daria water from her own skin, cooled her brow with a damp cloth, and held her hand until she died, shivering. Only then would she permit the Kalasar to press on. They saw no sign of other travellers. The Dothraki began to mutter fearfully that the comet had led them to some hell. Danny went to Sir Jorah one morning, as they made camp amidst a jumble of black wind-scoured stones. "'Are we lost?' she asked him. "'Does this waste have no end to it?' "'It has an end.' he answered wearily. I have seen the maps, the traders draw, my queen. Few caravans come this way, that is so, yet there are great kingdoms to the east, and cities full of wonder. Yeti, Kars, Ashai by the shadow. Will we live to see them? I will not lie to you. The way is harder than I dared think. The knight's face was grey and exhausted. The wound he had taken to his hip, the night he fought Carl Drogo's blood riders, had never fully healed. She could see how he grimaced when he mounted his horse, and he seemed to slump in his saddle as they rode. Perhaps we are doomed if we press on, but I know for a certainty that we are doomed if we turn back. Danny kissed him lightly on the cheek. It heartened her to see him smile. I must be strong for him as well, she thought grimly. A knight he may be, but I am the blood of the dragon. The next pool they found was scalding hot and stinking of brimstone, but their skins were almost empty. The Dothraki cooled the water in jars and pots and drank it tepid. The taste was no less foul, but water was water, and all of them thirsted. Danny looked at the horizon with despair. They had lost a third of their number, and still the waste stretched before them bleak and red and endless. The comet mocks my hopes, she thought, lifting her eyes to where it scored the sky. Have I crossed half the world and seen the birth of dragons only to die with them in this hard, hot desert? She would not believe it. The next day, dawn broke as they were crossing a cracked and fissured plain of hard red earth. Danny was about to command them to make camp when her outriders came racing back at a gallop. A city, Khaleesi, they cried. A city, pale as a moon and lovely as a maid, an hour's ride, no more.
Show me, she said. When the city appeared before her, its walls and towers shimmering white behind a veil of heat, it looked so beautiful that Danny was certain it must be a mirage. Do you know what place this might be? she asked Sir Jorah. The exile knight gave a weary shake of the head. No, my queen, I have never trebled this far east. The distant white walls promised rest and safety, a chance to heal and grow strong, and Danny wanted nothing so much as to rush toward them. Instead, she turned to her blood riders. Blood of my blood, go ahead of us and learn the name of this city and what manner of welcome we should expect. I, Khaleesi, said Ego. Her riders were not long in returning. Rakaro swung down from his saddle. From his medallion belt hung a great curving arak that Danny had bestowed on him when she named him Blood Rider. This city is dead, Khaleesi. Nameless and godless, we found it. The gates broken, only wind and flies moving through the streets. Jiquith shuddered. When the gods are gone, the evil ghosts feast by night. Such places are best shunned. It is known. It is known, Iri agreed. Not to me. Danny put her heels into her horse and showed them the way, trotting beneath the shattered arch of an ancient gate and down a silent street. Sir Jorah and her blood riders followed, and then, more slowly, the rest of the Dothraki. How long the city had been deserted, she could not know, but the white walls, so beautiful from afar, were cracked and crumbling when seen up close. Inside was a maze of narrow, crooked alleys. The buildings pressed close, their facades blank, chalky, windowless. Everything was white, as if the people who lived here had known nothing of color. They rode past heaps of sun-washed rubble where houses had fallen in, and elsewhere saw the faded scars of fire. At a place where six alleys came together, Danny passed an empty marble plinth. Dothraki had visited this place before, it would seem. Perhaps even now the missing statue stood among the other stolen gods in Vase Dothrak. She might have ridden past it a hundred times, never knowing. On her shoulder, Viserion hissed. They made camp before the remnants of a gutted palace, on a windswept plaza where devil grass grew between the paving stones. Danny sent out men to search the ruins. Some went reluctantly, yet they went. And one scarred old man returned a brief time later, hopping and grinning, his hands overflowing with figs. They were small, withered things, yet her people grabbed for them greedily, jostling and pushing at each other, stuffing the fruit into their cheeks and chewing blissfully. Other searchers returned with tales of other fruit trees, hidden behind closed doors in secret gardens. Ego showed her a courtyard overgrown with twisting vines and tiny green grapes, and Jogo discovered a well where the water was pure and cold. Yet they found bones, too, the skulls of the unburied dead, bleached and broken. Ghosts, Iri muttered. 
terrible ghosts. We must not stay here, Khaleesi. This is their place. I fear no ghosts. Dragons are more powerful than ghosts. And figs are more important. Go with Shikwe and find me some clean sand for a bath, and trouble me no more with silly talk. In the coolness of her tent, Danny blackened horse meat over a brazier and reflected on her choices. There was food and water here to sustain them, and enough grass for the horses to regain their strength. How pleasant it would be to wake every morning in the same place, to linger among shady gardens, eat figs, and drink cool water, as much as she might desire. When Eri and Shikwi returned with pots of white sand, Danny stripped and let them scrub her clean. "'Your hair is coming back, Khaleesi,' Jiqui said, as she scraped sand off her back. Danny ran a hand over the top of her head, feeling the new growth. Dothraki men wore their hair in long, oiled braids, and cut them only when defeated. "'Perhaps I should do the same,' she thought, "'to remind them that Drogo's strength lives within me now. "'Karl Drogo had died with his hair uncut,' a boast few men could make. Across the tent, Rhaegal unfolded green wings to flap and flutter a half-foot before thumping to the carpet. When he landed, his tail lashed back and forth in fury, and he raised his head and screamed. If I had wings, I would want to fly too, Danny thought. The Targaryens of old had ridden upon Dragonback when they went to war. She tried to imagine what it would feel like to straddle a dragon's neck and soar high into the air. It would be like standing on a mountaintop, only better. The whole world would be spread out below. If I flew high enough, I could even see the Seven Kingdoms and reach up and touch the comet. Iria broke her reverie to tell her that Sir Jorah Mormont was outside awaiting her pleasure. Send him in. Danny commanded, sand scrub skin tingling. She wrapped herself in the lion skin. The haka had been much bigger than Danny, so the pelt covered everything that wanted covering. I've brought you a peach, Sir Jorah said, kneeling. It was so small she could almost hide it in her palm, and overripe too. But when she took the first bite, the flesh was so sweet she almost cried. She ate it slowly, savouring every mouthful, while Sir Jorah told her of the tree it had been plucked from in a garden near the western wall. Fruit and water and shade, Danny said, her cheeks sticky with peach juice. The guards were good to bring us to this place. We should rest here until we're stronger, the knight urged. The redlands are not kind to the weak. My handmaids say there are ghosts here. <laughs> there are ghosts everywhere, Sir Jorah said softly. We carry them with us, wherever we go. Yes, she thought. Viserys, Khal Drogo, my son Rago, they are with me always. Tell me the name of your ghost, Jorah. You know all of mine. His face grew very still. Her name was Lyness. Your wife? My second wife. It pains him to speak of her, Danny saw. 
but she wanted to know the truth. Is that all you would say of her? The lion's pelt slid off one shoulder, and she tugged it back into place. Was she beautiful? Very beautiful. Sir Jorah lifted his eyes from her shoulder to her face. The first time I beheld her, I thought she was a goddess come to earth, the maid herself, made flesh. Her birth was far above my own. She was the youngest daughter of Lord Leighton Hightower of Old Town. The White Bull, who commanded your father's King's Guard, was her great uncle. The Hightowers are an ancient family, very rich and very proud. And loyal, Danny said. I remember Viserys said the Hightowers were among those who stayed true to my father. That's so, he admitted. Did your fathers make the match? No, he said. Our marriage. <laughs> that makes a long tale, and a dull one, your grace. I, I would not trouble you with it. I have nowhere to go, she said. Please. As my queen commands, Sir Jorah frowned. My home, you must understand that to understand the rest. Bear Island is beautiful, but remote. Imagine old gnarled oaks and tall pines, flowering thorn bushes, grey stones bearded with moss, little creeks running icy down steep hillsides. The hall of the Mormons is built of huge logs and surrounded by an earthen palisade. Aside from a few crofters, my people live among the coasts and fish the seas. The island lies far to the north. Now winters are more terrible than you can imagine, Khaleesi. Still, the island suited me well enough, and I never lacked for women. I had my share of fishwives and crofters' daughters before and after I was wed. I married young, to a bride of my father's choosing, a glover of deep wood mutt. Ten years we were wed, or near enough as makes no matter. She was a plain-faced woman, but not unkind. I suppose I came to love her, after a fashion, though our relations were dutiful rather than passionate. Three times she miscarried while trying to give me an heir. The last time she never recovered. She died not long after. Danny put her hand on his and gave his fingers a squeeze. I'm sorry for you, truly. Sir Jorah nodded. By then my father had taken the black, so I was lord of Bear Island in my own right. I had no lack of marriage offers, but before I could reach a decision, Lord Balon Greyjoy rose in rebellion against the usurper, and Ned Stark called his banners to help his friend Robert. The final battle was on Pike, when Robert's stone-throwers opened a breach in King Balon's wall. A priest from Myrrh was the first man through, but I was not far behind, and for that I won my knighthood. To celebrate his victory, Robert ordained that a tourney should be held outside Lannisport. It was there I saw Linnis, a maid half my age. She'd come up from Old Town with her father to see her brother's joust. I could not take my eyes off her. In a fit of madness, 
I begged her favor to wear in the tawny, never dreaming she would grant my request. Yet she did. I fight as well as any man, Khaleesi, but I have never been a tawny knight. Yet with Lenesse's favor knotted round my arm, I was a different man. I won joust after joust. Lord Jason Malister fell before me, and Bronze Jan Royce, Sir Ryman Frey, his brother, Sir Hostine, Lord Wint, Strongbore, even Sir Boris Blunt of the King's Guard. I unhorsed them all. In the last match, I broke nine lances against Jamie Lannister to no result, and King Robert gave me the champion's laurel. I crowned Lyness Queen of Love and Beauty, and that very night went to her father and asked for her hand. I was drunk as much on glory as on wine. By rights, I should have gotten a contemptuous refusal, but Lord Leighton accepted my offer. We were married there in Lannisport, and for a fortnight I was the happiest man in the wide world. Only a fortnight? asked Danny. Even I was given more happiness than that with Drogo, who was my sun and stars. A fortnight was how long it took us to sail from Lannisport back to Bear Island. My home was a great disappointment to Lynnes. It was too cold, too damp, too far away, my castle no more than a wooden long hall. We had no masks, no mummer shows, no balls or fairs. Seasons might pass without a singer ever coming to play for us. There's no goldsmith on the island. Even meals became a trial. My cook knew little beyond his roast and stews. And Lynness soon lost her taste for fish and venison. I lived for her smiles. And so I sent all the way to Old Town for a new cook, and brought a harper from Lannisport, goldsmiths, jewellers, dressmakers, whatever she wanted I found for her. But it was never enough. Bear Island is rich in bears and trees, and poor in aught else. I built a fine ship for her, and we sailed to Lannisport, an old town, for festivals and fairs, and once even to Bravos, where I borrowed heavily from the moneylenders. It was as a tawny champion that I had won her heart and hand, so I entered other tawnies for her sake. But uh, the magic was gone. I never distinguished myself again, and each defeat meant the loss of another charger and another suit of jousting armor, which must needs be ransomed or replaced. The cost could not be borne. Finally, I insisted we return home. But there matters grew even worse than before. I could no longer pay the cook and the harper, and Lynnes grew wild when I spoke of pawning her jewels. The rest... Uh, I, I did things it shames me to speak of. For gold, so Lynnes might keep her jewels, her harper, and her cook. In the end, it cost me all. When I heard that Eddard Stark was coming to Bear Island, I was so lost to honor 
but rather than stay and face his judgment, I took her with me into exile. Nothing mattered but our love, I told myself. We fled to Lice, where I sold my ship for gold to keep us. His voice was thick with grief, and Danny was reluctant to press him any further, yet she had to know how it ended. Did she die there? She asked him gently. Only to me, he said. In half a year my gold was gone, and I was obliged to take service as a sellsword. While I was fighting Bravassi on the Rhoyne, Linnaeus moved into the manse of a merchant prince named Trigar or Mullen. They say she is his chief concubine now, and even his wife goes in fear of her. Danny was horrified. Do you hate her? Almost as much as I love her, Sir Jorah answered. Pray excuse me, my queen. I find I... I am very tired. She gave him leave to go. But as he was lifting the flap of her tent, she could not stop herself calling after him with one last question. What did she look like, your lady Linnaeus? Sir Jorah smiled sadly. Why, she... She looked a bit like you, Daenerys. He bowed low. Sleep well, my queen. Danny shivered and pulled the lion's skin tight about her. She looked like me. It explained much that she had not truly understood. He wants me, she realized. He loves me as he loved her, not as a knight loves his queen, but as a man loves a woman. She tried to imagine herself in Sir Jorah's arms, kissing him, pleasuring him, letting him enter her. It was no good. When she closed her eyes, his face kept changing into Drogo's. Karl Drogo had been her sun and stars, her first, and perhaps he must be her last. The Meiji Miramaz Dur had sworn she would never bear a living child. And what man would want a barren wife? And what man could hope to rival Drogo, who had died with his hair uncut, and rode now through the nightlands, the stars his Kalasar? She had heard the longing in Sir Jorah's voice when he spoke of his bare island. He can never have me, but one day I can give him back his home and honor. That much I can do for him. No ghosts troubled her sleep that night. She dreamed of Drogo and the first ride they had taken together on the night they were wed. In the dream it was not horses they rode, but dragons. The next morn she summoned her blood riders. Blood of my blood, she told the three of them, I have need of you. Each of you is to choose three horses, the hardiest and healthiest that remain to us. Load as much water and food as your mounts can bear, and ride forth for me. Ego shall strike southwest, Rakaro due south. Jogo, you are to follow Shirakia on southeast. What shall we seek, Khaleesi? asked Jogo. Whatever there is, Danny answered. Seek for other cities, living and dead. Seek for caravans and people, 
Seek for rivers and lakes and the great salt sea. Find how far this waste extends before us and what lies on the other side. When I leave this place, I do not mean to strike out blind again. I will know where I am bound and how best to get there. And so they went, the bells in their hair ringing softly, while Danny settled down with a small band of survivors in the place they named Vase Toloro, the City of Bones. Day followed night, followed day. Women harvested fruit from the gardens of the dead. Men groomed their mounts and mended saddles, stirrups, and shoes. Children wandered the twisty alleys and found old bronze coins and bits of purple glass and stone flagons with handles carved like snakes. One woman was stung by a red scorpion, but hers was the only death. The horses began to put on some flesh. Danny tended Sir Jorah's wound herself, and it began to heal. Ricardo was the first to return. Due south, the red waste stretched on and on, he reported, until it ended on a bleak shore beside the poison water. Between here and there lay only swirling sand, wind-scarred rocks, and plants bristly with sharp thorns. He had passed the bones of a dragon. He swore so immense that he had ridden his horse through its great black jaws. Other than that, he had seen nothing. Danny gave him charge of a dozen of her strongest men, and set them to pulling up the plaza to get to the earth beneath. If devil grass could grow between the paving stones, other grasses would grow when the stones were gone. They had wells enough, no lack of water. Given seed, they could make the plaza bloom. Ego was back next. The southwest was barren and burnt, he swore. He had found the ruins of two more cities, smaller than Vase Toloro, but otherwise the same. One was warded by a ring of skulls, mounted on rusted iron spears, so he dared not enter. But he had explored the second for as long as he could. He showed Danny an iron bracelet he had found, set with an uncut fire opal the size of her thumb. There were scrolls as well, but they were dry and crumbling, and Ego had left them where they lay. Danny thanked him, and told him to see to the repair of the gates— if enemies had crossed the waste to destroy these cities in ancient days, they might well come again. If so, we must be ready, she declared. Jogo was gone so long that Danny feared him lost. But finally, when they had all but ceased to look for him, he came riding up from the southeast. One of the guards that Ego had posted saw him first and gave a shout, and Danny rushed to the walls to see for herself. It was true. Jogo came, yet not alone. Behind him rode three queerly garbed strangers atop ugly humped creatures that dwarfed any horse. They drew rein before the city gates and looked up to see Danny on the wall above them. Blood of my blood, Jogo called. I have been to the great city, Karth, and returned with three who would look on you with their own eyes. Danny stared down at the strangers. Here I stand. Look, if that is your pleasure, but first tell me your names. The pale man 
with the blue lips, replied in guttural Dothraki, I am Pyat Pri, the great warlock. The bald man, with the jewels in his nose, answered in the Valyrian of the Free Cities, I am Zaro Zondaxus of the Thirteen, a merchant prince of Karth. The woman in the lacquered wooden mask said in the common tongue of the Seven Kingdoms, I am Quaith of the Shadow. We come seeking dragons. Seek no more, Daenerys Targaryen told them. You have found them. John White Tree The village was named on Sam's old maps. John did not think it much of a village. Four tumble-down one-room houses of unmortared stone, surrounded by an empty sheepfold and a well. The houses were roofed with sod. The windows shuttered with ragged pieces of hide, and above them loomed the pale limbs and dark red leaves of a monstrous great weirwood. It was the biggest tree Jon Snow had ever seen, the trunk near eight feet wide, the branches spreading so far that the entire village was shaded beneath its canopy. The size did not disturb him so much as the face, the mouth especially. No simple carved slash, but a jagged hollow large enough to swallow a sheep. Those are not sheep bones, though, nor is that a sheep's skull in the ashes. An old tree, Mormon sat his horse running. Old, his raven agreed from his shoulder. Old, old, old. And powerful, John could feel the power. Thorin Smallwood, dismounted beside the trunk, dark in his plate and mail. Look at that face. Small wonder men feared them when they first came to Westeros. I'd like to take an axe to that bloody thing myself. John said, My lord father believed that no man could tell a lie in front of a heart tree. The old gods know when men are lying. My father believed the same, said the old bear. Uh, let me have a look at that skull. John dismounted. Slung across his back in a black leather shoulder sheath was Longclaw, the hand-and-a-half bastard blade the old bear had given him for saving his life. A bastard sword for a bastard, the men joked. The hilt had been fashioned new for him, adorned with a wolf's head pommel in pale stone, but the blade itself was Valyrian steel, old and light and deadly sharp. He knelt and reached a gloved hand down into the moor. The inside of the hollow was red with dried sap and blackened by fire. Beneath the skull he saw another, smaller, the jaw broken off. It was half buried in the ash and bits of bone. When he brought the skull to Mormont, the old bear lifted it in both hands and stared into the empty sockets. The wildlings burned their dead. Well, we've always known that. I wish I'd asked them why, when there were still a few around to ask. Jon Snow remembered the white rising, its eyes shining blue in the pale dead face. He knew why, he was certain. Would that Burns could talk, the old bear grumbled. This fellow could tell us much, how he died, who burned him and why, where the wildlings have gone. He sighed. 
The children of the forest could speak to the dead, it said, but I can't. He tossed the skull back into the mouth of the tree, where it landed with a puff of fine ash. Go to all these houses. Giant, get to the top of this tree. Have a look. I'll have the hounds brought up too. Chance this time, trail will be fresher. His tone did not suggest that he held up much hope of the last. Two men went through each house to make certain nothing was missed. John was paired with Dewar Edison Tollett, a squire grey of hair and thin as a pike, whom the other brothers called Dolorous Ed. "'Bad enough when the dead come walking,' he said to John as they crossed the village. "'Now the old bear wants them talking as well. No good will come of that, or warrant. And who's to say the bones wouldn't lie, eh?' Why should death make a man truthful or even clever? The dead are likely dull fellows, full of tedious complaints. The ground's too cold. My gravestone should be larger. Why does he get more worms than I do? John had to stoop to pass through the low door. Within he found a packed dirt floor. There were no furnishings, no sign that people had lived here, but for some ashes beneath the smoke hole in the roof. "'What a dismal place to live,' he said. "'I was born in a house much like this,' declared Dolores Ed. "'Those were my enchanted years, eh? <laughs> "'Later I fell on odd times.' "'A nest of dry straw bedding filled one corner of the room. "'Ed looked at it with longing. "'I'd give all the gold in costly rock to sleep in a bed again.' "'You call that a bed?' If it's softer than the ground, and has a roof over it, I'll call it a bed, eh? Dolores Ed sniffed the air. I smell dung. The smell was very faint. Old dung, said John. The house felt as though it had been empty for some time. Kneeling, he searched through the straw with his hands to see if anything had been concealed beneath, then made a round of the walls. It did not take very long. There's nothing here. Nothing was what he had expected. White Tree was the fourth village they had passed, and it had been the same in all of them. The people were gone, banished with their scant possessions and whatever animals they may have had. None of the villagers showed any sign of having been attacked. They were simply empty. What do you think happened to them all? John asked. Something worse than we can imagine, suggested Dolores Ed. Well, I might be able to imagine it, but I'd sooner not. Bad enough to know you're going to come to some awful end without uh, thinking about it aforetime. Two of the hounds were sniffing around the door as they re-emerged. Other dogs ranged through the village. Chet was cursing them loudly, his voice thick with the anger he never seemed to put aside. The light filtering through the red leaves of the weirwood made the boils on his face look even more inflamed than usual. When he saw John, his eyes narrowed. There was no love lost between them. The other houses had yielded no wisdom. "'Gone!' cried Mormont's raven, flapping up into the weirwood to perch above them. "'Gone! Gone! Gone!' There were wildlings at White Tree only a year ago. Thor and Smallwood looked more a lord than Mormon did, clad in Sir Jeremy Riker's gleaming black mail 
an embossed breastplate. His heavy cloak was richly trimmed with sable and clasped with the crossed hammers of the Rikers, wrought in silver. Sir Jeremy's cloak once, but the white had claimed Sir Jeremy, and the Night's Watch wasted nothing. A year ago, Robert was king, and the realm was at peace, declared Jarman Buckwell, the square, stolid man who commanded the scouts. Much can change in a year's time. One thing hasn't changed, Sir Maladar Locke insisted. Fewer wildings mean fewer worries. I won't mourn whatever's become of them. Raiders and murderers, a lot of them. John heard a rustling from the red leaves above. Two branches parted, and he glimpsed a little man moving from limb to limb as easily as a squirrel. Bedwick stood no more than five feet tall, but the grey streaks in his hair showed his age. The other rangers called him Giant. He sat in the fork of the tree, over their heads, and said, "'There's water to the north, a lake might be, a few flint hills rising to the west, not very high, nothing else to see, my lords.' "'We might camp here tonight,' Smallwood suggested. The old bear glanced up, searching for a glimpse of sky through the pale limbs and red leaves of the weirwood. "'No,' he declared. "'Giant!' How much daylight remains to us? Three hours, my lord. We'll press on north, Mormont decided. If we reach this lake, we can make camp by the shore. Perchance catch a few fish. John, fetch me a paper. It's past time I wrote to Maester Amon. John found the parchment, quill, and ink in his saddlebag and brought them to the Lord Commander. At White Tree, Mormont scrawled, the fourth village, all empty. The wildlings are gone. Uh, find Tarly, and see that he gets this on its way, he said as he handed John the message. When he whistled, the raven came flapping down to land on his horse's head. Corn, the raven suggested, bobbing. The horse wicked. John mounted his garron, wheeled him about, and trotted off. Beyond the shade of the great weirwood, the men of the Night's Watch stood beneath lesser trees, tending their horses, chewing strips of salt beef, pissing, scratching, and talking. When the command was given to move out again, the talk died, and they climbed back into their saddles. Jarman Buckwell scouts rode out first, with the vanguard under Thor and Smallwood, heading the column proper. Then came the old bear with a main force, Sir Malador Lock, with a baggage train and pack horses, and finally saw Otten Withers and the rear guard, two hundred men all told, with half again as many months. By day they followed game trails and stream beds, the rangers' roads, that led them ever deeper into the wilderness of leaf and root. At night they camped beneath a starry sky and gazed up at the comet. The Black Brothers had left Castle Black in good spirits, joking and trading tales, but of late the brooding silence of the wood seemed to have sombered them all. Jests had grown fewer and tempers shorter. No one would admit to being afraid. They were men of the Night's Watch, after all. But John could feel the unease. Four empty villages, 
no wildings anywhere, even the game seemingly fled. The haunted forest had never seemed more haunted. Even veteran rangers agreed. As he rode, John peeled off his glove to air his burned fingers. Ugly things. He remembered suddenly how he used to muss Arya's hair, his little stick of a sister. He wondered how she was faring. It made him a little sad to think he might never muss her hair again. He began to flex his hand, opening and closing the fingers. If he let his sword hand stiffen and grow clumsy, it might well be the end of him in you. A man needed his sword beyond the wall. John found Samuel Tarley with the other stewards watering his horses. He had three to tend, his own mount and two pack-horses, each bearing a large wire and wicker cage full of ravens. The birds flapped their wings at John's approach and screamed at him through the bars. A few shrieks sounded suspiciously like words. "'Have you been teaching them to talk?' he asked Sam. "'A, a few words. Three of them can say snow.' "'One bird croaking my name was bad enough,' said John, "'and snow's nothing a black brother wants to hear about. "'Snow often meant death in the north. "'Was there anything in White Tree? "'Bones, ashes, and empty houses.' "'John handed Sam the roll of parchment. "'The old bear once word sent back to Amon. "'Sam took the bird from one of the cages, "'stroked its feathers, attached the message, and said, "'Fly home now, brave one, home!' The raven corked something unintelligible back at him, and Sam tossed it into the air. Flapping, it beat its way skyward through the trees. I wish he could carry me with him. Still? Well, said Sam, yes, but I'm not as frightened as I was, truly. The first night, every time I heard someone getting up to make water, I thought it was wildlings creeping in to slit my throat. I was afraid that if I closed my eyes, I might never open them again. Only, well, dawn came after all. He managed a wan smile. I may be craven, but I'm not stupid. I'm sore and my back aches from riding and from sleeping on the ground, but I'm hardly scared at all. Look. He held out a hand for John to see how steady it was. I've been working on my maps. The world is strange, John thought. Two hundred brave men have left the wall, and the only one who was not growing more fearful was Sam, the self-confessed coward. We'll make a ranger of you yet, he joked. Next thing, you'll want to be an outrider like Grin. Shall I speak to the old bear? Don't you dare! Sam pulled up the hood of his enormous black cloak and clambered awkwardly back onto his horse. It was a plough horse, big and slow and clumsy, but better able to bear his weight than the little garrons the rangers rode. "'I had hoped we might stay the night in the village,' he said wistfully. "'It would be nice to sleep under a roof again.' Too few roofs for all of us. John mounted again, gave Sam a parting smile, and rode off. The column was well under way. 
so he swung wide around the village to avoid the worst of the congestion. He had seen enough of White Tree. Ghost emerged from the undergrowth, so suddenly that the garren shied and reared. The White Wolf hunted well, away from the line of march, but he was not having much better fortune than the forager Smallwood sent out after game. The woods were as empty as the villagers, Dywin had told him one night around the fire. We're a large party, John had said. The game's probably been frightened away by all the noise we make on the march. Frightened away by something, no doubt, Dywin said. Once the horse had settled, Ghost loped along easily beside him. John caught up to Mormont as he was wending his way around a hawthorn thicket. "'Is the bird away?' the old bear asked. "'Yes, my lord. Sam is teaching them to talk.' The old bear snorted. "'Ha! He'll regret that. Damn things make a lot of noise, but they never say a thing worth hearing.' They rode in silence, until John said, "'If my uncle found all these villages empty as well, he would have made it his purpose to learn why.' Lord Mormont finished for him. And it may well be someone or something did not want that known. Well, we'll be three hundred when Corrin joins us. Whatever enemy waits out here will not find us so easy to deal with. <laughs> we will find them, John, I promise you. Or they will find us, thought John. Aria. The river was a blue-green ribbon shining in the morning sun. Reeds grew thick in the shallows along the banks, and Aria saw a water snake skimming across the surface, ripples spreading out behind it as it went. Overhead, a hawk flew in lazy circles. It seemed a peaceful place, until Kos spotted the dead man. There, in the reeds! He pointed, and Arya saw it. The body of a soldier, shapeless and swollen. His sudden green cloak had hung up on a rutted log, and a school of tiny silver fishes were nibbling at his face. I told you there was bodies, Lommy announced. I could taste them in that water. When Yorin saw the corpse, he spat. Dubber, see... If he's got anything worth the taking, mail, knife, a bit of coin, what have you? He spurred his gelding and rode out into the river. But the horse struggled in the soft mud, and beyond the reeds the water deepened. Yorin rode back angry, his horse covered in brown slime up to the knees. We won't be crossing here. Kosh, you'll come with me upriver, look for the ford. What? Get it? You'll go downstream. The rest of you, wait here. Put a guard out. Dobber found a leather purse in the dead man's belt. Inside were four coppers and a little hank of blonde hair tied with a red ribbon. Lummy and Taba stripped naked and went wading, and Lummy scooped up handfuls of slimy mud and threw them at Hot Pie, shouting, Mud pie! Mud pie! In the back of their wagon, 
Roar cursed and threatened and told them to unchain him while Yorin was gone, but no one paid him any mind. Kurtz caught a fish with his bare hands. Arya saw how he did it, standing over a shallow pool, calm as still water, his hand darting out quick as a snake when the fish swam near. It didn't look as hard as catching cats. Fish didn't have claws. It was midday when the others returned. Wath reported a wooden bridge half a mile downstream, but someone had burned it up. Yorin peeled a sour leaf off the bale. Might be we could swim the horses over, maybe the donkeys, but there's no way we'll get those wagons across. And there's smoke to the north and west, more fires. Could be this side of the river's the place we want to be. He picked up a long stick and drew a circle in the mud, a line trailing down from it. That's God's eye, with the river flowing south. We're here. He poked a hole beside the line of the river under the circle. We can't go west of the lake like I thought. East takes us back to the king's road. He moved the stick up to where the line and circle met. Near as I recall, there's a town here, the old fast stone, and there's a lordling and got his seat there too, just a tower house, but he'll have a guard. Might be a night or two. We follow the river north. Should be there before dark. They'll have boats, so I mean to sell all we got and hire us one. He drew the stick up through the circle of the lake from bottom to top. Gods be good, we'll find a wind and sail across the guard's eye to Harrentown. He thrust the point down at the top of the circle. We can buy new mounts there, or else take shelter at Harren Hall. That's Lady Wentz's seat, and she's always been a friend of the watch. Hot Pie's eyes got wide. There's ghosts in Harren Hall. Yorin spat. <laughs> There's for your ghosts. He tossed the stick down in the mud. Mount up! Arya was remembering the stories old Nan used to tell of Harren Hall. Evil King Harren had walled himself up inside, so Aegon unleashed his dragons and turned the castle into a pyre. Nan said that fiery spirits still haunted the blackened towers. Sometimes men went to sleep safe in their beds and were found dead in the morning, all burnt up. Arya didn't really believe that, and anyhow... It all happened a long time ago. Hot Pie was being silly. It wouldn't be ghosts at Harren Hall. It would be knights. Arya could reveal herself to Lady Went, and the knights would escort her home and keep her safe. That was what knights did. They kept you safe, especially women. Maybe Lady Went would even help the crying girl. The river track was no king's road. Yet it was not half bad for what it was, and for once the wagons rolled along smartly. They saw the first house an hour shy of Evenfall, a snug little thatch-roofed cottage surrounded by fields of wheat. Yorin rode out ahead, hallooing, but got no answer. It might be, or hiding. Dubber, Ray, with me. 
The three men went into the cottage. Potch is gone. Eh, no sign of any coin laid by, Yoren muttered when they returned. No animals. Run, most like. Might be we met them on the King's Road. At least the house and field had not been burned, and there were no corpses about. Tarba found a garden out back, and they pulled some onions and radishes, and filled a sack with cabbages before they went on their way. A little further up the road they glimpsed a forester's cabin, surrounded by old trees and neatly stacked logs ready for the splitting, and later a ramshackle stilt-house, leaning over the river on poles ten feet tall, both deserted. They passed more fields, wheat and corn and barley ripening in the sun. But here there were no men sitting in trees, nor walking the rows with scythes. Finally the town came into view. A cluster of white houses spread out around the walls of the Holfast, a big sept with a shingled wooden roof, the Lord's Tower House sitting on a small rise to the west, and no sign of any people anywhere. Yoren sat on his horse, frowning through his tangle of beard. Don't like it, he said, but there it is. We'll go have us a look, a careful look. See, maybe there's some folk hiding. Might be they left a boat behind, or some weapons we can use. The black brother left ten to guard the wagons, and the whimpery little girl, and split the rest of them into four groups of five to search the town. Keep your eyes and ears open, he warned them, before he rode off to the tower house to see if there was any sign of the lordling or his guards. Arya found herself with Gendry, Hot Pie, and Lummy. Squat, kettle-bellied Wath had pulled an oar on a galley once, which made him the next best thing they had to a sailor. So Yorin told him to take them down to the lake front and see if they could find a boat. As they rode between the silent white houses, goose prickles crawled up Arya's arms. This empty town frightened her, almost as much as the burnt holefast where they'd found the crying girl and the one-armed woman. Why would people run off and leave their houses and everything? What could scare them so much? The sun was low to the west, and the houses cast long, dark shadows. A sudden clap of sound made Arya reach for needle but it was only a shutter banging in the wind. After the open river shore, the closeness of the town unnerved her. When she glimpsed the lake ahead, between houses and trees, Arya put her knees into a horse, galloping past Wath and Gendry. She burst out onto the grassy sward beside the pebble shore. The setting sun made the tranquil surface of the water shimmer like a sheet of beaten copper. It was the biggest lake she had ever seen, with no hint of a far shore. She saw a rambling inn to her left, built out over the water on heavy wooden pilings. To her right, a long pier jutted into the lake, and there were other docks farther east, wooden fingers reaching out from the town. But the only boat in view was an upside-down rowboat abandoned on the rocks beneath the inn, 
its bottom thoroughly rotted out. They're gone, Arya said, dejected. What would they do now? There's an inn, Lummy said when the others rode up. Do you think they've left any food or ale? Let's go see, Hot Pie suggested. Never mind about no inn, snapped Woth. Jorin said we're to find a boat. They took the boats. Somehow Arya knew it was true. They could search the whole town, and they'd find no more than the upside-down rowboat. Despondent, she climbed off her horse and knelt by the lake. The water lapped softly around her legs. A few lantern bugs were coming out, their little lights blinking on and off. The green water was warm as tears, but there was no salt in it. It tasted of summer and mud and growing things. Arya plunged her face down into it to wash off the dust and dirt and sweat of the day. When she leaned back, the trickles ran down the back of her neck and under her collar. They felt good. She wished she could take off her clothes and swim, gliding through the warm water like a skinny pink otter. Maybe she could swim all the way to Winterfell. Wath was shouting at her to help search. So she did, peering into boathouses and sheds while her horse grazed along the shore. They found some sails, some nails, buckets of tar gone hard, and a mother cat with a litter of newborn kittens, but no boats. The town was as dark as any forest when Yorin and the others reappeared. Tower's empty, he said. Lord's gone off to fight, maybe, or to get his small folk to safety, no telling. Not all so big left in town, but we'll eat. Saw a goose running loose, and some chickens, and there's good fish in the god's eye. The boats are gone, Arya reported. We, we could patch the bottom of that rowboat, said Koss. Might do for four of us, Yorin said. There's nails, Lummy pointed out, and there's trees all around. We could build us all boats, Yorin spat. You know anything about boat building, Dyer's boy? Lummy looked blank. A raft, suggested Gentry. Anyone can build a raft and long poles for pushing. Yorin looked thoughtful. Lake's too deep to pole across, but if we stayed to the shallows near shore, it'd mean leaving the wagons. Might be that's best. I'll sleep on it. Can we stay at the inn? Lummy asked. We'll stay in the old fast with the gates barred, the old man said. I like the feel of stone walls about me when I sleep. Arya could not keep quiet. We shouldn't stay here, she blurted. The people didn't. They all ran off, even their lord. Arya's scared, Lummy announced, bray in laughter. I'm not, she slapped back, but they were. Smart boy, said Yorin. Thing is, the folks who lived here were at war, like it or no. We're not. Night's watch takes no part. So, no man's our enemy. And no man's our friend, she thought. But this time, she held her tongue. Lummy and the rest were looking at her, 
and she did not want to seem craven in front of them. The Holfars gates were studded with iron nails. Within they found a pair of iron bars the size of saplings, with post holes in the ground, and metal brackets on the gate. When they slotted the bars through the brackets, they made a huge X-brace. It was no red keep, Joran announced, when they'd explored the whole vast, top to bottom, but it was better than most, and should do for a night well enough. The walls were rough on mortared stone, ten feet high, with a wooden catwalk inside the battlements. There was a postern gate to the north, and Garen discovered a trap under the straw in the old wooden barn leading to a narrow, winding tunnel. He followed it a long way under the earth and came out by the lake. Joran had them roll a wagon on top of the trap to make certain no one came in that way. He divided them into three watches and sent Tarba, Kurtz, and Kotjak off to the abandoned tower house to keep an eye out from on high. Kurtz had a hunting horn to sound if danger threatened. They drove their wagons and animals inside and barred the gates behind them. The barn was a ramshackle thing, large enough to hold half the animals in the town. The haven, where the town folk would shelter in times of trouble, was even larger, low and long, and built of stone, with a thatched roof. Koss went out the postern gate and brought the goose back, and two chickens as well, and Yorin allowed a cook fire. There was a big kitchen inside the whole fast, though all the pots and kettles had been taken. Gendry, Dubber, and Arya drew cook duty. Dubber told Arya to pluck the fowl while Gendry split wood. Why can't I split the wood, she asked, but no one listened. Sullenly, she set to plucking a chicken while Yorin sat on the end of the bench sharpening the edge of his dirk with a whetstone. When the food was ready... Arya ate a chicken leg and a bit of onion. No one talked much, not even Lummy. Gendry went off by himself afterwards, polishing his helm with a look on his face like he wasn't even there. The crying girl whimpered and wept, but when Hot Pie offered her a bit of goose, she gobbled it down and looked for more. Arya drew second watch, so she found a straw pallet in the haven. Sleep did not come easy, so she borrowed Yorin's stone and set to honing needle. Sirio Farrell had said that a dull blade was like a lame horse. Hot Pie squatted on the pallet beside her, watching her work. "'Where'd you get your good saw like that?' he asked. When he saw the look she gave him, he raised his hands defensively. "'I never said you stole it!' and just wanted to know where you got it is all. My brother gave it to me, she muttered. I never knew you had no brother. Arya paused to scratch under her shirt. There were fleas in the straw, though she couldn't see why a few more would bother her. I have lots of brothers. You do? Are they bigger than you or littler? I shouldn't be talking like this. Yorin said I should keep my mouth shut. Bigger, she lied. They have swords, too, big, long swords, and they showed me how to kill people who bother me. I was talking, not bothering. 
Hot Pie went off and left her alone, and Aria curled up on her pallet. She could hear the crying girl from the far side of the haven. I wish she'd just be quiet. Why does she have to cry all the time? She must have slept, though she never remembered closing her eyes. She dreamed a wolf was howling, and the sound was so terrible that it woke her at once. Arya sat up on her pallet with her heart thumping. Hot pie! Wake up! She scrambled to her feet. Woth! Gendry! Didn't you hear? She pulled on a boot. All around her, men and boys stirred and crawled from their pallets. What's wrong? Hot pie asked. Hear what? Gendry wanted to know. And he had a bad dream, someone else said. No, I heard it, she insisted. A wolf. Harry has wolves in his head, sneered Lummy. Let them hell, Geron said. They're out there. We're in here. Wath agreed. Never saw no wolf could storm a hole fast, Hot Pie was saying. I never heard nothing. It was a wolf, she shouted at them as she yanked on her second boot. Something's wrong. Someone's coming. Get up. Before they could hoot her down again, the sound came shuddering through the night. Only it was no wolf this time. It was Kurz blowing his hunting horn, sounding danger. In a heartbeat, all of them were pulling on clothes and snatching for whatever weapons they owned. Arya ran for the gate as the horn sounded again. As she dashed past the barn, Biter threw himself furiously against his chains, and Jake and Hagar called out from the back of their wagon, Boy, sweet boy, is it war? Red war? Boy, free us! A man can fight, boy! She ignored him and plunged on. By then she could hear horses and shouts beyond the wall. She scrambled up onto the catwalk. The parapets were a bit too high and Aria a bit too short. She had to wedge her toes into the holes between the stones to see over. For a moment she thought the town was full of lantern bugs. Then she realized they were men with torches, galloping between the houses. She saw a roof go up, flames licking at the belly of the night with hot orange tongues as the thatch caught. Another followed, and then another, and soon there were fires blazing everywhere. Gendry climbed up beside her, wearing his helm. How many? Arya tried to count, but they were riding too fast, torches spinning through the air as they flung them. A hundred, she said. Two hundred, I don't know. Over the roar of the flames, she could hear shouts. They'll come for us soon. There, Gendry said, pointing. A column of riders moved between the burning buildings toward the Holfast. Firelight glittered off metal helms and spattered their mail and plate with orange and yellow highlights. One carried a banner on a tall lance. She thought it was red, but it was hard to tell in the night, with the fires roaring all around. Everything seemed red or black or orange. The fire leapt from one house to another. Arya saw a tree consumed, the flames creeping across its branches until it stood against the night in robes of living orange. Everyone was awake now, manning the catwalks or struggling with the frightened animals below. She could hear Yorin shouting commands. 
something bumped against her leg, and she glanced down to discover the crying girl clutching her. Get away! She wrenched her leg free. What are you doing up here? Run and hide somewhere, you stupid... She shoved the girl away. The riders reined up before the gates. You, in the hell fast, shouted a knight in a tall helm with a spiked crest. Open, in the name of the king. I am which king is that? Orason yelled back down before Wath cuffed him into silence. Yorin climbed the battlements beside the gate, his faded black cloak tied to a wooden staff. You men hold down here, he shouted. The town folk's gone. And who are you, old man? One of Lord Beric's cravens? called the knight in the spiked helm. If that fat fool Thoris is in there, ask him how he likes these fires. Got no such man here, Yorin shouted back. Only some lads for the watch. Got no party, you war. He hoisted up the staff so they could see the colour of his cloak. Have a look! That's black for the night's watch! Or black for House Dondarian, called the man who bore the enemy banner. Arya could see its colours more clearly now in the light of the burning town, a golden lion on red. Lord Beric's sigil is a purple lightning bolt on a black field. Suddenly, Arya remembered the morning she had thrown the orange in Sansa's face and gotten juice all over her stupid ivory silk gown. There had been some southern lordling at the tourney. Her sister's stupid friend Jane was in love with him. He had a lightning bolt on his shield, and her father had sent him out to behead the hound's brother. It seemed a thousand years ago now, something that had happened to a different person in a different life, to Arya Stark, the hand's daughter, not Arry, the orphan boy. How would Arry know lords and such? Are you blind, man? Yorin waved his staff back and forth, making the cloak ripple. You see a bloody lightning bolt? By night all banners look black, the knight in the spiked helm observed. Open, or we'll know you for outlaws in league with the king's enemies. Yorin spat. Who's got your command? I do. The reflections of burning houses glimmered dully on the armour of his warhorse as the others parted to let him pass. He was a stout man with a manticore on his shield, an ornate scrollwork crawling across his steel breastplate. Through the open visor of his helm, a face pale and piggy peeped up. Sir Amory Lech, Bannerman, to Lord Tywin Lannister of Castle Rock, the hand of the king, the true king, Joffrey. He had a high, thin voice. In his name, I command you to open these gates. All around them, the town burned. The night air was full of smoke, and the drifting red embers outnumbered the stars. Yorin scowled. Don't see the need. Do what you want to the town, it's naught to me, but leave us be. We're no foes to you. Look with your eyes, Arya wanted to shout at the men below. Can't they see we're no lords or knights, she whispered. 
I don't think they care, Harry, Gendry whispered back. Then she looked at Sir Amory's face, the way Sirio had taught her to look, and she saw that he was right. If you are no traitors, open your gates, Sir Amory called. We'll make certain you're telling a true, and be on our way. Yoren was chewing Sarleaf. Told you, no one here but us. You got my word on that. The knight in the spike helm laughed. <laughs> the crow gives us his word. You lost, old man, mocked one of the spearmen. The war's a long way north of here. I command you, once more, in King Joffrey's name, to prove the loyalty you profess and open these gates, said Sir Amory. For a long moment, Yorin considered, chewing. Then he spat. Don't think I will. So be it. You will defy the king's command, and so proclaim yourself rebels, black cloaks or no. Got me young boys in here, Yorin shouted down. Young boys and old men die the same. Sir Amory raised a languid fist, and a spear came hurtling from the fire-bright shadows behind. Yorin must have been the target, but it was Wath beside him who was hit. The spearhead went in his throat and exploded out the back of his neck, dark and wet. Wath grabbed at the shaft and fell boneless from the walk. "'Storm the walls and kill them all,' Sir Amory said in a bored voice. More spears flew. Arya yanked down hot pie by the back of his tunic. From outside came the rattle of armor, the scrape of swords on scabbards, the banging of spears on shields, mingled with curses and the hoofbeats of racing horses. A torch sailed spinning over their heads, trailing fingers of fire as it thumped down in the dirt of the yard. Blades! Yorin shouted. Spread apart! Defend the wall, whatever they hit! Kos, Ureg, hold the postern. Lumi, pull that spear out of Wath and get up where he was. Hot Pie dropped his short sword when he tried to unsheathe it. Arya shoved the blade back into his hand. I don't know how to sword fight, he said, white-eyed. It's easy, Arya said, but the lie died in her throat as a hand grasped the top of the parapet. She saw it by the light of the burning town, so clear that it was as if time had stopped. The fingers were blunt, calloused, wiry black hairs grew between the knuckles. There was dirt under the nail of the thumb. Fear cuts deeper than swords, she remembered, as the top of a pothelm loomed up behind the hand. She slashed down hard, and Needle's castle-forged steel bit into the grasping fingers between the knuckles. Winterfell! she screamed. Blood spurted, fingers flew, and the helm face vanished as suddenly as it had appeared. Behind! Hot Pie yelled. Aria whirled. The second man was bearded and helmetless. His dirk between his teeth, to leave both hands free for climbing— as he swung his leg over the parapet, she dove her point at his eyes. Needle never touched him. He reeled backward and fell. I hope he falls on his face, 
and cuts off his tongue. Watch them, not me, she screamed at Hot Pie. The next time someone tried to climb their part of the wall, the boy hacked at his hands with his short sword until the man dropped away. Sir Amory had no ladders, but the whole fast walls were rough-cut and unmortared, easy to climb, and there seemed to be no end to the foes. For each one Arya cut or stabbed or shoved back, another was coming over the wall. The knight in the spiked helm reached the rampart, but Yorin tangled his black banner around his spike and forced the point of his dirk through his armor while the man was fighting the cloth. Every time Arya looked up, more torches were flying, trailing long tongues of flame that lingered behind her eyes. She saw a gold lion on a red banner and thought of Joffrey, wishing he was here so she could drive needle through his sneery face. When four men assaulted the gate with axes, Kos shot them down with arrows, one by one. Dubber wrestled a man off the walk, and Lummy smashed his head with a rock before he could rise, and hooted until he saw the knife in Dubber's belly and realized he wouldn't be getting up either. Arya jumped over a dead boy no older than John, lying with his arm cut off. She didn't think she'd done it, but she wasn't sure. She heard Kyle beg for mercy, before a knight with a wasp on his shield smashed his face with a spiked mace. Everything smelled of blood and smoke and iron and piss, but after a time it seemed like that was only one smell. She never saw how the skinny man got over the wall, but when he did she fell on him with Gendry and hot pie, Gendry's sword shattered on the man's helm, tearing it off his head. Underneath he was bald and scared-looking, with missing teeth and a speckly grey beard. But even as she was feeling sorry for him, she was killing him, shouting, Winterfell! Winterfell! While Hot Pie screamed, Hot Pie! beside her, as he hacked at the man's scrawny neck. When the skinny man was dead, Gendry stole his sword and leapt downward into the yard to fight some more. Arya looked past him and saw steel shadows running through the hole fast, firelight shining off mail and blades, and she knew that they'd gotten over the wall somewhere, or broken through at the postern. She jumped down beside Gendry, landing the way Sirio had taught her. The night rang to the clash of steel and the cries of the wounded and dying. For a moment Arya stood uncertain, not knowing which way to go. Death was all around her. And then Yorin was there, shaking her, screaming in her face. Boy! he yelled, the way he always yelled it. Get out! It's done! We've lost! Heard up all you can! You and him and the others, the boys! You get them out! Now! How? Arya said. That trap! he screamed. Under the barn! Quick as that, he was gone. Off to fight, sword in hand. Arya grabbed Gendry by the arm. He said go, she shouted. The barn, the way out. Through the slits of his helm, the bull's eyes shone with reflected fire. He nodded. They called Hot Pie down from the wall and found Lummy Greenhands where he lay bleeding from a spear thrust through his calf. They found Garen too, but he was hurt too bad to move. 
As they were running toward the barn, Arya spied the crying girl, sitting in the middle of the chaos, surrounded by smoke and slaughter. She grabbed her by the hand and pulled her to her feet as the others raced ahead. The girl wouldn't walk, even when slept. Arya dragged her with her right hand while she held needle in the left. Ahead, the night was sullen red. The barn's on fire, she thought. Flames were licking up its side from where a torch had fallen on straw, and she could hear the screaming of the animals trapped within. Hot Pie stepped out of the barn. Harry! Come on! Lummy's gone! Leave her if she won't come! Stubbornly, Arya dragged all the harder, pulling the crying girl along. Hot Pie scuttled back inside, abandoning them. But Gendry came back, the fire shining so bright on his polished helm that the horn seemed to glow orange. He ran to them and hoisted the crying girl up over his shoulder. Run! Rushing through the barn doors was like running into a furnace. The air was swirling with smoke. The back wall, a sheet of fire ground to roof. Their horses and donkeys were kicking and rearing and screaming. The poor animals, Arya thought. Then she saw the wagon, and the three men manacled to its bed. Biter was flinging himself against the chains, blood running down his arms from where the irons clasped his wrists. Rorg screamed curses, kicking at the wood. Boy! called Jake and Agar. Sweet boy! The open trap was only a few feet ahead, but the fire was spreading fast, consuming the old wood and dry straw faster than she would have believed. Arya remembered the hound's horrible burned face. Tunnel's narrow, Gendry shouted. How do we get her through? Pull her, Arya said. Push her! "'Good boys! Kind boys!' called Jake and Agar, coughing. "'Get the fucking chains off!' Rogue screamed. Gendry ignored him. "'You go first, then her, then me. Hurry! It's a long way!' "'When you split the firewood, Arya remembered, where did you leave the axe?' "'Out by the haven!' he spared a glance for the chain men. "'I'd save the donkeys first. There's no time!' You take her, she yelled. You get her out, you do it. The fire beat at her back with red-hot wings as she fled the burning barn. It felt blessedly cool outside, but men were dying all around her. She saw Cuss throw down his blade to yield, and she saw them kill him where he stood. Smoke was everywhere. There was no sign of Yorin, but the axe was where Gendry had left it by the woodpile outside the haven. As she wrenched it free, a male hand grabbed her arm. Spinning, Arya drove the head of the axe hard between his legs. She never saw his face, only the dark blood seeping between the links of his hauberk. Going back into the barn was the hardest thing she ever did. Smoke was pouring out of the open door like a writhing black snake, and she could hear the screams of the poor animals inside, donkeys and horses and men. She chewed her lip and darted through the door, crouching low where the smoke wasn't quite so thick. A donkey was caught in a ring of fire, shrieking in terror and pain. She could smell the stench of burning hair. The roof was gone up too, 
and things were falling down, pieces of flaming wood and bits of straw and hay. Aria put a hand over her mouth and nose. She couldn't see the wagon for the smoke, but she could still hear Biter screaming. She crawled toward the sound. And then a wheel was looming over her. The wagon jumped and moved half a foot when Biter threw himself against his chains again. Jaken saw her, but it was too hard to breathe, let alone talk. She threw the axe into the wagon. Rorg caught it and lifted it above his head, rivers of sooty sweat pouring down his noseless face. Arya was running, coughing. She heard the steel crash through the old wood, and again, again. An instant later came a crack as loud as thunder, and the bottom of the wagon came ripping loose in an explosion of splinters. Arya rolled head first into the tunnel and dropped five feet. She got dirt in her mouth, but she didn't care. The taste was fine. The taste was mud and water and worms and life. Under the earth, the air was cool and dark. Above was nothing but blood and roaring red and choking smoke and the screams of dying horses. She moved her belt around so Needle would not be in her way and began to crawl. A dozen feet down the tunnel, she heard the sound, like the roar of some monstrous beast, and a cloud of hot smoke and black dust came billowing up behind her, smelling of hell. Arya held her breath and kissed the mud on the floor of the tunnel and cried. For whom, she could not say. Tyrion The queen was not disposed to wait on Varys. Treason is vile enough, she declared furiously, but this is bare-faced, naked villainy, and I do not need that mincing eunuch to tell me what must be done with villains. Tyrion took the letters from his sister's hand and compared them side by side. There were two copies, the words exactly alike, though they had been written by different hands. Maester Franken received the first missive at Castle Stokeworth, Grand Maester Pycelle explained. The second copy came through Lord Giles. Littlefinger fingered his beard. If Stannis bothered with them, it's past certain every other lord in the Seven Kingdoms saw a copy as well. I want these letters burned, every one, Cersei declared. No hint of this must reach my son's ears or my father's. I imagine father's heard more than a hint by now, Tyrion said dryly. Doubtless Stannis sent a bird to Castle Rock and another to Harren Hall. As for burning the letters, to what point? The song is sung, the wine is spilled, the wench is pregnant, and this is not as dire as it seems in truth. Cersei turned on him in green-eyed fury. Are you utterly witless? Did you read what he says? The boy, Joffrey, he calls him, and he dares to accuse me of incest, adultery, and treason. Only because you're guilty? It was astonishing to see how ugly Cersei could wax over accusations she knew perfectly well to be true. If we lose the war, she ought to take up mummery. She has a gift for it. 
Tyrion waited until she was done and said, Stannis must have some pretext to justify his rebellion. What did you expect him to write? Joffrey is my brother's true-born son and heir, but I mean to take his throne for all that. I will not suffer to be called a whore. Why, sister, he never claims Jamie paid you? Tyrion made a show of glancing over the writing again. There had been some niggling phrase. Done in the light of the Lord, he read. A queer choice of words, that. Pycelle cleared his throat. Mm, these um, words often appear in letters and documents from the free cities. They mean no more than, let us say, written in the sight of God, the God of the red priests. It is their usage, I do believe. Varys told her some years past that Lady Selyse had taken up with the red priest. Littlefinger reminded them. Tyrion tapped the paper. And now it would seem her lord husband has done the same. We can use that against him. Urge the High Septon to reveal how Stannis has turned against the gods as well as his rightful king. Yes, yes, the queen said impatiently, but first we must stop this filth from spreading further. The council must issue an edict. Any man heard speaking of incest or calling Joff a bastard should lose his tongue for it. A prudent measure, said Grand Maester Purcell, his chain of office clinking as he nodded. A folly, sighed Tyrion. When you tear out a man's tongue, you are not proving him a liar— you're only telling the world that you fear what he might say. So what would you have us do? His sister demanded. Very little. Let them whisper. They'll grow bored with the tale soon enough. Any man with a thimble of sense will see it for a clumsy attempt to justify usurping the crown. Does Stannis offer proof? How could he, when it never happened? Tyrion gave his sister his sweetest smile. That so, she had to say, still... Your Grace, your brother has the right of this. Petar Baelish steepled his fingers. If we attempt to silence this talk, we only lend it credence. Better to treat it with contempt, like the pathetic lie it is, and meantime fight fire with fire. Cersei gave him a measured look. What sort of fire? A tale of somewhat the same nature, perhaps, but more easily believed. Lord Stannis has spent most of his marriage apart from his wife. Not that I fought him. I'd do the same if I were married to Lady Selyse. Nonetheless, if we put it about that her daughter is base-born and Stannis a cuckold, well... The small folk are always eager to believe the worst of their lords, particularly those as stern, sour, and prickly proud as Tennis Baratheon. He's never been much loved, that's true. Cersei considered a moment. So we pay him back in his own coin. Yes, I like this. Who could we name as Lady Selyse's lover? She has two brothers, I believe— and one of her uncles has been with her on Dragonstone all this time. Sir Axel Florent is her castellan. Loath as Tyrion was to admit it, Littlefinger's scheme had promise. 
Stannis had never been enamoured of his wife, but he was bristly as a hedgehog when his honour was concerned, and mistrustful by nature. If they could sow discord between him and his followers, it could only help their cause. The child as the florent years, I'm told. Littlefinger gestured languidly. A trade envoy from Lice once observed to me that Lord Stannis must love his daughter very well, since he directed hundreds of statues of her all along the walls of Dragonstone. My lord, I had to tell him, those are gargoyles. He chuckled. Sir Axel might well serve for Shireen's father, but in my experience the more bizarre and shocking a tale, the more apt it is to be repeated. Stannis keeps an especially grotesque fool, a lacquit with a tattooed face. Grandmaster Pycelle gaped at him aghast. Surely you, you don't mean to suggest that Lady Selyse would bring a fool into her bed? You'd have to be a fool to want to bed Selyse Florent, said Littlefinger. Doubtless Patchface reminded her of Stannis, and the best lies contain within them nuggets of truth, enough to give a listener pause. As it happens, this fool is utterly devoted to the girl and follows her everywhere. They even look somewhat alike. Shireen has a muttled, half-frozen face as well. Pycelle was lost. But that is from the grey scale that nearly killed her as a babe, poor thing. I like my tail better, said Littlefinger, and so will the small folk. Most of them believe that if a woman eats rabbit while pregnant, the child will be born with long, floppy ears. Cersei smiled, the sort of smile she customarily reserved for Jamie. Lord Patar, you are a wicked creature. Thank you, Your Grace. And a most accomplished liar, Tyrion added less warmly. This one is more dangerous than I knew, he reflected. Littlefinger's grey-green eyes met the dwarf's mismatched stare with no hint of unease. We all have our gifts, my lord. The queen was too caught up in her revenge to take note of the exchange. Cuckolded by a half-wit fool? <laughs> Stannis will be laughed at in every wine-sink this side of the narrow sea. The story should not come from us, Tyrion said, or it will be seen for a self-serving lie. Which it is, to be sure. Once more, Littlefinger supplied the answer. Whores love to gossip, and as it happens, I own a brothel or three, and no doubt Varys can plant seeds in the alehouses and pot-shops. Varys? Cersei said, frowning. Where is Varys? I have been wondering about that myself, Your Grace. The spider spins his secret webs day and night, Grand Maester Pycelle said ominously. I mistrust that one, my lords. And he speaks so kindly of you. Tyrion pushed himself off his chair. As it happened, he knew what the eunuch was about, but it was nothing the other counsellors needed to hear. Pray excuse me, my lords. Other business calls. 
Cersei was instantly suspicious. King's business? Or nothing you need trouble yourself about? I'll be the judge of that. Would you spoil my surprise? Tyrion said. I'm having a gift made for Joffrey, a little chain. What does he need with another chain? He has gold chains and silver more than he can wear. If you think for a moment you can buy Joff's love with gifts, why, surely I have the king's love, and he has mine. And this chain I believe he may one day treasure above all others. The little man bowed and waddled to the door. Bronn was waiting outside the council chambers to escort him back to the Tower of the Hand. "'The Smiths are in your audience chamber. Wait in your pleasure,' he said as they crossed the ward. "'Waiting my pleasure? Oh, I like the ring of that, Bronn. You almost sound a proper courtier. Next you'll be kneeling.' "'Fuck you, dwarf. That chaste task.' Tyrion heard Lady Tander calling to him merrily from the top of the serpentine steps. Pretending not to notice her, he waddled a bit faster. See that my litter is readied. I'll be leaving the castle as soon as I'm done here. Two of the Moon Brothers had the door guard. Tyrion greeted them pleasantly and grimaced before starting up the stairs. The climb to his bedchamber made his legs ache. Within he found a boy of twelve laying out clothing on the bed, his squire, such that he was. Podrick Payne was so shy he was furtive. Tyrion had never quite gotten over the suspicion that his father had inflicted the boy on him as a joke. "'Your garb, my lord,' the boy mumbled when Tyrion entered, staring down at his boots." Even when he worked up the courage to speak, Pod could never quite manage to look at you. For the audience and your chain, the hand's chain. Very good. Help me dress. The doublet was black velvet, covered with golden studs in the shape of lion's heads. The chain, a loop of solid gold hands, the fingers of each clasping the wrist of the next. Pod brought him a cloak of crimson silk, fringed in gold, cut to his height. On a normal man, it would be no more than a half-cape. The hand's private audience chamber was not so large as the king's, nor a patch on the vastness of the throne room, but Tyrion liked its murrish rugs, wall hangings, and sense of intimacy. As he entered, the steward cried out, "'Tyrion! Lannister! And of the king!' He liked that, too, the gaggle of smiths, armourers, and ironmongers that Bronn had collected fell to their knees. He hoisted himself up into the high seat under the round, golden window and bid them rise. "'Good men, I know you're all busy, so I will be succinct. Pod, if you please.' The boy handed him a canvas sack. Tyrion yanked the drawstring and upended the bag. Its contents spilt onto the rug with a muffled thunk of metal on wool. I had these made at the castle forge. I want a thousand more just like them. One of the smiths knelt to inspect the object. Three immense steel links twisted together. A mighty chain. Mighty but short, 
the dwarf replied. Somewhat like me. I fancy one a good deal longer. Do you have a name? They call me Iron Belly, my lord. The smith was squat and broad, plainly dressed in wool and leather, but his arms were as thick as a bull's neck. I want every forge in King's Landing turned to making these links and joining them. All other work is to be put aside. I want every man who knows the art of working metal set to this task, be him master, journeyman, or apprentice. When I ride up the street of steel, I want to hear hammers ringing night and day. And I want a man, a strong man, to see that all this is done. Are you that man, Goodman Ironbelly? Might be I am, my lord. But what of the mail and swords the queen was wanting? Another smith spoke up. Her grace commanded us to make chain mail and armor, swords and daggers and axes, all in great numbers, for arming her new gold cloaks, my lord. That work can wait, Tidian said. The chain first. My lord, begging your pardon, her grace said that those who didn't meet their numbers would have their hands crushed. The anxious smith persisted. Smashed on their own anvil, she said. Sweet Cersei, always striving to make the small folk lovers. No one will have their hands smashed. You have my word on it. Iron is growing dear, Iron Billy declared, and this chain will be needing much of it, and coat besides for the fires. Lord Baelish will see that you have coin as you need it, Tyrion promised. He could count on Littlefinger for that much, he hoped. I will command the city watch to help you find iron. Melt down every horseshoe in this city if you must. An older man moved forward, richly dressed in a damask tunic with silver fastenings and a cloak lined with fox fur. He knelt to examine the great steel links Tyrion had dumped on the floor. My lord, he announced gravely, this is crude work at best. There is no art to it. Suitable labor for common smiths, no doubt, for men who bend horseshoes and hammer out kettles, but I am a master armorer, as it please, my lord. This is no work for me nor my fellow masters. We make swords as sharp as song, armor such as a god might wear, not this. Tyrion tilted his head to the side and gave the man a dose of his mismatched eyes. What is your name, Master Armorer? A Salorian, as it please, my lord. If the king's hand will permit, I should be most honored to forge him a suit of armor suitable to his house and high office. Two of the others sniggered, but Salorian plunged ahead, heedless. Plate and scale, I think. The scales gilded bright as the sun, the plate enameled a deep Lannister crimson. I would suggest a demon's head for a helm, crowned with tall golden horns. When you ride into battle, men will shrink away in fear. A demon's head, Tyrion thought ruefully. Now what does that say of me? Master Solorian, I plan to fight the rest of my battles from this chair. It's links I need, not demon horns. So let me put it to you this way. You will make chains, or you will wear them, 
The choice is yours. He rose and took his leave with nary a backward glance. Bron was waiting by the gate with his litter and an escort of mounted black ears. You know where we're bound, Tyrion told him. He accepted a hand up into the litter. He'd done all he could to feed the hungry city. He'd set several hundred carpenters to build fishing boats in place of catapults, open the Kingswood to any hunter who dared to cross the river, even send gold cloaks foraging to the west and south. Yet he still saw accusing eyes everywhere he rode. The litter's curtains shielded him from that, and besides gave him leisure to think. As they wound their slow way down twisty, shadow-black lane to the foot of Aegon's high hill, Tyrion reflected on the events of the morning. His sister's ire had led her to overlook the true significance of Stannis Baratheon's letter. Without proof, his accusations were nothing. What mattered was that he had named himself a king. And what will Renly make of that? They could not both sit the Iron Throne. Idly, he pushed the curtain back a few inches to peer out at the street. Black ears rode on both sides of him, their grisly necklaces looped about their throats, while Bronn went in front to clear the way. He watched the passers-by watching him, and played a little game with himself, trying to sort the informers from the rest. The ones who look most suspicious are likely innocent, he decided. It's the ones who look innocent I need to beware. His destination was behind the Hill of Rainies, and the streets were crowded. Almost an hour had passed before the litter swayed to a stop. Tyrion was dozing, but he woke abruptly when the motion ceased, rubbed the sand from his eyes, and accepted Bronn's hand to climb down. The house was two stories tall, stone below and timber above. A round turret rose from one corner of the structure. Many of the windows were leaded. Over the door swung an ornate lamp, a globe of gilded metal and scarlet glass. A brothel, Bronn said. What do you mean to do here? What does one usually do in a brothel? The sellsword laughed. <laughs> She's not enough, eh? She was pretty enough for a camp follower, but I'm no longer in camp. Little men have big appetites, and I'm told the girls here are fit for a king. Is the boy old enough? Not Joffrey, Robert. This house was a great favourite of his. Although Joffrey may indeed be old enough, an interesting notion that. If you and the Black Ears care to amuse yourself, feel free. But Chateau's girls are costly. You'll find cheaper houses all along the street. Leave one man here, who'll know where to find the others when I wish to return. Bronn nodded. As you say. The Black Ears were all grins. Inside the door, a tall woman in flowing silks was waiting for him. She had ebon skin and sandalwood eyes. I am Shataya, she announced, bowing deeply. And you are? Let us not get into the abbot of names. Names are dangerous. The air smelled of some exotic spice, and the floor beneath his feet displayed a mosaic of two women entwined in love. 
You have a pleasant establishment. I have uh, labored long to make it so. I'm glad the hand is pleased. Her voice was flowing ember, liquid with the accents of the distant summer isles. Titles can be as dangerous as names, Tyrion warned. Show me a few of your girls. It will be my great delight. You will find that they are all as sweet as they are beautiful, and skilled in every art of love. She swept off gracefully, leaving Tyrion to waddle after as best he could on legs half the length of hers. From behind an ornate, mirish screen carved with flowers and fancies and dreaming maidens, they peered unseen into a common room where an old man was playing a cheerful air on the pipes. In a cushioned alcove, a drunken Tyrushi with a purple beard dangled a buxom young wench on his knee. He'd unlaced her bodice and was tilting his cup to pour a thin trickle of wine over her breasts so he might lap it off. Two other girls sat playing at tiles before a leaded glass window. The freckled one wore a chain of blue flowers in her honeyed hair. The other had skin as smooth and black as polished jet. Wide, dark eyes, small, pointed breasts. They dressed in flowing silks, cinched at the waist with beaded belts. The sunlight, pouring through the colored glass, outlined their sweet young bodies through the thin cloth, and Tyrion felt a stirring in his loins. I would respectfully suggest the dark-skinned girl, said Shataya. She's young. She has uh, sixteen years, my lord. A good age for Joffrey, he thought, remembering what Bronn had said. His first had been even younger. Tyrion remembered how shy she'd seemed as he drew her dress up over her head the first time. Long dark hair and blue eyes you could drown in, and he had. So long ago. What a wretched fool you are, dwarf. Does she come from your homelands, this girl? Her blood is the blood of summer, my lord. But my daughter was born here in King's Landing. His surprise must have shown on his face. For Sataya continued, My people hold that there is no shame to be found in the pillow house. In the summer isles, those who are skilled at giving pleasure are greatly esteemed. Many high-born youths and maidens serve for a few years after their flowering to honor the gods. What do the gods have to do with it? The gods made our bodies as well as our souls, is it not so? They give us voices so we might worship them with song. They give us hands so we might build them temples. And they give us desire, so we might mate and worship them in that way. Remind me to tell the High Septon, said Tyrion. If I could pray with my cock, I'd be much more religious. He waved a hand. I will gladly accept your suggestion. I shall summon my daughter. Come. The girl met him at the foot of the stairs. Taller than Shay though not so tall as her mother, she had to kneel before Tyrion could kiss her. My name is Alayaya, she said, with only the slightest hint of her mother's accent. 
come, my lord. She took him by the hand and drew him up two flights of stairs, then down a long hall, gasps and shrieks of pleasure becoming from behind one of the closed doors, giggles and whispers from another. Tyrion's cock pressed against the lacing of his breeches. This could be humiliating, he thought, as he followed Alayaya up another stair to the turret room. There was only one door. She led him through and closed it. Within the room was a great canopied bed, a tall wardrobe decorated with erotic carvings, and a narrow window of leaded glass in a pattern of red and yellow diamonds. "'You are very beautiful, Alayaya,' Tyrion told her when they were alone. "'From head to heels, every part of you is lovely. Yet just now the part that interests me most is your tongue.' My lord will find my tongue well-schooled. When I was a girl, I learned when to use it and when not. That pleases me, Tyrion smiled. So, what shall we do now? Perchance you have some suggestion? Yes, she said. If my lord will open the wardrobe, he will find what he seeks. Tyrion kissed her hand and climbed inside the empty wardrobe. Alayaya closed it after him. He groped for the back panel, felt it slide under his fingers, and pushed it all the way aside. The hollow space behind the wall was pitch black, but he fumbled until he felt metal. His hand closed around the rung of a ladder. He found a lower rung with his foot and started down. Well below street level, the shaft opened onto a slanting earthen tunnel, where he found Varys waiting with a candle in hand. Varys did not look at all like himself. A scarred face and a stubble of dark beard showed under the spiked steel cap, and he wore mail over his boiled leather, dirk and short sword at his belt. Wash her tire to your satisfaction, my lord. Almost too much so, admitted Tyrion. You're certain this woman can be relied on? I am certain of nothing in this fickle and treacherous world, my lord. Shataya has no cause to love the queen, though, and she knows that she has you to thank for ridding her of Aladim. Shall we go? He started down the tunnel. Even his walk is different, Tyrion observed. The scent of sour wine and garlic clung to Varys instead of lavender. "'I like this new garb of yours,' he offered as they went. "'The work I do does not permit me to travel the streets amid a column of knights. So when I leave the castle, I adopt more suitable guises, and thus live to serve you longer.' "'All leather becomes you.' You're to come like this to our next council session. Your sister would not approve, my lord. My sister would soil her small clothes, he smiled in the dark. I saw no sign of any of her spies skulking after me. I am pleased to hear it, my lord. Some of your sister's harlings are mine as well, unbeknownst to her. I should hate to think they had grown so sloppy as to be seen. 
Well, I did to think I was climbing through wardrobes and suffering the pangs of frustrated lust, all for naught. Scarcely for naught, Varys assured him. They know you are here. Whether any will be bold enough to enter Shatayas in the guise of patrons, I cannot say. But I find it best to err on the side of caution. How is it a brothel happens to have a secret entrance? The tunnel was dug for another king's hand, whose honour would not allow him to enter such a house openly. Shataya has closely guarded the knowledge of his existence. And yet you knew of it. Little birds fly through many a dark tunnel. Careful, the steps are steep. They emerge through a trap at the back of a stable, having come perhaps a distance of three blocks under Rainy's Hill. A horse wickered in his stall when Tyrion let the door slam shut. Varys blew out the candle and set it on a beam, and Tyrion gazed about. A mule and three horses occupied the stalls. He waddled over to the piebald gelding and took a look at his teeth. Old, he said, and I have my doubts about his wind. He's not a man to carry you into battle, too, Varys replied, but he will serve and attract no notice, as will the others, and the stable boys see and hear only the animals. The eunuch took a cloak from a peg. It was rough-spun, sun-faded, and threadbare, but very ample in its cut. If you will permit me. When he swept it over Tyrion's shoulders, it enveloped him head to heel, with a cowl that could be pulled forward to drown his face in shadows. Men see what they expect to see, Varys said, as he fussed and pulled. Dwarfs are not so common a sight as children, so a child is what they will see. A boy in an old cloak on his father's horse, going about his father's business, though it would be best if you came most often by night. I plan to, after today. At the moment, though, she awaits me. He had put her up in a walled manse at the far northeast corner of King's Landing, not far from the sea, but he had not dared visit her there for fear of being followed. Which horse will you have? Tyrion shrugged. This one will do well enough. I shall settle him for you. Varys took tack and saddle down from a peg. Tyrion adjusted the heavy cloak and paced restlessly. You missed a lively counsel. Stannis has crowned himself, it seems. I know. He accuses my brother and sister of incest. I wonder how he came by that suspicion. Perhaps he read a book and looked at the colour of a bastard's hair, as Ned Stark did, and John Aaron before him. Or perhaps someone whispered it in his ear. <laughs> The eunuch's laugh was not his usual giggle, but deeper and more throaty. Someone like you, perchance? Am I suspected? It was not me. If it had been, would you admit it? No, but why should I betray a secret I have kept so long? 
It is one thing to deceive a king, but quite another to hide from the cricket in the rushes and the little bird in the chimney. Besides, the bastards were there for all to see. Robert's bastards? What of them? He fathered each, to the best of my knowing, Varys said, as he wrestled with the saddle. Their mothers were copper and honey, chestnut and butter, yet the babes were all black as ravens, and as ill-omened, it would seem. So when Joffrey, Marcella, and Tommin slid out between your sister's thighs, each as golden as the sun, the truth was not hard to glimpse. Tyrion shook his head. If she had borne only one child for a husband, it would have been enough to disarm suspicion. But then she would not have been Cersei. If you were not this whisperer, who was? Some traitor, doubtless. Varius tightened the cinch. Little finger? I named no name. Tyrion let the eunuch help him mount. Lord Varys, he said from the saddle, sometimes I feel as though you are the best friend I have in King's Landing, and sometimes I feel you are my worst enemy. How odd. I think quite the same of you. Bran Long before the first pale fingers of light pried apart Bran's shutters, his eyes were open. There were guests in Winterfell, visitors, come for the harvest feast. This morning they would be tilting at Quinton's in the yard. Once that prospect would have filled him with excitement, but that was before. Not now. The Walders would break their lances with the squires of Lord Mandalay's escort, but Bran would have no part of it. He must play the prince in his father's solar. Listen, and it may be that you will learn something of what lordship is all about, Maester Lewin had said. Bran had never asked to be a prince. It was a knighthood he had always dreamed of, bright armor and streaming banners, lance and sword, and a war horse between his legs. Why must he waste his days listening to old men speak of things he only half understood? Because you're broken, a voice inside reminded him. A lord on his cushioned chair might be crippled. The Walder said their grandfather was so feeble he had to be carried everywhere in a litter, but not a knight on his destrier. Besides, it was his duty. You are your brother's heir— and the Stark in Winterfell, Sir Roderick said, reminding him of how Rob used to sit with their Lord Father when his bannermen came to see him. Lord Wyman Manderley had arrived from White Harbour two days past, travelling by barge and litter, as he was too fat to sit a horse. With him had come a long tale of retainers, knights, squires, lesser lords and ladies, heralds, musicians, even a juggler, all a glitter with banners and surcoats in what seemed half a hundred colours. Bran had welcomed them to Winterfell from his father's high stone seat 
with the direwolves carved into the arms, and afterwards, Sir Roderick said, he'd done well. If that had been the end of it, he would not have minded, but it was only the beginning. The feast makes a pleasant pretext, Sir Roderick explained, but a man does not cross a hundred leagues for a sliver of duck and a sip of wine. Only those who have matters of import to set before us are like to make the journey. Bran gazed up at the rough stone ceiling above his head. Rob would tell him not to play the boy he knew. He could almost hear him, and their Lord Father as well. Winter is coming, and you are almost a man-grown Bran. You have a duty. When Hodor came bustling in, smiling and humming tunelessly, he found the boy resigned to his fate. Together they got him washed and brushed. The white wool doublet today, Bran commanded, and the silver brooch. Sir Roderick will want me to look lordly. As much as he could, Bran preferred to dress himself, but there were some tasks, pulling on breeches, lacing his boots, that vexed him. They went quicker with Hodor's help. Once he had been taught to do something, he did it deftly. His hands were always gentle, though his strength was astonishing. You could have been a knight too, I bet, Bran told him. If the guards hadn't taken your wits, you would have been a great knight. Hodor? Hodor blinked at him with guileless brown eyes, eyes innocent of understanding. Yes, said Bran. Hodor, he pointed. On the wall beside the door hung a basket, stoutly made of wicker and leather, with holes cut for Bran's legs. Hodor slid his arms through the straps and cinched the wide belt tight around his chest, then knelt beside the bed. Bran used the bars sunk in the wall to support himself as he swung the dead weight of his legs into the basket and through the holes. Hodor! Hodor said again, rising. The stable boy stood near seven feet tall, all by himself. On his back, Bran's head almost brushed the ceiling. He ducked low as they passed through the door. One time, Hodor smelt bread baking and ran to the kitchens, and Bran got such a crack that Maester Lewin had to sew up his scalp. Micken had given him a rusty old visorless helm from the armory, but Bran seldom troubled to wear it. The Walders laughed whenever they saw it on his head. He rested his hands on Hodor's shoulders as they descended the winding stair. Outside, the sounds of sword and shield and horse already rang through the yard. It made a sweet music. I'll just have a look, Bran thought. A quick look, that's all. The White Harbour lordlings would emerge later in the morning with their knights and men-at-arms. Until then, the yard belonged to their squires, who ranged in age from ten to forty. Bran wished he was one of them so badly that his stomach hurt with the wanting. Two quintons had been erected in the courtyard, each a stout post supporting a spinning crossbeam, with a shield at one end and a padded butt at the other. The shields had been painted red and gold, though the Lannister lions were lumpy and misshapen, and already well scarred by the first boys to take a tilt at them. The sight of Bran in his basket drew stares from those who had not seen it before, 
but he had learned to ignore stares. At least he had a good view. On Hodor's back, he tired over everyone. The Walders were mounting up, he saw. They brought fine armor up from the twins, shining silver plate with enamel blue chasings. Big Walder's crest was shaped like a castle, while Little Walder favored streamers of blue and gray silk. Their shields and surcoats also set them apart from each other. Little Walder quartered the twin towers of Frey with the brindled boar of his grandmother's house and the plowman of his mother's, Craig Hall and Darry, respectively. Big Walder's quarterings were the tree and ravens of House Blackwood and the twining snakes of the pages. They must be hungry for honor, Bran thought, as he watched them take up their lances. A Stark needs only the dire wolf. Their dappled grey courses were swift, strong, and beautifully trained. Side by side they charged the Quintons. Both hit the shields cleanly, and were well past before the padded butts came spitting around. Little Warder struck the harder blow, but Bran thought Big Warder sat his horse better. He would have given both his useless legs for a chance to ride against either. Little Walder cast his splintered lance aside, spied Bran, and reined up. "'Now there's an ugly horse,' he said of Hodor. "'Hodor's no horse,' Bran said. "'Hodor,' said Hodor. Big Walder trotted up to join his cousin. "'Well, he's not as smart as a horse, that's for certain.' A few of the White Harbour lads poked each other and laughed. "'Hodor!' Beaming genially, Hodor looked from one fray to the other, oblivious to their taunting. Hodor! Hodor! Little Walder's mount wicked. See, they're talking to each other. Maybe Hodor means I love you in horse. You shut up, Frey. Bran could feel his colour rising. Little Walder spurred his horse closer, giving Hodor a bump that pushed him backward. "'What will you do if I don't?' "'He'll set his wolf on you, cousin,' warned Big Walder. "'Let him. I've always wanted a wolfskin cloak.' "'Summer would tear your fat head off,' Bran said. Little Walder banged a male fist against his breastplate. "'Does your wolf have steel teeth to bite through plate and mail?' "'Enough!' Maester Lewin's voice cracked through the clang of the yard as loud as a thunderclap. How much he had overheard, Bran could not say, but it was enough to anger him clearly. These threats are unseemly, and I'll hear no more of them. Is this how you behave at the twins, Walder Frey? If I want to. Atop his courser, little Walder gave Lewin a sullen glare as if to say, You're only a maester. Who are you to reproach a fray of the crossing? Well, it is not how Lady Stark's wards ought to behave at Winterville. What's at the root of this? The maester looked at each boy in turn. One of you will tell me, I swear, or... We were having a jape with Hodar, confessed Big Walder. I'm sorry if we offended Prince Bran. We only meant to be amusing. He at least had the grace to look abashed. Little Walder only looked peevish. "'And me,' he said. "'I was only being amusing, too.' 
The bald spot atop the mesa's head had turned red, Bran could see. If anything, Lewin was more angry than before. A good lord comforts and protects the weak and helpless, he told the phrase. I will not have you making Hodor the butt of cruel jests. Do you hear me? He's a good-hearted lad, dutiful and obedient, which is more than I can say for either of you. The maester wagged a finger at little Walder. And you will stay out of the god's wood and away from those wolves, or answer for it. Sleeves flapping, he turned on his heels, stalked off a few paces, and glanced back. Bran, come. Lord Wyman awaits. Hodor, go with the maester, Bran commanded. Hodor, said Hodor. His long strides caught up with the maester's furiously pumping legs on the steps of the great keep. Maester Lewin held the door open, and Bran hugged Hodor's neck and ducked as they went through. The Walders, he began, I'll hear no more of that. It's done. Maester Lewin looked worn out and frayed. You were right to defend Hodor, but you should never have been there. Sir Roderick and Lord Wyman have broken their fast already while they waited for you. Must I come myself to fetch you, as if you were a little child? No, Bran said ashamed. I'm sorry. I only wanted— I know what you wanted— Master Lewin said more gently. Would that it could be, Bran. Do you have any questions before we begin this audience? Will we talk of the war? You will talk of naught. The sharpness was back in Lewin's voice. You are still a child of eight. Almost nine. Eight, the maester repeated firmly. Speak nothing but courtesies, unless Sir Roderick or Lord Wyman puts you a question. Bran nodded. I'll remember. I will say nothing to Sir Roderick of what passed between you and the Frey boys. Thank you. They put Bran in his father's oak chair with the grey velvet cushions behind a long plank and trestle table. Sir Roderick sat on his right hand and Maester Lewin to his left, armed with quills and ink pots and a sheath of blank parchment to write down all that transpired. Bran ran a hand across the rough wood of the table and begged Lord Wyman's pardon for being late. "'Why, no prince is ever late,' the Lord of White Harbour responded amiably. "'Those who arrive before him have come early, that's all.' Wyman Manderley had a great booming laugh. It was small wonder he could not sit a saddle. He looked as if he outweighed most horses.' As windy as he was vast, he began by asking Winterfell to confirm the new customs officers he had appointed for White Harbour. The old ones had been holding back silver for King's Landing rather than paying it over to the new King of the North. King Rob needs his own coinage as well, he declared, and White Harbour is a very place to mint it. He offered to take charge of the matter, as it pleased the King, and went from there to speak of how he had strengthened the port's defences, detailing the cost of every improvement. In addition to a mint, Lord Manderley also proposed to build Rub a war fleet. We have had no strength at sea for hundreds of years since Brandon the Burner put the torch to his father's ships, 
Grant me the gold, and within the year I will float you sufficient galleys to take Dragonstone and King's Landing both. Bran's interest pricked up at talk of warships. No one asked him, but he thought Lord Wyman's notion a splendid one. In his mind's eye, he could see them already. He wondered if a cripple had ever commanded a warship. But Sir Roderick promised only to send the proposal unto Rob for his consideration, while Maester Lewin scratched at the parchment. Midday came and went. Maester Lewin sent Puxy Tim down to the kitchens, and they dined in the solar on cheese, capons, and brown oat bread. While tearing apart a bird with fat fingers, Lord Wyman made polite inquiry after Lady Hornwood, who was a cousin of his. She was born a manly, you know. Perhaps when her grief has run its course, she would like to be a manly again, eh? <laughs> he took a bite from a wing and smiled broadly. As it happens, I am a widower these past eight years. Past time I took another wife. Don't you agree, my lords? A man does get lonely. Tossing the bones aside, he reached for a leg. Or if the lady fancies a younger lad, well, my son, Wendell, is unwed as well. He is off south guarding Lady Catelyn, but no doubt he will wish to take a bride on his return. A valiant boy and jolly. <laughs> Just a man to teach her to laugh again, eh? <laughs> he wiped a bit of grease off his chin with the sleeve of his tunic. Bran could hear the distant clash of arms through the window. He cared nothing about marriages. Wish I was down in the yard. His lordship waited until the table had been cleared before he raised the matter of a letter he had received from Lord Tywin Lannister, who held his elder son, Sir Willis, taken captive on the Green Fork. He offers him back to me without ransom, provided I withdraw my levies from his grace and vow to fight no more. "'You will refuse him, of course,' said Sir Roderick. "'Have no fear on that count,' the Lord assured him. "'King Rob has no more loyal servant than Wineman Mandley. "'I would be loath to see my son languished at Harren Hall any longer than he must, however. "'This is an ill place. Curse, they say. "'Not that I am the sort to swallow such tales, but still, there it is.' Look at what's befallen this Janus Slint, raised up to Lord of Harrenhal by the Queen, and cast down by her brother. Shipped off to the wall, they say. I pray some equitable exchange of captives can be arranged before too very long. I know Willis would not want to sit out the rest of the war. Gallant, that son of mine, and fierce as a mastiff. Bran's shoulders were stiff from sitting in the same chair by the time the audience drew to a close, and that night, as he sat at supper, a horn sounded to herald the arrival of another guest. Lady Donella Hornwood brought no tale of knights and retainers, only herself, and six tired men-at-arms with a moosehead badge on their dusty orange livery. "'We are very sorry for all you have suffered, my lady,' Bran said when she came before him to speak her words of greetings. 
Lord Hornwood had been killed in the battle on the Green Fork, their only son cut down in the Whispering Wood. Winterfell will remember. That is good to know. She was a pale husk of a woman, every line of her face etched with grief. I'm very weary, my lord. If I might have leave to rest, I should be thankful. To be sure, Sir Roderick said, there is time enough for talk on the morrow. When the morrow came, most of the morning was given over to talk of grains and greens and salting meat. Once the maesters in their citadel had proclaimed the first of autumn, wise men put away a portion of each harvest, though how large a portion was a matter that seemed to require much talk. Lady Hornwood was storing a fifth of her harvest. At Maester Lewin's suggestion, she vowed to increase that to a quarter. Bolton's bastard is massing men at the Dreadfort, she warned them. I hope he means to take them south, to join his father at the Twins. But when I sent to ask his intent, he told me that no Bolton would be questioned by a woman, as if he were true-born and had a right to that name. Lord Bolton has never acknowledged the boy, so far as I know, Sir Roderick said. I confess, I do not know him. Few do, she replied. He lived with his mother until two years passed when young Domeric died and left Bolton without an heir. That was when he brought his bastard toward the Dreadfort. The boy is a sly creature, by all accounts, and he has a servant who is almost as cruel as he is. Reek, they call the man. It's said he never bathes. They hunt together, the bastard and this Reek, and not for deer. I've heard tales, things I can scarce believe, even of a Bolton. And now that my lord husband and my sweet son have gone to the gods, the bastard looks at my lands hungrily. Bran wanted to give the lady a hundred men to defend her rights, but Sir Roderick only said, He may look, but should he do more, I promise there will be dire retribution. You will be safe enough, my lady, though perhaps in time, when your grief is past, you may find it prudent to wed again. I am past my child-bearing years. What beauty I had long fled— she replied with a tired half-smile. Yet men come sniffing after me, as they never did when I was a maid. You do not look favourably on these suitors? asked Lewin. I shall wed again if his grace commands it, Lady Hornwood replied. But Moore's crow-food is a drunken brute, and older than my father. As for my noble cousin of Manderley, my lord's bed is not large enough to hold one of his majesty, and I am surely too small and frail to lie beneath him. Bran knew that men slept on top of women when they shared a bed. Sleeping under Lord Mandley would be like sleeping under a fallen horse, he imagined. Sir Roderick gave the widow a sympathetic nod. You will have other suitors, my lady. We shall try— and find you 
a prospect more to your taste. Perhaps you need not look very far, sir. After she had taken her leave, Maester Lewin smiled. Sir Roderick, I do believe my lady fancies you. Sir Roderick cleared his throat and looked uncomfortable. She was very sad, said Bran. Sir Roderick nodded. Sad and gentle, and not at all uncomely for a woman her years, for all her modesty, yet a danger to the peace of your brother's realm nonetheless. Her? Bran said, astonished. Maester Lewin answered, With no direct heir, there are sure to be many claimants contending for the Hornwood lands. The Tallhearts, Flints, and Carstocks all have ties to House Hornwood uh, through the female line, and the Glovers are fostering Lord Harry's bastard at Deepwood Mott. The Dreadfort has no claim that I know, but the lands adjoin, and Roos Bolton is not one to overlook such a chance. Sir Roderick tugged at his whiskers. In such cases, her liege lord must find her a suitable match. Why can't you marry her? Bran asked. You said she was comely, and Beth would have a mother. The old knight put a hand on Bran's arm. A kindly thought, my prince, but I am only a knight, and besides, too old. I might hold her lands for a few years, but as soon as I died, Lady Hornwood would find herself back in the same mire, and Beth's prospects might be perilous as well. Then let Lord Hornwood's bastard be the heir, Bran said, thinking of his half-brother John. Sir Roderick said, That would please the Glovers, and perhaps... Lord Hornwood shade as well, but I do not think Lady Hornwood would love us. The boy is not of her blood. Still, said Maester Lewin, it must be considered. Lady Danella is past her fertile years, as she said herself. If not the bastard, who? May I be excused? Bran could hear the squires at their swordplay in the yard below, the ring of steel on steel. "'As you will, my prince,' said Sir Roderick. "'You did well.' Bran flushed with pleasure. Being a lord was not so tedious as he had feared, and since Lady Hornwood had been so much briefer than Lord Manderley, he'd even had a few hours of daylight left to visit with Summer. He liked to spend time with his wolf every day, when Sir Roderick and his maester allowed it. No sooner had Hodor entered the godswood than Summer emerged from under an oak, almost as if he had known they were coming. Bran glimpsed a lean, black shape watching from the undergrowth as well. "'Shaggy!' he called. "'Here, Shaggy Dog, to me!' But Rickon's wolf vanished as swiftly as he had appeared. Hodor knew Bran's favorite place, so he took him to the edge of the pool beneath the great spread of the heart-tree, where Lord Eddard used to kneel to pray. Ripples were running across the surface of the water when they arrived, making the reflection of the weirwood shimmer and dance. There was no wind, though. For an instant, Bran was baffled. And then, Usher exploded out of the pool with a great splash, so sudden that even Summer leapt back, snarling. 
Hodor jumped away, wailing, Hodor! Hodor! in dismay until Bran patted his shoulder to soothe his fears. How can you swim in there? he asked Osher. Isn't it cold? As a babe, I suckled on icicles, boy. I like the cold. Osher swam to the rocks and rose dripping. She was naked, her skin bumpy with goose prickles. Summer crept close and sniffed at her. I want her to touch the bottom. I never knew there was a bottom. Well, might be there isn't, she grinned. What are you staring at, boy? Never seen a woman before? I have so. Bran had bathed with his sisters hundreds of times, and he'd seen serving women in the hot pools, too. Osher looked different, though, hard and sharp, instead of soft and curvy. Her legs were all sinew, her breasts flat as two empty purses. You've got a lot of scars. Everyone hard-earned. She picked up her brown shift, shook some leaves off it, and pulled it down over her head. Fighting giants? Osher claimed there were still giants beyond the wall. One day, maybe I'll even see one. Fighting men. She belted herself for the length of rope. Black crows, oft as not. Killed me one, too, she said, shaking out her hair. It had grown since she'd come to Winterfell, well down past her ears. She looked softer than the woman who had once tried to rob and kill him in the wolf's wood. Heard some yattering in the kitchen today about you and them freys. Who? What did they say? She gave him a sour grin. That it's a fool boy who mocks a giant, and a mad world when a cripple has to defend him. Hodar never knew they were mocking him, Bran said. Anyhow, he never fights. He remembered once when he was little, going to the market square with his mother and Septim Ordain. They brought Hodor to carry for them, but he had wandered away, and when they found him, some boys had him backed into an alley, poking him with sticks. Hodor! He kept shouting, cringing and covering himself, but he had never raised a hand against his tormentors. Septon Shale says he has a gentle spirit. Aye, she said, and hands strong enough to twist a man's head off his shoulders if he takes a mind to. All the same, he better watch his back around that walder. Him and you both. The big one they call Little, it comes to me he's well named. Big outside, little inside, and mean down to the bones. He'd never dare hurt me. He's scared of summer, no matter what he says. Then might be he's not so stupid as he seems. Osher was always weary around the direwolves. The day she was taken, summer and grey wind between them had torn three wildlings to bloody pieces. Or might be he is, and that tastes of trouble too. She tied up her hair. You have more of them wolf dreams? No. He did not like to talk about the dreams. A prince should lie better than that, Osher laughed. Well, your dreams are your business. Mine's in the kitchen and I'd best be getting back before Gage starts to shouting and waving that big wooden spoon of his. By your leave, my prince. She should never have talked about the wolf dreams, Bran thought, as Hodor carried him up the steps to his bedchamber. 
He fought against sleep as long as he could, but in the end it took him as it always did. On this night he dreamed of the weirwood. It was looking at him with its deep red eyes calling to him with its twisted wooden mouth, and from its pale branches the three-eyed crow came flapping, pecking at his face, and crying his name in a voice as sharp as swords. The blast of horns woke him. Bran pushed himself onto his side, grateful for the reprieve. He heard horses and boisterous shouting. More guests have come, and half drunk by the sound of them. Grasping his bars, he pulled himself from the bed and over to the window seat. On their banner was a giant in shattered chains that told him that these were umber men, down from the Northlands beyond the last river. The next day, two of them came together to audience. The great John's uncles, blustery men, in the winter of their days, with beards as white as the bearskin cloaks they wore. A crow had once taken moors for dead and pecked out his eye, so he wore a chunk of dragon-glass in its stead. As old Nan told the tale, he'd grabbed the crow in his fist and bitten its head off, so they named him Crow Food. She would never tell Bran why his gaunt brother, Hother, was called Horsbane. No sooner had they been seated than Moors asked for leave to wed Lady Hornwood. The great Johns, the young wolf's strong right hand, all know that to be true. Who better to protect the widow's lands than an umber, and what umber better than me? Lady Danella is still grieving, Maester Lewin said. I have a cure for grief under my furs. <laughs> Moors laughed. Sir Roderick thanked him courteously and promised to bring the matter before the lady and the king. Hother wanted ships. There's wildings stealing down from the north more than I've ever seen before. They cross the Bay of Seals in little boats and wash up on our shores. The crows in Eastwatch are too few to stop them, and they go to ground quick as weasels. It's long ships we need, aye, and strong men to sail them. The great John took too many. Half our harvest has gone to seed for want of arms to swing the scythes. Sir Roderick pulled at his whiskers. You have forests of tall pine and old oak. Lord Mandley has shipwrights and sailors in plenty. Together you ought to be able to float enough longships to guard both your coasts. Mandley, ha! Moore's umber snorted. That great waddling sack of suet! His own people muck him, as Lord Lamprey, I've heard. The man can scarce walk. If you stuck a sword in his belly, ten thousand eels would wriggle out. He is fat, Sir Roderick admitted, but he is not stupid. You will work with him, or the king will know the reason why. And to Bran's astonishment, the truculent umbers agreed to do as he commanded, though not without grumbling. While they were sitting at audience, the Glover men arrived from Deepwood Mutt, and a large party of tall hearts from Torrent Square. Galbert and Robert Glover had left Deepwood in the hands of Robert's wife, but it was their steward who came to Winterfell. 
My lady begs that you excuse her absence. Her babes are still too young for such a journey, and she was loath to leave them. Bran soon realized it was the steward, not Lady Glover, who truly ruled a deep wood knot. The man allowed that he was at present setting aside only a tenth of his harvest. A hedge wizard had told him there would be a bountiful spirit summer before the cold set in, he claimed. Maester Lewin had a number of choice things to say about hedge wizards. Sir Roderick commanded the man to set aside a fifth, and questioned the steward closely about Lord Hornwood's bastard, the boy Larence Snow. In the north, all high-born bastards took the surname Snow. This lad was near twelve, and the steward praised his wits and courage. "'Your notion about the bastard may have merit, Bren,' Maester Lewin said after. "'One day you will be a good lord for Winterfell, I think.' "'No, I won't.' Bran knew he would never be a lord, no more than he could be a knight. Rob's to marry some fray girl, you tell me so yourself, and the Walders say the same. He'll have sons, and they'll be the lords of Winterfell after him, not me. It may be so, Bran, Sir Roderick said, but I was wed three times, and my wives gave me daughters. Now only Beth remains to me. My brother Martin fathered four strong sons, yet only Jory lived to be a man. When he was slain, Martin's line died with him. When we speak of the morrow, nothing is ever certain. Leobold, a tall heart, had his turn the following day. He spoke of weather portents and the slack wits of small folk, and told how his nephew itched for battle. Benfred! "'has raised his own company of lancers, boys, none older than nineteen years, "'but everyone thinks he's another young wolf. <laughs> "'When I told them they were only young rabbits, <laughs> they laughed at me. "'Now they call themselves the wild hares, "'and gallop about the country with rabbit skins tied to the ends of their lancers, "'singing songs of chivalry.' "'Bran thought that sounded grand.' He remembered Benfred Tallheart, a big bluff loud boy who had often visited Winterfell with his father, Sir Helman, and had been friendly with Rob and with Theon Greyjoy. But Sir Roderick was clearly displeased by what he heard. If the king were in need of more men, he would send for them, he said. Instruct your nephew that he is to remain at Torren Square as his lord father commanded. "'I will, sir,' said Leobald, and only then raised the matter of Lady Hornwood. Poor thing, with no husband to defend her lands, no son to inherit. His own lady wife was a Hornwood, sister to the late Lord Hallis, doubtless they recalled. "'An empty hall is a sad one. I had a thought to send my younger son to Lady Danella. To foster as her own. Baron is near ten, a likely lad, and her own nephew. He would cheer her, I'm certain, and perhaps he would even take the name Hornwood. If he were named heir, suggested Maester Lewin, so the house might continue, finished Leobald. Bran knew what to say. 
Thank you for the notion, my lord, he blurted out before Sir Roderick could speak. We will bring the matter to my brother Rob, oh, and Lady Hornwood. Leobald seemed surprised that he had spoken. I am grateful, my prince, he said, but Bran could see pity in his pale blue eyes, mingled perhaps with a little gladness that the cripple was, after all, not his son. For a moment he hated the man. Maester Lewin liked him better, though. Beren, tall heart, may well be our best answer, he told them when Leobald had gone. By blood he is half Hornwood. If he takes his uncle's name, he will still be a boy, said Sir Roderick, and hard-pressed to hold his lands against the likes of Moore's Umber or this bastard of Bruce Bolton's. We must think on this carefully. Rob should have our best counsel before he makes his decision. It may come down to practicalities, said Maester Lewin, which lord he most needs to court. The Riverlands are part of his realm. He may wish to cement the alliance by wedding Lady Hornwood to one of the lords of the Trident. A Blackwood, perhaps, or a Frey. Lady Hornwood can have one of our Frey, said Bran. She can have both of them if she likes. You are not kind, my prince, Sir Roderick chided gently. Neither are the Walders. Scarling, Bran stared down at the table and said nothing. In the days that followed, ravens arrived from other lordly houses bearing regrets. The bastard of the dread fort would not be joining them. The Mormonts and Karstarks had all gone south with Rob. Lord Locke was too old to dare the journey. Lady Flint was heavy with child. There was sickness at Widow's Watch. Finally, all of the principal vassals of House Stark had been heard from, save for Harlan Reed, the Cranock man, who had not set foot outside his swamps for many a year, and the Serwins, whose castle lay half a day's ride from Winterfell. Lord Serwin was a captive of the Lannisters, but his son, a lad of fourteen, arrived one bright, blustery morning at the head of two dozen lancers. Bran was riding Dancer around the yard when they came through the gate. He trotted over to greet them. Clay Serwin had always been a friend to Bran and his brothers. Good morning, Bran. Clay called out cheerfully. Or must I call you Prince Bran now? Only if you want. Clay laughed. Why not? Everyone else is a king or prince these days. Did Stannis write Winterfell as well? Stannis? I don't know. He's a king now, too, Clay confided. He says Queen Cersei bedded her brother, so Joffrey is a bastard. Joffrey the ill-born, one of the Serwin knights growled. Small wonder he's faithless, with a kingslayer for a father. Aye, said another, the guards ate incest. Look how they brought down the Targaryens. For a moment Bran felt as though he could not breathe. A giant hand was crushing his chest. He felt as though he was falling, and clutched desperately at Dancer's reins. His terror must have shown on his face. Bran? Clay Serwin said. Are you unwell? It's only another king. Rob will beat him too. He turned Dancer's head toward the stables, oblivious to the puzzled stares the Serwins gave him.
His blood was roaring in his ears, and had he not been strapped onto the saddle, he might well have fallen. That night, Bran prayed to his father's gods for dreamless sleep. If the gods heard, they mocked his hopes, for the nightmare they sent was worse than any wolf dream. Fly or die, cried the three-eyed crow as it pecked at him. He wept and pleaded, but the crow had no pity. It put out his left eye and then his right, and when he was blind in the dark, it pecked at his bra, driving its terrible sharp beak deep into his skull. He screamed until he was certain his lungs must burst. The pain was an axe splitting his head apart, but when the crow wrenched out its beak, all slimy with bits of bone and brain, Bran could see again. What he saw made him gasp in fear. He was clinging to a tower miles high, and his fingers were slipping, nails scrabbling at the stone, his legs dragging him down, stupid, useless, dead legs. Help me, he cried. A golden man appeared in the sky above him and pulled him up. The things I do for love, he murmured softly, as he tossed him out, kicking into empty air. Tyrion I do not sleep as I did when I was younger, Grand Maester Pycelle told him, by way of apology for the dawn meeting. I would sooner be up, though the world be dark, than lie restless abed, fretting on tasks undone, he said, though his heavy-lidded eyes made him look half asleep as he said it. In the airy chambers beneath the rookery, his girl served them boiled eggs, stewed plums, and porridge, while Pycelle served the pontifications. In these sad times, when so many hunger, I think it only fitting to keep my table spare. Commendable, Tyrion admitted, breaking a large brown egg that reminded him unduly of the Grand Maester's bald, spotted head. I take a different view— if there is food, I eat it, in case there's none on the morrow, he smiled. Tell me, are your ravens early risers as well? Pycelle stroked the snowy beard that flowed down his chest. To be sure, shall I send for quill and ink after we have eaten? No need. Tyrion laid the letters on the table beside his porridge. Twin parchments tightly rolled and sealed with wax, at both ends. Send your girl away, so we can talk. Leave us, child, Pycelle commanded. The serving girl hurried from the room. These letters now. For the eyes of Doran Martell, Prince of Dawn. Tyrion peeled the crack shell away from his egg and took a bite. It wanted salt. One letter in two cuppies, Send your swiftest birds. The matter is of great import. I shall dispatch them as soon as we have broken our fast. Dispatch them now. Steward plums will keep. The realm may not. Lord Renly is leading his host up the Rose Road, and no one can say when Lord Stannis will sail from Dragonstone. Pycelle blinked. 
If my lord prefers, he does. I am here to serve. The maester pushed himself ponderously to his feet, his chain of office clinking softly. It was a heavy thing, a dozen maester's collars threaded around and through each other and ornamented with gemstones. And it seemed to Tyrion that the gold and silver and platinum links far outnumbered those of baser metals. Pycelle moved so slowly that Tyrion had time to finish his egg and taste the plums, overcooked and watery to his taste, before the sound of wings prompted him to rise. He spied the raven, dark in the dawn sky, and turned briskly toward the maze of shelves at the far end of the room. The maester's medicines made an impressive display, dozens of pots sealed with wax, hundreds of stoppered vials, as many milk-glass bottles, countless jars of dried herbs, each container neatly labelled in Pycelle's precise hand. An orderly mind, Tyrion reflected, and indeed, once you had puzzled out the arrangement, it was easy to see that every potion had its place. And such interesting things. He noted sweet sleep and nightshade, milk of the puppy, the tears of lice, powdered greycap, wolfsbane, and demon's dance, basilisk venom, blind eye, widow's blood. Standing on his toes and straining upward, he managed to pull a small dusty bottle off the high shelf. When he read the label, he smiled and slipped it up his sleeve. He was back at the table, peeling another egg, when Grand Maester Pycelle came creeping down the stairs. "'It is done, my lord,' the old man seated himself. "'A matter like this best done promptly. Indeed. Indeed. Of great import, you say?' "'Oh, yes.' The porridge was too thick, Tyrion felt, and wanted butter and honey. To be sure, butter and honey were seldom seen in King's Landing of late.' though Lord Giles kept them well supplied in the castle. Half of the food they ate these days came from his lands, or Lady Tender's. Rosby and Stokeworth lay near the city to the north, and were yet untouched by war. The Prince of Dawn himself. Might I ask? Best not. As you say. Pycelle's curiosity was so ripe that Tyrion could almost taste it. Mayhaps, um, the king's council? Tyrion tapped his wooden spoon against the edge of the bowl. The council exists to advise the king, maester. Just so, said Pycelle. And the king is a boy of thirteen. I speak with his voice. So you do, indeed, the king's own hand. Yet, uh, ah, your most gracious sister... Ah, our queen regent, she bears a great weight upon those lovely white shoulders of hers. I have no wish to add to her burdens. Do you? Tyrion cocked his head and gave the Grand Maester an inquiring stare. Pycelle dropped his gaze back to his food. Something about Tyrion's mismatched green and black eyes made men squirm. Knowing that, he made good use of them. Ah, the old man muttered into his plums, doubtless you have the right of it, my lord. It is most 
considerate of you to uh, uh, spare her this um, uh, burden. That's just the sort of fellow I am, Tyrion returned to his unsatisfactory porridge. Considerate. Cersei is my own sweet sister, after all. And a woman, to be sure, Grandmaster Pycelle said. A most uncommon woman, and yet it is no small thing uh, to tend to all the cares of the realm, uh, despite the frailty of her sex. Oh, yes, she's a frail dove. Just ask Eddard Stark. I'm pleased you share my concern. I thank you for the hospitality of your table, but a long day awaits. He swung his legs out and clambered down from his chair. Be so good as to inform me at once should we receive a reply from dawn. As you say, my lord. And only me. Ah, uh, to be sure. Pycelle's spotted hand was clutching at his beard the way a drowning man clutches for a rope. It made Tyrion's heart glad. One, he thought. He waddled out into the lower bailey, his stunted legs complained of the steps. The sun was well up now, and the castle was stirring. Guardsmen walked the walls, and knights and men-at-arms were training with blunted weapons. Nearby, Bronn sat on the lip of a well. A pair of comely serving-girls sauntered past, carrying a wicker basket of rushes between them. But the sell-sword never looked. Bronn, I despair of you! Tyrion gestured at the wenches. With sweet sights like that before you, all you see is a gaggle of louts raising a clangor. There are a hundred ore-houses in this city where a clip-cooper will buy me all the cunt I want, Bronn answered. But one day my life may hang, and how close I've watched your louts. He stood. Who's the boy in the checkered blue surcoat? with the three eyes on his shield. Some edge knight. Tallard, he names himself. Why? Bronn pushed a fall of hair from his eyes. He's the best of them, but watch him. He falls into a rhythm, delivering the same strokes in the same order each time he attacks. He grinned. <laughs> that will be the death of him the day he faces me. He's pledged to Joffrey. He's not like to face you. They set off across the bailey, Bronn matching his long stride to Tyrion's short one. These days a sellsword was looking almost respectable. His dark hair was washed and brushed, he was freshly shaved, and he wore the black breastplate of an officer of the city watch. From his shoulders trailed a cloak of Lannister crimson patterned with gold hands. Tyrion had made him a gift of it when he named him captain of his personal guard. How many supplicants do we have today? he inquired. Thirty odd, answered Bronn. Most with complaints, or wanting something as ever. Your pet was back, he groaned. Lady Tander, her page. She invites you to sup with her again. There's to be haunch of venison, she says, a brace of stuffed geese, sauce with mulberries, and her daughter. Tyrion finished sourly. Since the hour he had arrived in the Red Keep, Lady Tender had been stalking him, 
armed with a never-ending arsenal of lamprey pies, wild boars, and savoury cream stews. Somehow she had gotten the notion that a dwarf lordling would be the perfect consort for her daughter Lollies, a large, soft, dim-witted girl who rumour said was still a maid at thirty and three. Send her my regrets. No taste for stuffed goose, Bron grinned evilly. Perhaps you should eat the goose and marry the maid, or better still, send Shagger. Shagger's more like to eat the maid and marry the goose, observed Bron. Anyway, Lollies outweighs him. There is that, Tyrion admitted, as they passed under the shadow of a covered walkway between two towers. Who else wants me? The sellsword grew more serious. There's a moneylender from Bravos, holding fancy papers and the like. Request to see the king about payment on some loan. As if Joff could count past twenty. Send the man to Littlefinger. He'll find a way to put him off. Next. A lordling down from the Trident says your father's men burned his keep, raped his wife, and killed all his peasants. I believe they call that war. Tyrion smelled Gregor Clegane's work, or that of Sir Amory Lorch, or his father's other pet hellhound, the Kohoric. What does he want of Joffrey? New peasants, Bronn said. He walked all this way to sing how loyal he is and beg for recompense. I'll make time for him on the morrow. Whether truly loyal or merely desperate, a compliant river lord might have his uses. See that he is given a comfortable chamber and a hot meal. Send him a new pair of boots as well, good ones, courtesy of King Joffrey. A show of generosity never hurt. Bronn gave a curt nod. There's also a great gaggle of bakers, butchers, and greengrocers clamouring to be heard. I told them last time I have nothing to give them. Only a thin trickle of food was coming into King's Landing, most of it earmarked for castle and garrison. Prices had risen sickeningly high on greens, roots, flour, and fruit, and Tyrion did not want to think about what sorts of flesh might be going into the kettles of the pot shops down in Flea Bottom. Fish, he hoped. They still had the river and the sea, at least until Lord Stannis sailed. They want protection. Last night a baker was roasted in his own oven. The mob claimed he charged too much for bread. Did he? He's not up to deny it. They didn't eat him, did they? Not that I've heard. Next time they will, Tyrion said grimly. I give them what protection I can. The gold cloaks. They claim there were gold cloaks in the mob, Bronn said. They're demanding to speak to the king himself. <laughs> Fools. Tyrion had sent them off with regrets. His nephew would send them off with whips and spears. He was half tempted to allow it. But no, he dare not. Soon or late, some enemy would march on King's Landing, and the last thing he wanted was willing traitors within the city walls. Tell them King Joffrey shares their fears and would do all he can for them. They want bread, not promises. 
If I give them bread today and the morrow, I'll have twice as many at the gates. Who else? A black brother, down from the wall. The steward says he brought some rotted hand in a jar. Tyrion smiled wanly. I'm surprised no one ate it. I suppose I ought to see him. It's not your end, perchance. No, some night, uh, Thorn... Sir Alasar Thorn? Of all the black brothers he'd met on the wall, Tyrion Lannister had liked Sir Alasar Thorn the least. A bitter, mean-spirited man, with too great a sense of his own worth. Come to think of it, I don't believe I care to see Sir Alasar just now. Find him a snug sill where no one has changed the rushes in a year, and let his hand rot a little more. Bronn snorted laughter and went his way, while Tyrion struggled up the serpentine steps. As he limped across the outer yard, he heard the portcullis rattling up. His sister and a large party were waiting by the main gate. Mounted on her white palfrey, Cersei towered high above him, a goddess in green. "'Brother,' she called out, not warmly. The queen had not been pleased by the way he'd dealt with Janus Slint. "'Your grace,' Tyrion bowed politely, "'you look lovely this morning.' Her crown was gold, her cloak ermine. Her retinue sat their mounts behind her. Sir Boris Blunt, of the King's Guard, wearing white scale and his favourite scowl, Sir Balon Swan, bow-slung from his silver inlay saddle, Lord Giles Rusby, his wheezing cough worse than ever, Halin, the pyromancer of the Alchemist Guild, and the Queen's newest favourite, their cousin, Sir Lancel Lannister, her late husband's squire, up-jumped tonight at the widow's insistence. Valar and twenty guardsmen rode escort. "'Where are you bound this day, sister?' Tyrion asked. "'I'm making a round of the gates to inspect all the new scorpions and spitfires. I would not have it thought that all of us are as indifferent to the city's defences as you seem to be.' Cersei fixed him with those clear green eyes of hers, beautiful even in their contempt. I am informed that Renly Baratheon has marched from High Garden. He's making his way up the Rose Road, with all his strength behind him. Varys gave me the same report. He could be here by the full moon. Not at his present leisurely pace, Tyrion assured her. He feasts every night in a different castle— and holds court at every crossroad he passes. And every day more men rally to his banners. His host is now said to be a hundred thousand strong. That seems rather high. He has the power of Storm's End and High Garden behind him, you little fool, Cersei snapped down at him. All the Tyrell bannermen bought for the red wines, and you have me to thank for that. So long as I hold those... Poxy twins of his, Lord Paxter, will squat on the arbour and count himself fortunate to be out of it. A pity you let the night of flower slip through your pretty fingers. Still, Renly has other concerns besides us. Our father at Heron Hall, Robstark at River Run. Were I he, I would do much as he is doing. 
make my progress, flaunt my power for the realm to see, watch, wait, let my rivals contend while I bide my own sweet time. If Stark defeats us, the South will fall into Renly's hands like a windfall from the gods, and he'll not have lost a man. And if it goes the other way, he can descend on us while we are weakened. Cersei was not appeased. I want you to make father bring his army to King's Landing. Well, it will serve no purpose but to make you feel safe. When have I ever been able to make father do anything? She ignored the question. And when do you plan to free Jamie? He's worth a hundred of you. Tyrion grinned crookedly. Don't tell Lady Stark, I beg you. We don't have a hundred of me to trade. Father must have been mad to send you. You're worse than useless. The queen jerked on her reins and wheeled her palfrey around. She rode out of the gate at a brisk trot, ermine cloak streaming behind her. Her retinue hastened after. In truth, Rende Baratheon did not frighten Tyrion half as much as his brother Stannis did. Renly was beloved of the commons, but he had never before led men in war. Stannis was otherwise hard, cold, inexorable. If only he had some way of knowing what was happening at Dragonstone. But not one of the fisher folk he had paid to spy out the island had ever returned, and even the informers the eunuch claimed to have placed in Stannis's household had been ominously silent. The striped hulls of Lysine war galleys had been seen offshore, though, and Varys had reports from Myr of sail-sail captains taking service with Dragonstone. If Stannis attacks by sea, while his brother Renly storms the gates, they'll soon be mounting Joffrey's head on a spike. Worse, mine will be beside him. A depressing thought. You ought to make plans to get Shea safely out of the city, should the worst seem likely. Podrick Payne stood at the door of his solar, studying the floor. He's inside, he announced to Tyrion's belt buckle. Your solar, my lord, sorry. Tyrion sighed. Look at me, Pud. It unnerves me when you talk to my codpiece, especially when I'm not wearing one. Who is inside my solar? Lord Littlefinger. Podrick managed a quick look at his face, then hastily dropped his eyes. I meant Lord Patar, Lord Baelish, the master of coin. You make him sound a crowd. The boy hunched down as if struck, making Tyrion feel absurdly guilty. Lord Patar was seated on his window seat, languid and elegant, in a plush plum-coloured doublet, and a yellow satin cape, one gloved hand resting on his knee. The king is fighting hares with a crossbow, he said. The hares are winning. Come, see. Tyrion had to stand on his toes to get a look. A dead hare lay on the ground below. Another, long ears twitching, was about to expire from the bolt in his side. Spent quarrels lay strewn across the hard-packed earth, like straw scattered by a storm. Now, Joff shouted. 
The gamesman released the hair he was holding, and he went bounding off. Joffrey jerked the trigger on the crossbow, the bolt missed by two feet. The hare stood on his hind legs and twitched his nose at the king. Cursing, Joff spun the wheel to winch back his string, but the animal was gone before he was loaded. Another! The gamesman reached into the hutch. This one made a brown streak against the stone, while Joffrey's hurried shot almost took Sir Preston in the groin. Littlefinger turned away. Boy, are you fond of potted hair? He asked Podrick Payne. Pod stared at the visitor's boots, lovely things of red-dyed leather ornamented with black scrollwork. To eat, my lord. Invest in pots, Littlefinger advised. Hares will soon overrun the castle. We'll be eating hair thrice a day. "'Better than rats on a skewer,' said Tyrion. "'Pod, leave us, unless Lord Pattaya would care for some refreshment.' "'Thank you, but no.' "'Littlefinger flashed his mocking smile. "'Drink with a dwarf its head, and you wake up walking the wall. "'Black brings out my unhealthy pallor.' "'Have no fear, my lord,' thought Tyrion.' It's not the wall I have in mind for you. He seated himself in a high chair, piled with cushions, and said, You look very elegant today, my lord. I am wounded. I strive to look elegant every day. Is the doublet new? It is, or most observant. Plum and yellow. Are those the colors of your house? No, but a man gets bored. "'Wearing the same colours, day in and day out, or so I found. "'That's a handsome knife as well, is it?' "'There was mischief in Littlefinger's eyes. "'He drew the knife and glanced at it casually, "'as if he had never seen it before. "'Valyrian steel and a dragonbone hilt. "'A trifle plain there. "'It's yours, if you would like it.' Mine? Tyrion gave him a long look. No, I think not. Never mine. He knows, the insolent wretch. He knows, and he knows that I know, and he thinks that I cannot touch him. If ever truly a man had armoured himself in gold, it was Pataya Baelish, not Jamie Lannister. Jamie's famous armour was but gilded steel. But little fingers? Ah! Oh. Tyrion had learned a few things about sweet Pattaya to his growing disquiet. Ten years ago, John Aaron had given him a minor sinecure in customs, where Lord Pattaya had soon distinguished himself by bringing in three times as much as any of the king's other collectors. King Robert had been a prodigious spender. A man like Pattaya Baelish, who had a gift for rubbing two gold dragons together to breed a third, was invaluable to his hand. Littlefinger's rise had been arrow-swift. Within three years of his coming to court, he was master of coin and a member of the small council, and today the crown's revenues were ten times what they had been under his beleaguered predecessor, though the crown's debts had grown vast as well. A master juggler was Pattaya Baelish.
Oh, he was clever. He did not simply collect the gold and lock it in a treasure vault, no. He paid the king's debts in promises and put the king's gold to work. He bought wagons, shops, ships, houses. He bought grain when it was plentiful and sold bread when it was scarce. He bought wool from the north and linen from the south and lace from lice, stored it, moved it, dyed it, sold it. The golden dragons bred and multiplied, and Littlefinger lent them out and brought them home with hatchlings. And in the process he moved his own men into place. The keepers of the keys were his, all four. The king's counter and the king's scales were men he'd named. The officers in charge of all three mints, harbour masters, tax farmers, custom sergeants, wool factors, toll collectors, pursers, wine factors, nine of every ten belonged to Littlefinger. They were men of middling birth, by and large, merchants' sons, lesser lordlings, sometimes even foreigners, but judging from their results, far more able than their high-born predecessors. No one had ever thought to question the appointments, and why should they? Littlefinger was no threat to anyone, a clever, smiling, genial man, everyone's friend, always able to find whatever gold the king or his hand required, and yet of such undistinguished birth, one step up from a hedge knight, that he was not a man to fear. He had no banners to call, no army of retainers, no great stronghold, no holdings to speak of, no prospects of a great marriage. But do I dare touch him? Tyrion wondered. Even if he is a traitor. He was not at all certain he could, least of all now, while the war raged. Given time he could replace Littlefinger's men with his own in key positions, but a shout rang up from the yard. Ah, oh, his grace has killed a hare, Lord Baelish observed. No doubt a slow one, Tyrion said. My lord, you are fostered at River Run. I've heard it said that you grew close to the Tullys. You might say so. The girls especially. How close? I had their maiden heads. Is that close enough? The lie, Tyrion was fairly certain it was a lie, was delivered with such an air of nonchalance that one could almost believe it. Could it have been Catelyn Stark who lied? About her defloration? and the dagger as well. The longer he lived, the more Tyrion realized that nothing was simple and little was true. Lord Oster's daughters do not love me, he confessed. I doubt they would listen to any proposal I might make. Yet coming from you, the same words might fall more sweetly on their ears. That would depend on the words. If you mean to offer Sansa in return for your brother— "'Waste someone else's time. "'Joffrey will never surrender his plaything, "'and Lady Catelyn is not so great a fool "'as to barter the Kingslayer for a slip of a girl. "'I mean to have Arya as well. "'I have men searching. "'Searching is not finding. "'I'll keep that in mind, my lord. "'In any case, it was Lady Lysa I hoped you might sway.' For her, I have a sweeter offer. Lysa is more tractable than Catelyn, true, but also more fearful. 
and I understand she hates you. She believes she has a good reason. When I was her guest at the Eyrie, she insisted that I'd murdered her husband and was not inclined to listen to denials. He leaned forward. If I gave her John Aaron's true killer, she might think more kindly of me. That made Littlefinger sit up. True killer? Mm, I confess. You make me curious. Who do you propose? It was Tyrion's turn to smile. Gifts I give my friends freely. Lysa Aaron would need to understand that. Is it her friendship you require, or her swords? Both. Littlefinger stroked the neat spike of his beard. Lysa has woes of her own. Clansmen, raiding out of the Mountains of the Moon in greater numbers than ever before, and better armed. Distressing, said Tyrion Lannister, who had armed them. I could help her with that. A word from me. And what would that word cost her? I want Lady Lysa and her son to acclaim Joffrey as king, to swear fealty, and to— Make war on the Starks and Tullys? Littlefinger shook his head. There's the roach in your pudding, Lannister. Lysa will never send her knights against River Run. Nor would I ask it. We have no lack of enemies. I'll use her power to oppose Lord Renly or Lord Stannis, should he stir from Dragonstone. In return, I will give her justice for John Aaron and peace in the Vale. I will even name that appalling child of hers Warden of the East, as his father was before him. I want to see him fly, a boy's voice whispered faintly in memory, and to seal the bargain, I will give her my niece. He had the pleasure of seeing a look of genuine surprise in Pataya Belish's grey-green eyes. Marcella. When she comes of age, she can wed little Lord Robert, until such time she'll be Lady Lysa's ward at the Eyrie. And what does Her Grace the Queen think of this ploy? When Tyrion shrugged, Littlefinger burst into laughter. I thought not. <laughs> You're a dangerous little man, Lannister. Yes, I could sing this song to Lysa. Again the sly smile, the mischief in his glance. If I cared to. Tyrion nodded, waiting, knowing Littlefinger could never abide a long silence. So, Lord Pitar continued after a pause, utterly unabashed, what's in your pot for me? Aranal? It was interesting to watch his face. Lord Pitar's father had been the smallest of small lords, his grandfather a landless hedge knight. By birth he held no more than a few stony acres on the windswept shore of the Fingers. Harren Hell was one of the richest plums in the Seven Kingdoms, its lands broad and rich and fertile, its great castle as formidable as any in the realm, and so large as to dwarf River Run, where Patar Baelish had been fostered by House Tully, only to be brusquely expelled when he dared raise his sights to Lord Huster's daughter. 
Littlefinger took a moment to adjust the drape of his cape, but Tyrion had seen the flash of hunger in those sly cat's eyes. I have him, he knew. Harren Hal is cursed, Lord Pataya said after a moment, trying to sound bored. Then raise it to the ground and build anew to suit yourself. You'll have no luck of coin. I mean to make you liege lord of the trident. These river lords have proven they cannot be trusted. Let them do you fealty for their lands. Even the Tullys, if there are any Tullys left when we are done. Littlefinger looked like a boy who had just taken a furtive bite from a honeycomb. He was trying to watch for bees, but the honey was so sweet. Heron Hell and all its lands and incomes, he mused. With a stroke, you'd make me one of the greatest lords in the realm. Not that I'm ungrateful, my lord, but, um, why? You serve my sister well in the matter of their succession. As did Jaina Slint, on whom this same castle of Heron Hell was quite recently bestowed, only to be snatched away when he was no longer of use. Tyrion laughed. <laughs> you have me, my lord, what can I say? I need you to deliver the Lady Lysa. I did not need Jaina Slint. He gave a crooked shrug. I'd sooner have you seated in Arenal than Renly seated on the Iron Throne. What could be plainer? What indeed? You realize that I may need to bed Lysa Aaron again to get her consent to this marriage? I have little doubt you'll be equal to the task. I once told Ned Stark that when you find yourself naked with an ugly woman— the only thing to do is close your eyes and get on with it. Littlefinger steepled his fingers and gazed into Tyrion's mismatched eyes. Give me a fortnight to conclude my affairs and arrange for a ship to carry me to Gulltown. That will do nicely. His guest rose. This has been quite the pleasant morning, Lannister, and profitable. For both of us, I trust. He bowed, his cape a swirl of yellow, as he strode out the door. Two, thought Tyrion. He went up to his bedchamber to wait Varys, who would soon be making an appearance. Even fall, he guessed. Perhaps as late as moonrise, though he hoped not. He hoped to visit Shay tonight. He was pleasantly surprised when Galt of the Stone Crows informed him, not an hour later, that the powdered man was at his door. "'You are a cruel man to make the Grand Master squirm so,' the eunuch scolded. "'The man cannot abide a secret.' "'Is that a crow I hear, calling the raven black? Or would you sooner not hear what I proposed to Doran Martel?' Varys giggled. Perhaps my little birds have told me. Have they indeed? He wanted to hear this. Go on. The Jornish men have thus far held aloof from these walls. Doran Martell has called his banners, but no more. 
His hatred for Horst Lannister is well known, and it is commonly thought he will join Lord Rendley. You wish to dissuade him? All this is obvious, said Tyrion. The only puzzle is what you might have offered for his allegiance. The prince is a sentimental man, and he still mourns his sister Ilya and her sweet babe. My father once told me that a lord never lets sentiment get in the way of ambition, and it happens we have an empty seat on the small council, now that Lord Janus has taken the black. A council seat is not to be despised, Varius admitted. Yet will it be enough to make a proud man forget his sister's murder? Why forget? Tyrion smiled. I promise to deliver his sister's killers, alive or dead, as he prefers, after the war is done, to be sure. Varius gave him a shrewd look. My little birds tell me that Princess Ilya cried a certain name when they came for her. Is a secret still a secret if everyone knows it? In Casterly Rock, it was common knowledge that Gregor Clegane had killed Elia and her babe. They said he had raped the princess with her son's blood and brains still on his hands. This secret is your lord father's sworn man. My father would be the first to tell you that fifty thousand Dornish men are worth one rabid dog. Varys stroked a powdered cheek. And if Prince Doran demands the blood of the lord who gave the command as well as the knight who did the deed, Robert Baratheon led the rebellion. All commands came from him in the end. Robert was not at King's Landing. Neither was Doran Martell. So, blood for his pride, a chair for his ambition. Golden land, that goes without saying. A sweet offer, yet sweets can be poisoned. If I were the prince, something more would I require before I should reach for this honeycomb. Some token of good faith, some sure safeguard against betrayal. Varys smiled, his slimier smile. Which one will you give him, I wonder? Tyrion sighed. You know, don't you? Since you put it that way, yes, Tommin, you could scarcely offer Missella to Doran Martell and Lysa Aaron both. Remind me never to play these guessing games with you again. You cheat. Prince Tommin is a good boy. If I pray him away from Cersei and Joffrey while he's still young, he might even grow to be a good man. And a good king. Joffrey is king, and Tommen is heir, should anything ill befall his grace. Tommen, whose nature is so sweet and notably tractable. You have a suspicious mind, Varys. 
I shall take that as a tribute, my lord. In any case, Prince Doran would hardly be insensible of the great honour you do him. Very deftly done, I would say, but for one small flaw. The dwarf laughed. Named Cersei? What a real statecraft against the love of a mother for the sweet fruit of her womb, perhaps for the glory of her house and the safety of the realm the queen might be persuaded to send away Tommin or Messella, but both of them surely not. What Cersei does not know will never hurt me. And if her grace were to discover your intentions before your plans are ripe, why, he said, then I would know the man who told her to be my certain enemy. And when Varys giggled, he thought, three. Sansa Come to the guardswood tonight, if you want to go home. The words were the same on the hundredth reading as they had been on the first, when Sansa had discovered the folded sheet of parchment beneath her pillow. She did not know how it had gotten there, or who had sent it. The note was unsigned, unsealed, and the hand unfamiliar. She crushed the parchment to her chest and whispered the words to herself. Come to the guardswood tonight, if you want to go home, she breathed ever so faintly. What could it mean? Should she take it to the queen, to prove she was being good? Nervously, she rubbed her stomach. The angry purple bruise Samarin had given her had faded to an ugly yellow, but still hurt. His fists had been mailed when he hit her. It was her own fault. She must learn to hide her feelings better, so as not to anger Joffrey. When she heard that the imp had sent Lord Slint to the wall, she had forgotten herself and said, Oh, I hope the others get him. The king had not been pleased. Come to the guardswood tonight, if you want to go home. Sansa had prayed so hard. Could this be her answer at last, a true knight sent to save her? Perhaps it was one of the red wine twins, or bold Sir Balan Swan, or even Beric Dondarrion, the young lord her friend Jane Poole had loved, with his red gold hair and the spray of stars on his black cloak. Come to the godswood tonight, if you want to go home. What if it was some cruel jape of Joffrey's, like the day he had taken her up to the battlements to show her father's head? or perhaps it was some subtle snare to prove she was not loyal. If she went to the godswood, would she find Sir Ilian Payne waiting for her, sitting silent under the heart tree, with ice in his hand, his pale eyes watching to see if she'd come? Come to the godswood tonight if you want to go home. When the door opened, she hurriedly stuffed the note under her sheet and sat on it. It was her bedmaid, the mousy one with the limp brown hair. What do you want? 
Sansa demanded. Will my lady be wanting a bath tonight? A fire, I think. I feel a chill. She was shivering, though the day had been hot. As you wish. Sansa watched the girl suspiciously. Had she seen the note? Had she put it under the pillow? It did not seem likely. She seemed a stupid girl, not one you'd want delivering secret notes. But Sansa did not know her. The Queen had her servants changed every fortnight to make certain none of them befriended her. When a fire was blazing in the hearth, Sansa thanked the maid curtly and ordered her out. The girl was quick to obey as ever, but Sansa decided that there was something sly about her eyes. Doubtless she was scurrying off to report to the Queen, or maybe Varys. All her maids spied on her, she was certain. Once alone, she thrust the note into the flames, watching the parchment curl and blacken. Come to the God's Wood tonight if you want to go home. She drifted to her window. Below she could see a short knight in moon-pale armor and a heavy white cloak pacing the drawbridge. From his height it could only be Sir Preston Greenfield. The Queen had given her freedom of the castle, but even so he would want to know where she was going if she tried to leave Magor's Holdfast at this time of night. What was she to tell him? Suddenly she was glad she had burned the note. She unlaced her gown and crawled into her bed, but she did not sleep. Was he still there, she wondered? How long will he wait? It was so cruel to send a note and tell her nothing. The thoughts went round and round in her head. If only she had someone to tell her what to do. She missed Septa Mordain, and even more Jane Poole, her truest friend. The Scepter had lost her head with the rest, for the crime of serving House Stark. Sansa did not know what had happened to Jane, who had disappeared from her rooms afterward, never to be mentioned again. She tried not to think of them too often, yet sometimes the memories came unbidden, and then it was hard to hold back the tears. Once in a while, Sansa even missed her sister. By now, Ari was safe back in Winterfell, dancing and sewing, playing with Bran and baby Rickon, even riding through the winter town if she liked. Sansa was allowed to go riding too, but only in the bailey, and it got boring going round in a circle all day. She was wide awake when she heard the shouting, distant at first, then growing louder, many voices yelling together. She could not make out words. And there were horses as well, and pounding feet, shouts of command. She crept to her window and saw men running on the walls, carrying spears and torches. Go back to your bed, Sansa told herself. This is nothing that concerns you, just some new trouble out in the city. The talk at the wells had all been of troubles in the city of late. People were crowding in, running from the war, and many had no way to live save by robbing and killing each other. Go to bed. But when she looked, the white night was gone. The bridge across the dry moat, down but undefended. Sansa turned away without thinking and ran to her wardrobe. What am I doing? she asked herself as she dressed. This is madness. She could see the lights of many torches on the curtain walls. At Stannis and Renly come at last to kill Joffrey, 
and claim their brother's throne? If so, the guards would raise the drawbridge, cutting off Magor's holdfast from the outer castle. Sansa threw a plain grey cloak over her shoulders and picked up the knife she used to cut her meat. If it is some trap, better that I die than let them hurt me more, she told herself. She hid the blade under her cloak. A column of red-cloaked swordsmen ran past as she slipped out into the night. She waited until they were well past, before she darted across the undefended drawbridge. In the yard, men were buckling on sword belts and cinching the saddles of their horses. She glimpsed Sir Preston near the stables, with three others of the king's guard, white cloaks bright as a moon as they helped Joffrey into his armour. Her breath caught in her throat when she saw the king. Thankfully, he did not see her. He was shouting for his sword and crossbow. The noise receded as she moved deeper into the castle, never daring to look back for fear that Joffrey might be watching, or worse, following. The serpentine steps twisted ahead, striped by bars of flickering light from the narrow windows above. Sansa was panting by the time she reached the top. She ran down a shadowy colonnade and pressed herself against a wall to catch her breath. When something brushed against her leg, she almost jumped out of her skin. But it was only a cat, a ragged black tom with a chewed-off ear. The creature spit at her and leapt away. By the time she reached the godswood, the noises had faded to a faint rattle of steel and a distant shouting. Sansa pulled her cloak tighter. The air was rich with the smells of earth and leaf. Lady would have liked this place, she thought. There was something wild about a godswood, even here, in the heart of the castle, at the heart of the city. You could feel the old gods watching with a thousand unseen eyes. Sansa had favoured her mother's gods over her father's. She loved the statues, the pictures in leaded glass, the fragrance of burning incense, the septons with their robes and crystals, the magical play of the rainbows over altars inlaid with mother-of-pearl and onyx and lapis lazuli. Yet she could not deny that the gods would had a certain power, too, especially by night. Help me, she prayed. Send me a friend, a true knight to champion me. She moved from tree to tree, feeling the roughness of the bark beneath her fingers. Leaves brushed at her cheeks. Had she come too late? He would not have left so soon, would he? Or had he even been here? Dare she risk calling out? It seemed so hushed and still here. I feared you would not come, child. Sansa whirled. A man stepped out of the shadows, heavy set, thick of neck, shambling. He wore a dark grey robe with a cowl pulled forward. But when a thin sliver of moonlight touched his cheek, she knew him at once by the blotchy skin and web of broken veins beneath. Sardantus, she breathed, heartbroken. Was it you? Yes, my lady. When he moved closer, she could smell the sour stench of wine on his breath. Me, he held out a hand. Sansa shrank back. Don't! She slid her hand under her cloak to a hidden knife. What? What do you want with me? 
Only to help you, Dante said, as you help me. You're drunk, aren't you? Only one cup of wine to help my courage. If they catch me now, they'll strip the skin off my back. And what will they do to me? Sansa found herself thinking of Lady again. She could smell out falsehood. She could. But she was dead. Father had killed her on account of Arya. She drew the knife and held it before her with both hands. Are you going to stab me? Dantas asked. I will, she said. Tell me who sent you. No one, sweet lady. I swear it on my honour as a knight. A knight? Joffrey had decreed that he was to be a knight no longer, only a fool, lower even than Moonboy. I prayed to the gods for a knight to come to save me, she said. I prayed and prayed. Why would they send me a drunken old fool? I deserve that, though. I know it's queer, but all those years I was a knight, I was truly a fool. And now that I am a fool, I think. I think I may find it in me to be a knight again, sweet lady. And all because of you. Your grace, your courage, you saved me, not only from Joffrey, but from myself. His voice dropped. The singer said, there was another fool once, who was the greatest knight of all. Florian, Sansa whispered. A shiver went through her. Sweet lady, I would be your Florian, Dantas said, humbly, falling to his knees before her. Slowly, Sansa lowered the knife. Her head seemed terribly light, as if she were floating. This is madness, to trust myself to this drunkard. But if I turn away, will the chance ever come again? How, how would you do it? Get me away. Sodontos raised his face to her. Taking you from the castle, that will be the hardest. Once you're out, there are ships that would take you home. I'd need to find the coin and make the arrangements, that's all. Could we go now? she asked, hardly daring to hope. This very night, no, my lady, I fear not. First, I must find a sure way to get you from the castle when the hour is ripe. It will not be easy, nor quick. They watch me as well. He licked his lips nervously. Would you pull away your blade? Sansa slipped the knife beneath her cloak. Rise, sir. Thank you, sweet lady. Sodontas lurched clumsily to his feet and brushed earth and leaves from his knees. Your lord father was a truer man as the realm has ever known. But I stood by and let them slay him. I said nothing, did nothing. And yet, when Joffrey would have slain me, you spoke up. Lady, I have never been a hero, no Ryan Redwine or Barristan the Bold. I have won no tawnies, no renown in war, but I was a knight once, and you have helped me remember what that meant. My life is a poor thing. But it is yours. Sodontas placed a hand under the gnarled bowl of the heart tree. He was shaking, she saw. I vow, with your father's gods as witness, that I shall send you home. He swore a solemn oath before the gods.
Then I will put myself in your hands, sir. But how will I know when it is time to go? Will you send me another note? Sodontus glanced about anxiously. The risk is too great. You must come here to the Godswood, as often as you can. This is the safest place, the only safe place. Nowhere else. Not in your chambers, nor mine, nor on the steps, nor in the yard. Even if it seems we are alone. The stones have ears in the Red Keep, and only here may we talk freely. Only here, Sansa said. I'll remember. And if I should seem cruel or mocking or indifferent when men are watching, forgive me, child, I have a role to play. And you must do the same. One misstep, and our heads will adorn the walls, as did your father's. She nodded. I understand. You will need be brave and strong and patient, patient above all. I will be, she promised. But please, make it as soon as you can. I'm afraid. So am I, Sir Dantas said, smiling wanly. And now you must go, before you're missed. You will not come with me? Better we're never seen together. Nodding, Sansa took a step, then spun back nervous, and softly laid a kiss on his cheek, her eyes closed. My Florian, she whispered. The gods heard my prayer. She flew along the river walk, past the small kitchen, and through the pig yard, her hurried footsteps lost beneath the squealing of the hugs in their pens. Home, she thought. Home. He's going to take me home. He'll keep me safe, my Florian. The songs about Florian and Junkle were her very favorites. Florian was homely, too, though not so old. She was racing headlong down the serpentine steps when a man lurched out of a hidden doorway. Sansa caromed into him and lost her balance. Iron fingers caught her by the wrist before she could fall, and a deep voice rasped at her. It's a long roll down a serpentine little bird. Want to kill us both? His laughter was rough as a saw on stone. Maybe you do. The Hound No, my lord, pardons, I'd never. Sansa averted her eyes, but it was too late. He'd seen her face. Please, you're hurting me. She tried to wriggle free. And what's Joff's little bird doing flying down a serpentine in the black of night? When she did not answer... He shook her. Where were you? The, the, the gods would, my lord, she said, not daring to lie. Praying. Uh, praying for my father and uh, for the king. Praying that he'd not be hurt. Think I'm so drunk that I believe that. He let go his grip on her arm. Swaying slightly as he stood, stripes of light and darkness falling across his terrible burnt face. You look almost a woman. Face, tits, and you're taller too, almost. Ah, oh, you're still a stupid little bird, aren't you? <laughs> Singing all the songs they taught you. Sing me a song, why don't you? Go on, sing to me. Some song about knights and fair maids. <laughs> you like knights, don't you? He was scaring her. T -t True knights, my lord? True knights, 
he mucked. And I'm no lord, no more than I'm a knight. Do I need to beat that into you? Clegane reeled and almost fell. Gods, he swore. Shoo, too much wine. Do you like wine, little bird? True wine, a flagon of sour red, dark as blood, all a man needs. Or a woman. <laughs> he laughed, shook his head. Drunk as a dog, damn me. You come now. Back to your cage, little bird. I'll take you there. Keep you safe for the king. The hound gave her a push, oddly gentle, and followed her down the steps. By the time they reached the bottom, he had lapsed back into a brooding silence, as if he had forgotten she was there. When they reached Magor's Holdfast, she was alarmed to see that it was Sir Boris Blunt who now held the bridge. His high white helm turned stiffly at the sound of their footsteps. Sansa flinched away from his gaze. Sir Boris was the worst of the king's guards, an ugly man with a foul temper, all scowls and jowls. That one is nothing to fear, girl. The hound laid a heavy hand on her shoulder. Paint stripes on a toad, he does not become a tiger. Sir Boris lifted his visor. Sir, where? Fuck you, sir, Boris. You're the knight, not me. I'm the king's dog, remember? The king was looking for his dog earlier. The dog was drinking. It was your knight to shield him, sir. You and my other brothers. Sir Boris turned to Sansa. How is it you're not in your chambers at this hour, lady? I went to the guardswood to pray for the safety of the king. The lie sounded better this time, almost true. You expect her to sleep with all the noise? Clegane said. What was the trouble? Fools at the gate, Sir Boris admitted. Some loose tongues spread tales of the preparation for Tyrak's wedding feast, and these wretches got it into their heads they should be feasted too. His grace led a sortie and sent them scurrying. A brave boy, Clegane said, mouth twitching. Let us see how brave he is when he faces my brother, Sansa thought. The hound escorted her across the drawbridge. As they were winding their way up the steps, she said, Why do you let people call you a dog? You won't let anyone call you a knight. I like dogs better than knights. My father's father was kennelmaster at the Rock. One autumn year, Lord Titus came between a lioness and her prey. The lioness didn't give a shit that she was Lannister's own sigil. Bitch tore into my lord's horse and would have done for my lord too, but my grandfather came up with the hounds. Three of his dogs died running her off. My grandfather lost a leg, so Lannister paid him for it with lands and a tire house and took his son to squire. The three dogs on our banner are the three that died in the yellow of autumn grass. A hound will die for you, but never lie to you. And he'll look you straight in the face. He cupped her under her jaw, raising her chin, his fingers pinching her painfully. And that's more than little birds can do, isn't it?
I never got my song. I, um, I, I know a song about Florian and Jonkel. Florian and Jonkel, a fool and his cunt, spare me. But one day, I'll have a song from you, whether you will it or no. I will sing it for you gladly. Sandor Clegane snorted. <laughs> Pretty thing, and such a bad liar. A dog can smell a lie, you know. Look around you, and take a good whiff. They're all liars here, and every one better than you. Aria When she climbed all the way to the highest branch, Aria could see chimneys poking through the trees. Thatched roofs clustered along the shore of the lake, and the small stream that emptied into it, and a wooden pier jutted out into the water beside a low, long building with a slate roof. She skinned farther out, until the branch began to sag under her weight. No boats were tied to the pier, but she could see thin tendrils of smoke rising from some of the chimneys, and part of a wagon jutting out behind a stable. Someone's there. Aria chewed her lip. All the other places they'd come upon had been empty and desolate. Farms, villages, castles, seps, barns, it made no matter. If it could burn, the Lannisters had burned it. If it could die, they'd killed it. They had even set the woods ablaze where they could, though the leaves were still green and wet from recent rains, and the fires had not spread. They would have burned the lake if they could have, Gendry had said, and Arya knew he was right. On the night of their escape, the flames of the burning town had shimmered so brightly on the water that it had seemed that the lake was afire. When they finally summoned the nerve to steal back into the ruins the next night, nothing remained but blackened stones, the hollow shells of houses, and corpses. In some places, wisps of pale smoke still rose from the ashes. Hot Pie had pleaded with them not to go back, and Lummy called them fools, and swore that Sir Amory would catch them and kill them too. But Lorch and his men had long gone by the time they reached the Holfast. They found the gates broken down, the walls partly demolished, and the insides strewn with the unburied dead. One look was enough for gentry. They are killed, everyone, he said, and dogs have been at them too, look. Or wolves? Dogs, wolves, it makes no matter, it's done here. But Arya would not leave until they found Yorin. They couldn't have killed him, she told herself. He was too hard and tough, and a brother of the Night's Watch besides. She said as much to Gendry as they searched among the corpses. The axe blow that had killed him had split his skull apart, but the great tangled beard could be no one else's, or the garb, patched and unwashed, and so faded it was more grey than black. Sir Amory Lorch had given no more thought to burying his own dead than to those he had murdered, and the corpses of four Lannister men-at-arms were heaped near Yorin's. Arya wondered 
how many it had taken to bring him down. He was going to take me home, she thought, as they dug the old man's hole. There were too many dead to bury them all, but Yorin at least must have a grave. Arya had insisted. He was going to bring me safe to Winterfell, he promised. Part of her wanted to cry, the other part wanted to kick him. It was Gendry who thought of the Lord's Tower House and the three that Yorin had sent to hold it. They had come under attack as well, but the round tower had only one entry, a second-story door reached by a ladder. Once that had been pulled inside, Sir Amory's men could not get at them. The Lannisters had piled brush against the tower's base and set it afire, but the stone would not burn, and Lorch did not have the patience to starve them out. Cutjack opened the door at Gendry's shout, and when Kurt said they'd be better pressing on north and going back, Arya had clung to the hope that she might still reach Winterfell. Well, this village was no Winterfell, but those thatched roofs promised warmth and shelter, and maybe even food, if they were bold enough to risk them. Unless it's Lorch there, he had horses, he would have travelled faster than us. She watched from the tree for a long time, hoping she might see something, a man, a horse, a banner, anything that would help her know. A few times she glimpsed motion, but the buildings were so far off it was hard to be certain. Once, very clearly, she heard the whinny of a horse. The air was full of birds, crows mostly. From afar they were no larger than flies as they wheeled and flapped above the thatched roofs. To the east, God's eye was a sheet of sun-hammered blue that filled half the world. Some day, as they made their slow way up the muddy shore, Gendry wanted no part of any roads, and even Hot Pie and Lomia saw the sense in that. Arya felt as though the lake was calling her. She wanted to leap into those placid blue waters, to feel clean again, to swim and splash and bask in the sun. But she dare not take off her clothes where the others could see, not even to wash them. At the end of the day, she would often sit on a rock and dangle her feet in the cool water. She had finally thrown away her cracked and rotted shoes. Walking barefoot was hard at first, but the blisters had finally broken, the cuts had healed, and her soles had turned to leather. The mud was nice between her toes, and she liked to feel the earth underfoot when she walked. From up here she could see a small wooded island off to the northeast. Thirty yards from shore, three black swans were gliding over the water so serene. No one had told them that war had come, and they cared nothing for burning towns and butchered men. She stared at them with yearning. Part of her wanted to be a swan. The other part wanted to eat one. She had broken her fast on some acorn paste and a handful of bugs. Bugs weren't so bad when you got used to them. Worms were worse, but still not as bad as the pain in your belly after days without food. Finding bugs was easy. All you had to do was kick over a rock. Arya had eaten a bug once when she was little, just to make Sansa screech, so she hadn't been afraid to eat another.' 
Weasel wasn't either, but Hot Pie retched up the beetle he tried to swallow, and Lummy and Gendry wouldn't even try. Yesterday, Gendry had caught a frog and shared it with Lummy, and a few days before, Hot Pie had found blackberries and stripped the bush bare, but mostly they had been living on water and acorns. Kurtz had told them how to use rocks and make a kind of acorn paste. It tasted awful. She wished the poacher hadn't died. He'd known more about the woods than all the rest of them together. But he'd taken an arrow through the shoulder, pulling in the ladder at the tower house. Tarba had packed it with mud and moss from the lake, and for a day or two Kurt swore the wound was nothing, even though the flesh of his throat was turning dark, while angry red welts crept up his jaw and down his chest. Then one morning he couldn't find the strength to get up, and by the next he was dead. They buried him under a mound of stones, and Cut Jack had claimed his sword and hunting horn, while Tarba helped himself to bow and boots and knife. They'd taken it all when they left. At first they thought the two had just gone hunting, that they'd soon return with game and feed them all, but they waited and waited until finally Gendry made them move on. Maybe Tarba and Cut Jack figured they would stand a better chance without a gaggle of orphan boys to herd along. They probably would, too, but that didn't stop her hating them for leaving. Beneath the tree, Hot Pie barked like a dog. Kurtz had told them to use animal sounds to signal to each other. An old poacher's trick, he'd said, but he'd died before he could teach them how to make the sounds right. Hot Pie's bird calls were awful. His dog was better, but not much. Aria hopped from the high branch to one beneath it, her hands out for balance. A water dancer never falls. Light foot, her toes curled tight around the branch, she walked a few feet, hopped down to a larger limb, then swung hand over hand through the tangle of leaves until she reached the trunk. The bark was rough beneath her fingers, against her toes. She descended quickly, jumping down the final six feet, rolling when she landed. Gendry gave her a hand to pull her up. You were up there a long time. What could you see? A fishing village, just a little place north along the shore. Twenty-six thatch roofs and one slate, I counted. I saw a part of a wagon. Someone's there. At the sound of her voice, Weasel came creeping out from the bushes. Lummy had named her that. He said she looked like a weasel, which wasn't true but they couldn't keep on calling her the crying girl after she'd finally stopped crying. Her mouth was filthy. Aria hoped she hadn't been eating mud again. Did you see people? asked Gendry. Mostly just roofs, Aria admitted. But some chimneys were smoking, and I heard a horse. The weasel put her arms around her leg, clutching tight. Sometimes she did that now. If there's people, there's food, Hot Pie said too loudly. Gendry was always telling him to be more quiet, but it never did any good. Might be they'll give us some. Might be 
they'll kill us too, Gendry said. Not if we yielded, Hot Pie said, hopefully. Now, you sound like Lummy. Lummy Greenhands sat propped up between two thick roots at the foot of an oak tree. A spear had taken him through his left calf during the fight at the Holfast. By the end of the next day, he had to limp along one-legged with an arm around Gendry, and now he couldn't even do that. They hacked branches off trees to make a litter for him, but it was slow, hard work carrying him along, and he whimpered every time they jounced him. We have to yield, he said. That's what Yoren should have done. He should have opened the gates like they said. Arya was sick of Lommy going on about how Yoren should have yielded. It was all he talked about when they carried him, that in his leg and his empty belly. Hot Pie agreed. They told Yoren to open the gates. They told him in the king's name. You have to do what they tell you in the king's name. It was that stinky old man's fault. If he'd have yielded, they would have left us be. Gendry frowned. Knights and lordlings, they take each other captive and pay ransoms, but they don't care if the likes of you yield or not. He turned to Arya. What else did you see? If it's a fishing village, they'd sell us fish, I bet, said Hot Pie. The lake teemed with fresh fish, but they had nothing to catch them with. Arya had tried to use her hands the way she had seen Kos do, but fish were quicker than pigeons, and the water played tricks on her eyes. I don't know about fish. Arya tugged at the weasel's matted hair, thinking it might be best to hack it off. There's crows down by the water. Something's dead there. Fish washed up on shore, Hot Pie said. If the crows eat it, I bet we could. We shall catch some crows. We could eat them, said Lummy. We could make a fire and roast them like chickens. Gendry looked fierce when he scowled. His beard had grown in thick and black as briar. I said no fires. Lummy's hungry, Hot Pie whined, and I am too. We're all hungry, said Arya. You're not, Lummy spat from the ground, worm breath. Arya could have kicked him in his wound. I said I'd dig worms for you too if you wanted. Lummy made a disgusted face. If it wasn't for my leg, I'd unto some boars. Some boars, she mocked. You need a boar spear to hunt boars, and horses and dogs, and men to flush the boar from its lair. Her father had hunted boar in the wolfswood with Rob and John. Once he even took Bran, but never Arya, even though she was older. Scepter Mordain said boar hunting was not for ladies, and Mother only promised that when she was older she might have her own hawk. She was older now, but if she had a hawk... She'd eat it. What do you know about hunting boars? said Hot Pie. More than you. Gendry was in no mood to hear it. Quiet, both of you. I need to think what to do. He always looked pained when he tried to think, like it hurt him something fierce. Yield, Lummy said. I told you to shut up.
about the yielding. We don't even know who's in there. Maybe we can steal some food. Lummy could steal, if it wasn't for his leg, said Hot Pie. He was a thief in the city. A bad thief, Arya said, or he wouldn't have got caught. Gendry squinted up at the sun. Even four will be the best time to sneak in. I'll go scout come dark. No, I'll go, Arya said. You're too noisy. Gendry got that look on his face. We'll both go. Harry should go, Lummy said. He's sneakier than you are. We'll both go, I said. But what if you don't come back? Up Pie can't carry me by himself. You know he can't. And there's wolves, Hot Pie said. I heard them last night. When I had the watch, they sounded close. Arya had heard them too. She'd been asleep in the branches of an elm, but the howling had woken her. She'd sat awake for a good hour, listening to them, prickles creeping up her spine. And you won't even let us have a fire to keep them off, Hot Pie said. It's not right. "'Leaving us for the wolves?' "'No one is leaving you,' Gendry said in disgust. "'Lummy has his spear if the wolves come, and you'll be with him. "'We're just going to go see, that's all. We're coming back.' "'Whoever it is, you should yield to them,' Lummy whined. "'I need some potion for my leg. It hurts bad.' If we see any leg potion, we'll bring it, Gendry said. Harry, let's go. I want to get near before the sun is down. Hot Pie, you keep Weasel here. I don't want her following. Last time she kicked me. I'll kick you if you don't keep her here. Without waiting for an answer, Gendry donned his steel helm and walked off. Arya had to scamper to keep up. Gendry was five years older and a foot taller than she was, and long of leg as well. For a while he said nothing, just ploughed on through the trees with an angry look on his face, making too much noise. But finally he stopped and said, I think Lamy's going to die. She was not surprised. Kurtz had died of his wound, and he'd been a lot stronger than Lamy. Whenever it was Arya's turn to help carry him, she could feel how warm his skin was and smell the stink of his leg. Maybe we could find a maester. You'll only find maesters in castles, and even if we found one, he wouldn't dirt his hands on the likes of Lummy. Gendry ducked under a low-hanging limb. That's not true. Maester Lewin would have helped anyone who came to him, she was certain. He's going to die, and the sooner he does it, the better for the rest of us. We should just leave him, like he says. If it was you or me hurt, you know he'd leave us. They scrambled down a steep cut and up the other side, using roots for handholds. I'm sick of carrying him, and I'm sick of all his talk about yielding, too. If he could stand up, I'd knock his teeth in. Lummy's no use to anyone. That crying girl's no use either. You leave Weasel alone. She's just scared and hungry, that's all. Arya glanced back. 
but the girl was not following for once. Hot Pie must have grabbed her like Gendry had told him. She's no use, Gendry repeated stubbornly. Her and Hot Pie and Lummy, they're slowing us down, and they're gonna get us killed. You're the only one of the bunch who's good for anything, even if you are a girl. Arya froze in her steps. I'm not a girl. Yes, you are. Do you think I'm as stupid as they are? No, you're stupider. The Night's Watch doesn't take girls. Everyone knows that. That's true. I don't know why Yorin brought you, but he must have had some reason. You're still a girl. I am not. Then pull out your cock and take a piss. Go on. I don't need to take a piss. If I wanted to, I could. Liar, you can't take out your cock because you don't have one. I never noticed before when there were thirty of us, but you always go off in the woods to make your water. You don't see up pie doing that, nor me, neither. If you're not a girl, you must be some eunuch. You're the eunuch. You know I'm not. Gendry smiled. You want me to take out my cock and prove it? I don't have anything to hide. Yes, you do, Arya blurted, desperate to escape the subject of the cock she didn't have. Those gold cloaks were after you at the inn, and you won't tell us why. I wish I knew. I think Yorin knew, but he never told me. Why do you think they were after you, though? Arya bit her lip. She remembered what Yorin had said, the day he had hacked off her hair. This lot, half of them, will turn you over to the Queen quick as spit for a pardon, and maybe a few silvers. The other half would do the same, only they'd rape you first. Only Gendry was different. The Queen wanted him too. I'll tell you, if you tell me, she said warily. I would if I knew, Harry. Is that really what you're called, or do you have some girl's name? Arya glared at the gnarled root by her feet. She realized that the pretense was done. Gendry knew, and she had nothing in her pants to convince him otherwise. She could draw a needle and kill him where he stood, or else trust him. She wasn't certain she'd be able to kill him, even if she tried. He had his own sword, and he was a lot stronger. All that was left was the truth. Lummy and Hot Pie can't know, she said. They won't, he swore, not from me. Arya, she raised her eyes to his. My name is Arya, of House Stark. Havaus, it took him a moment before he said, The king's hand was named Stark, the one they killed for a traitor. He was never a traitor. He was my father. Gendry's eyes widened. So that's why you thought... She nodded. Yorin was taking me home, to Winterfell. I... You're high-born, then, uh, you'll be a lady. 
Arya looked down at her ragged clothes and bare feet, all cracked and calloused. She saw the dirt under her nails, the scabs on her elbows, the scratches on her hands. Septim Ordain wouldn't even know me, I bet. Sansa might, but she'd pretend not to. My mother's a lady and my sister, but I never was. Yes, you were. You were a lord's daughter, and you lived in a castle, didn't you? And you... God, be good, I never... All of a sudden, Gendry seemed uncertain, almost afraid. All, all that about cocks, I never should have said that. And I've been pissing in front of you and everything. I, I, oh, I beg your pardon, my lady. Stop that. Arya hissed. Was he mocking her? I know my courtesies, my lady, Gendry said, stubborn as ever. Whenever high-born girls come into the shop with their fathers, my master told me I was to bend the knee and speak only when they spoke to me and call them milady. If you start calling me milady, even hot pie is going to notice. And you'd better keep on pissing the same way, too. As my lady commands. Arya slammed his chest with both hands. He tripped over a stone and sat down with a thump. What kind of lord's daughter are you? he said, laughing. This kind. She kicked him in the side, but it only made him laugh harder. You laugh all you like. I'm going to see who's in the village. The sun had already fallen below the trees. Dusk would be on them in no time at all. For once it was Gendry who had to hurry after. You smell that? she asked. He sniffed the air. What and fish? You know it's not. We'd better be careful. I'll go around west, see if there's some road. There must be, if you saw a wagon. You take the shore. If you need help, bark like a dog. That's stupid. If I need help, I'll shout, help. She darted away, bare feet silent in the grass. When she glanced back over her shoulder, he was watching her, with that pained look on his face that meant he was thinking. He's probably thinking that he shouldn't be letting Milady go stealing food. Arya just knew he was going to be stupid now. The smell grew stronger as she got closer to the village. It did not smell like rotten fish to her. The stench was ranker, fouler. She wrinkled her nose. Where the trees began to thin, she used the undergrowth, slipping from bush to bush, quiet as a shadow. Every few yards she stopped to listen. The third time she heard horses, and a man's voice as well, and the smell got worse. Dead man stink, that's what it is. She had smelled it before, with Yorin and the others. A dense thicket of brambles grew south of the village. By the time she reached it, the long shadows of sunset had begun to fade, and the lantern bugs were coming out. She could see thatched roofs just beyond the hedge. She crept along until she found a gap and squirmed through on her belly, keeping well hidden until she saw what made the smell. Beside the lapping waters of God's eye, a long gibbet of raw green wood had been thrown up,
and things that had once been men dangled there, their feet in chains, while crows pecked at their flesh and flapped from corpse to corpse. For every crow there were a hundred flies. When the wind blew off the lake, the nearest corpse twisted on its chain ever so slightly. The crows had eaten most of its face, and something else had been at it as well, something much larger. Throat and chest had been torn apart, and glistening green entrails and ribbons of ragged flesh dangled from where the belly had been opened. One arm had been ripped right off the shoulder. Arya saw the bones a few feet away, gnawed and cracked, picked clean of meat. She made herself look at the next man, and the one beyond him, and the one beyond him, telling herself she was hard as a stone. Corpses all, so savaged and decayed, that it took her a moment to realize they had been stripped before they were hanged. They did not look like naked people. They hardly looked like people at all. The crows had eaten their eyes, and sometimes their faces. Of the sixth in the long row, nothing remained but a single leg, still tangled in its chains, swaying with each breeze. Fear cuts deeper than swords. Dead men could not hurt her, but whoever had killed them could. Well beyond the gibbet, two men, in male hauberks, stood leaning on their spears in front of the long, low building by the water, the one with the slate roof. A pair of tall poles had been driven into the muddy ground in front of it, banners drooping from each staff. One looked red and one paler, white or yellow, maybe, but both were limp, and with the dusk settling, she could not even be certain that red one was Lannister Crimson. I don't need to see the lion. I can see all the dead people. Who else would it be but Lannister's? Then there was a shout. The two spearmen turned at the cry, and a third man came into view, shoving a captive before him. It was growing too dark to make out faces, but the prisoner was wearing a shiny steel helm, and when Arya saw the horns, she knew it was Gendry. You stupid, 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 she thought. If he'd been here, she would have kicked him again. The guards were talking loudly, but she was too far away to make out the words, especially with the crows gabbling and flapping closer to hand. One of the spearmen snatched the helm off Gendry's head and asked him a question, but he must not have liked the answer, because he smashed him across the face with the butt of his spear and knocked him down. The one who captured him gave him a kick, while the second spearman was trying on the bull's head helm. Finally, they pulled him to his feet and marched him off toward the storehouse. When they opened the heavy wooden doors, a small boy darted out, but one of the guards grabbed his arm and flung him back inside. Arya heard sobbing from inside the building, and then a shriek so loud and full of pain that it made her bite her lip. The guard shoved Gendry inside with a boy and barred the doors behind them. Just then, a breath of wind came sighing off the lake, and the banner stirred and lifted. 
The one on the tall staff bore the golden lion as she'd feared. On the other, three sleek black shapes ran across a field as yellow as butter. Dog, she thought. Arya had seen those dogs before. But where? It didn't matter. The only thing that mattered was that they had Gendry. Even if he was stubborn and stupid, she had to get him out. She wondered if they knew that the Queen wanted him. One of the guards took off his helm and donned Gendry's instead. It made her angry to see him wearing it, but she knew there was nothing she could do to stop him. She thought she heard more screams from inside the windowless storehouse, muffled by the masonry, but it was hard to be certain. She stayed long enough to see the guard changed, and much more besides. Men came and went. They led their horses down to the stream to drink. A hunting party returned from the wood, carrying a deer's carcass slung from a pole. She watched them clean and gut it, and build a cook fire on the far side of the stream, and the smell of cooking meat mingled queerly with a stench of corruption. Her empty belly roiled, and she thought she might retch. The prospect of food brought other men out of the houses, nearly all of them wearing bits of mail or boiled leather. When the deer was cooked, the choicest portions were carried to one of the houses. She thought that the dark might let her crawl close and free Gendry, but the guards kindled torches off the cook-fire. A squire brought meat and bread to the two guarding the storehouse, and later two more men joined them, and they all passed a skin of wine from hand to hand. When it was empty, the others left, but the two guards remained, leaning on their spears. Arya's arms and legs were stiff. When she finally wriggled out from under the briar into the dark of the wood. It was a black night, with a thin sliver of moon appearing and disappearing as the clouds blew past. Silent as a shadow, she told herself as she moved through the trees. In this darkness she dare not run, for fear of tripping on some unseen route or losing her way. On her left, God's eye lapped calmly against its shores. On her right, a wind sighed through the branches, and leaves rustled and stirred. Far off, she heard the howling of wolves. Lummy and Hot Pie almost shit themselves when she stepped out of the trees behind them. Quiet, she told them, putting an arm around Weasel when the little girl came running up. Hot Pie stared at her with big eyes, we thought you'd left us. He had his short sword in hand, the one Yorin had taken off the gold cloak. I was scared you was a wolf. Where's the bull? asked Lummy. They caught him, Arya whispered. We have to get him out. Hot Pie, you've got to help. We'll sneak up and kill the guards, and then I'll open the door. Hot Pie and Lummy exchanged a look. How many? I couldn't count, Arya admitted. Twenty at least, but only two on the door. Hot Pie looked as if he were going to cry. We can't fight twenty. You only need to fight one. I'll do the other, and we get Gendry out and run. We should yield, Lommy said. 
Just go in and yield. Arya shook her head stubbornly. Then just leave him, Harry, Lommy pleaded. They don't know about the rest of us. If we hide, they'll go away. You know they will. It's not our fault Gendry's captured. You're stupid, Lommy, Arya said angrily. You'll die if we don't get Gendry out. Who's going to carry you? You and Uppie. All the time, with no one else to help, we'll never do it. Gendry was a strong one. Anyhow, I don't care what you say. I'm going back for him. She looked at Hotpie. Are you coming? Hotpie glanced at Lommy, at Arya, at Lommy again. I'll come, he said reluctantly. Lommy, you keep Weasel here. He grabbed the little girl by the hand and pulled her close. What if the wolves come? Yield, Arya suggested. Finding their way back to the village seemed to take hours. Hot Pie kept stumbling in the dark and losing his way, and Arya had to wait for him and double back. Finally, she took him by the hand and led him along through the trees. Just be quiet and follow. When they could make out the first faint glow of the village fires against the sky, she said, There's dead men hanging on the other side of the hedge, but they're nothing to be scared of. Just remember, fear cuts deeper than swords. We'll have to go real quiet and slow. Hot Pie nodded. She wriggled under the briar first and waited for him on the far side. Crouched low. Hot Pie emerged pale and panting, his face and arms bloody with long scratches. He started to say something, but Arya put a finger to his lips. On hands and knees, they crawled along the gibbet, beneath the swaying dead. Hot Pie never once looked up nor made a sound until the crow landed on his back and he gave a muffled gasp. "'Who's there?' a voice boomed suddenly from the dark. Hot Pie leapt to his feet. "'I yield!' He threw away his sword, as dozens of crows rose shrieking and complaining to flap about the corpses. Arya grabbed his leg and tried to drag him back down, but he wrenched loose and ran forward, waving his arms, I yield! I yield! She bounced up and drew needle, but by then men were all around her. Arya slashed at the nearest, but he blocked her with a steel-clad arm, and someone else slammed into her and dragged her to the ground. A third man wrenched the sword from her grasp. When she tried to bite, her teeth snapped shut on cold, dirty chainmail. Ho oh, ho! A fierce one! The man said, laughing. The blow from his ironclad fist near knocked her head off. They talked over her as she lay hurting, but Arya could not seem to understand the words. Her ears rang. When she tried to crawl off, the earth moved beneath her. They took Needle. The shame of that hurt worse than the pain, and the pain hurt a lot. John had given her that sword, Sirio had taught her to use it. Finally, someone grabbed the front of her jerkin, yanked her to her knees. Hot Pie was kneeling too, before the tallest man Arya had ever seen, a monster from one of old Nan's stories. She never saw where the giant had come from. Three black dogs raced across his faded yellow surcoat, and his face looked as hard 
as if it had been cut from stone. Suddenly Arya knew where she had seen those dogs before. The night of the tourney at King's Landing, all the knights had hung their shields outside their pavilions. That one belongs to the hound's brother, Sansa had confided when they passed the black dogs on the yellow field. He's even bigger than Hodor, you'll see. They call him the Mountain That Rides. Arya let her head droop, only half aware of what was going on around her. Hot Pie was yielding some more. The Mountain said, You'll lead us to these others, and walked off. Next, she was stumbling past the dead men on their gibbet, while Hot Pie told their captors that he'd bake them pies and tarts if they didn't hurt him. Four men went with them. One carried a torch, one a longsword, two had spears. They found Lummy where they'd left him, under the oak. I yield, he called out at once when he saw them. He'd flung away his own spear and raised his hands, splotchy green with old dye. I yield, please. The man with the torch searched around under the trees. Are you the last? Baker boy said there was a girl. She ran off when she heard you coming, Lummy said. You made a lot of noise. And Arya thought, run, weasel, run as far as you can, run and hide and never come back. Tell us where we can find that horse on Dondarrion, and there'll be hot meal in it for you. Who? said Lummy blankly. I told you this lot don't know no more than those cunts in the village. Waste a bloody time. One of the spearmen drifted over to Lummy. Something wrong with your leg, boy. It got hurt. Can you walk? He sounded concerned. No, said Lummy. You've got to carry me. Think so? The man lifted his spear casually and drove the point through the boy's soft throat. Lummy never even had time to yield again. He jerked once, and that was all. When the man pulled the spear loose, blood sprayed out in a dark fountain. Carry him, he says, <laughs> he muttered, chuckling. Tyrion They had warned him to dress warmly. Tyrion Lannister took them at their word. He was garbed in heavy quilted breeches and a woolen doublet, and over it all he had thrown the shadow-skin cloak he had acquired in the Mountains of the Moon. The cloak was absurdly long, made for a man twice his height. When he was not a horse, the only way to wear the thing was to wrap it around him several times, which made him look like a ball of striped fur. Even so, he was glad he had listened. The chill in the long, dank vault went bone deep. Timid had chosen to retreat back up to the cellar after a brief taste of the cold below. They were somewhere under the hill of Rainies, behind the guildhall of the alchemists. The damp stone walls were splotchy with nitre, and the only light came from the sealed iron and glass oil lamp that Halin the pyromancer carried so gingerly. Gingerly indeed, and these would be the ginger jars. Tyrion lifted one for inspection. It was round and ruddy, a fat clay grapefruit. 
a little big for his hand, but it would fit comfortably in the grip of a normal man, he knew. The pottery was thin, so fragile, that even he had been warned not to squeeze too tightly, lest he crush it in his fist. The clay felt roughened, pebbled. Halen had told him that it was intentional. A smooth pot is more apt to slip from a man's grasp. The wildfire oozed slowly toward the lip of the jar when Tyrion tilted it to peer inside. The colour would be a murky green, he knew, but the poor light made that impossible to confirm. Thick, he observed. That is from the cold, my lord, said Halen, a pallid man with soft, damp hands and an obsequious manner. He was dressed in striped black and scarlet robes trimmed with sable, but the fur looked more than a little patchy and moth-eaten. As it warms, the substance will flow more easily, like lamp oil. The substance was the pyromancer's own term for wildfire. They called each other wisdom as well, which Tyrion found almost as annoying as their custom of hinting at the vast secret stores of knowledge that they wanted him to think they possessed. Once theirs had been a powerful guild, but in recent centuries the maesters of the Citadel had supplanted the alchemists almost everywhere. Now only a few of the older order remained, and they no longer even pretended to transmute metals. But they could make wildfire. Water will not quench it, I am told. That is so. Once it takes fire, the substance will burn fiercely until it is no more. More it will seep into cloth, wood, leather, even steel, so they take fire as well. Tyrion remembered the red priest, Thoros of Myrrh, and his flaming sword. Even a thin coating of wildfire could burn for an hour. Thoris always needed a new sword after a melee, but Robert had been fond of the man and ever glad to provide one. Why doesn't it seep into the clay as well? Oh, but it does, said Halen. There is a vault below, this one, where we store the older pots. Those from King Aerys day, it was his fancy to have the jars made in the shapes of fruits. Very perilous fruits indeed, my lord hand, and, um, riper now than ever, if you take my meaning. We have sealed them with wax and pumped the lower vault full of water, but even so, by rights they ought to have been destroyed, but so many of our masters were murdered during the sack of King's Landing. The few acolytes who remained were unequal to the task and much of the stock we made for Ares was lost. Only last year two hundred jars were discovered in a storeroom beneath the great sept of Baylor. No one could recall how they came there, but I'm sure I do not need to tell you that the high septon was beside himself with terror. I myself saw that they were safely moved. I had a cart filled with sand and sent our most able acolytes. We worked only by night. We did a splendid job, I have no doubt. Tyrion placed the jar he had been holding back among its fellows. They covered the table, standing in orderly rows of four and marching away into the subterranean dimness. And there were other tables beyond, many other tables. These are fruits of the late King Ares. Can they still be used? Oh, yes, most certainly. 
but carefully, my lord, ever so carefully. As it ages, the substance grows even more, um, fickle, let us say. Any flame will set it to fire, any spark, too much heat, and jars will blaze up of their own accord. It is not wise to let them sit in sunlight, even for a short time. Once the fire begins within, the heat causes the substance to expand violently, and the jars shortly fly to pieces. If other jars should happen to be stored in the same vicinity, those go up as well. And so, how many jars do you have at present? This morning, the wisdom Munsiter told me that we had 7,840 that count includes 4,000 jars from King Ares Day, to be sure. Are over ripe fruits? Halen bobbed his head. Wisdom Meliard believes we shall be able to provide a full 10,000 jars, as was promised the Queen. I concur. The pyromancer looked indecently pleased with that prospect. Assuming our enemies give you the time. The pyromancers kept their recipe for wildfire a closely guarded secret, but Tyrion knew that it was a lengthy, dangerous, and time-consuming process. He had assumed the promise of ten thousand jars was a wild boast, like the bannerman who vows to marshal ten thousand swords for his lord and shows up on the day of battle with a hundred and two. If they can truly give us ten thousand, he did not know whether he ought to be delighted or terrified. Perhaps a smidgen of both. I trust that your guild brothers are not engaging in any unseemly haste, Wisdom. We do not want ten thousand jars of defective wildfire, not even one. And we most certainly do not want any mishaps. There will be no mishaps, my lord hand. The substance is prepared by trained acolytes in a series of bare stone cells, and each jar is removed by an apprentice and carried down here the instant it is ready. Above each work cell is a room filled entirely with sand. A protective spell has been laid on the floors most powerful. Any fire in the cell below causes the floors to fall away, and the sand smothers the blaze at once. Not to mention the careless accolade. By spell, Tyrion imagined Halen meant clever trick. He thought he would like to inspect one of these false ceiling cells to see how it worked. But this was not the time, perhaps when the war was won. My brethren are never careless, Halen insisted. If I may be, um, frank, oh, do. The substance flows through my veins and lives in the heart of every pyromancer. We respect its power. But the common soldier, um, the crew of one of the Queen's Spitfires, say, in an unthinking frenzy of battle, any little mistake can bring catastrophe. That cannot be said too often. My father often told King Ares as much as his father told old King Jeheres. They must have listened, Tyrion said. If they had burned the city down, someone would have told me. So your counsel is that we had best be careful. Be very careful, said Halen. Be very, very careful.
these clay jars, do you have an ample supply? We do, my lord, and thank you for asking. You won't mind if I take some, then? A few thousand? A few thousand? Or however many your guild can spare, without interfering with production? It's empty putts I'm asking for, understand? Have them sent round to the captains on each of the city gates. I will, my lord, but why? Tyrion smiled up at him. When you tell me to dress warmly, I dress warmly. When you tell me to be careful, well... He gave a shrug. I've seen enough. Perhaps you would be good enough to escort me back to my litter? It would be my great, um, pleasure, my lord. Halin lifted the lamp and led the way back to the stairs. It was good of you to visit us. A, a great honor. Mm. It has been too long since the king's hand graced us with his presence. Not since Lord Rosshart, and he was of our order. That was back in King Aerys' day. King Aerys took a great interest in our work. King Aerys used you to roast the flesh of his enemies. His brother Jamie had told him a few stories of the Mad King and his pet pyromancers. Joffrey will be interested as well, I have no doubt. Which is why I'd best keep him well away from you. It is our great hope to have the King visit our guild hall in his own royal person. I have spoken of it to your royal sister. A great feast. It was growing warmer as they climbed. His grace has prohibited all feasting until such time as the war is won. At my insistence, the king does not think it fitting to banquet on choice food while his people go without bread. A most mm, loving gesture, my lord. Perhaps instead some few of us might call upon the king at the Red Keep, a small demonstration of our powers, as it were, to distract his grace from his many cares for an evening. Wildfire is but one of the dread secrets of our ancient order. Many and wondrous are the things we might show you. I will take it up with my sister. Tyrion had no objection to a few magic tricks, but Joff's fondness for making men fight to the death was trial enough. He had no intention of allowing the boy to taste the possibilities of burning them alive. When at last they reached the top of the steps, Tyrion shrugged out of his shadow-skin fur and folded it over his arm. The guild hall of the alchemist was an imposing warren of black stone, but Halin led him through the twists and turns until they reached the gallery of the iron torches, a long, echoing chamber where the columns of green fire danced round black metal columns twenty feet tall. Ghostly flames shimmered off the polished black marble of the walls and floor, and bathed the hall in an emerald radiance. Tyrion would have been more impressed if he hadn't known that the great iron torches had only been lit this morning in honour of his visit and would be extinguished the instant the doors closed behind him. Wildfire was too costly to squander. They emerged atop the broad, curving steps that fronted on the Street of the Sisters near the foot of Visenya's Hill. He bid Halin farewell, and waddled down to where Timmit, son of Timmit, waited 
with an escort of burned men. Given his purpose today, it had seemed a singularly appropriate choice for his guard. Besides, their scars struck terror in the hearts of the city rabble. That was all to the good these days. Only three nights past, another mob had gathered at the gates of the Red Keep, chanting for food. Joff had unleashed a storm of arrows against them, slaying four, and then shouted down that they had his leave to eat their dead. Winning us still more, friends. Tyrion was surprised to see Bronn standing beside the litter as well. What are you doing here? Delivering your messages, Bronn said. Arnhand wants you urgently at the gate of the gods. He won't say why, and you've been summoned to Magor's too. Summoned? Tyrion knew of only one person who would presume to use that word. And what does Cersei want of me? Bronn shrugged. The Queen commands you to return to the castle at once, and attend her in her chambers. That stripling cousin of yours delivered the message. Four heirs on his lip, and he thinks he's a man. Four heirs and a knighthood. His Sir Lancel now never forget. Tyrion knew that Sir Jaslyn would not send for him unless the matter was of some import. I best see what Bywater wants. Inform my sister that I will attend her on my return. She won't like that, Bronn warned. Good. The longer Cersei waits, the angrier she'll become, and angry makes her stupid. I much prefer anger and stupid to composed and cunning. Tyrion tossed his folded cloak into the litter, and Timid helped him up after it. The market square inside the gate of the guards, which in normal times would have been thronged with farmers selling vegetables, was near deserted when Tyrion crossed it. Sir Jaslyn met him at the gate, and raised his iron hand in brusque salute. "'My lord, your cousin, Cleosfree, is here, come from Riveron, under a peace banner, with a letter from Rob Stark.' "'Peace terms?' "'So he says.' A sweet cousin, show me to him. The gold cloaks had confined Sir Cleos to a windowless guardroom in the gatehouse. He rose when they entered. Tyrion, you are most welcome sight. That's not something I hear often, cousin. Has Cersei come with you? My sister is otherwise occupied. Is this Stark's letter? He plucked it off the table. Sir Jaslyn, you may leave us. Bywater bowed and departed. I was asked to bring the offer to the Queen Regent, Sir Cleos said as the door shot. I shall. Tyrion glanced over the map that Rob Stark had sent with his letter. All in good time, cousin. Sit. Rest. You look gaunt and aggard. He looked worse than that, in truth. Yes, Sir Cleos lowered himself onto a bench. It is bad in the Riverlands, Tyrion. Around the God's Eye and along the King's Road especially. The river lords are burning their own crops to try and starve us, and your father's foragers are torching every village they take and putting the small folk to the sword. That was the way of war. The small folk were slaughtered, while the highborn were held for ransom. Remind me to thank the gods that I was born a Lannister. Sir Cleos ran a hand through his thin brown hair. Even with a peace banner we were attacked twice. Wolves in mail, hungry to savage anyone weaker than themselves. The gods alone know 
what side they started on, but they're on their own side now. Lost three men and twice as many wounded. What news of our foe? Tyrion turned his attention back to Stark's terms. The boy does not want too much, only half the realm. The release of our captives, hostages, his father's sword, oh, yes, and his sister's. The boy sits idle at River Run, Sir Clear said. I think he fears to face your father in the field. His strength grows less each day. The river lords have departed, each to defend his own lands. Is this what father intended? Tyrion rolled up Stark's map. These terms will never do. Will you at least consent to trade the Stark girls for Tiam and Willem? Sir Cleos asked plaintively. Tionfrey was his younger brother, Tyrion recalled. No, he said gently, but we'll propose our own exchange of captives. Let me consult with Cersei and the council. We shall send you back to River Run with our terms. Clearly the prospect did not cheer him. My lord, I do not believe Rob Stark will yield easily. It is Lady Catelyn who wants this peace, not the boy. Lady Catelyn wants her daughters. Tyrion pushed himself down from the bench, letter and map in hand. Sir Jaslyn will see that you have food and fire. You look in dire need of sleep, cousin. I will send for you when we know more. He found Sir Jaslyn on the ramparts, watching several hundred new recruits drilling in the field below. With so many seeking refuge in King's Landing, there was no lack of men willing to join the city watch for a full belly and a bed of straw in the barracks. But Tyrion had no illusions about how well these ragged defenders of theirs would fight if it came to battle. "'You did well to send for me,' Tyrion said. "'I shall leave Sir Cleos in your hands. He is to have every hospitality. And his escort?' the commander wanted to know. Give them food and clean garb, and find a maester to see to their hearts. They are not to set foot inside the city, is that understood? It would never do to have the truth of conditions in King's Landing reach Rob Stark in Riverrun. Well understood, my lord. Oh, and one more thing. The alchemists will be sending a large supply of clay pots to each of the city gates. You're to use them to train the men who will work your spitfires. Fill the pots with green paint and have them drill at loading and firing. Any man who sputters should be replaced. When they have mustered the paint pots, substitute lamp oil and have them work at lighting the jars and firing them while aflame. Once they learn to do that without burning themselves, they may be ready for wildfire. Sir Jaslyn scratched his cheek with his iron hand. Wise measures, though I have no love for that alchemist piss. Nor I, but I use what I'm given. Once back inside his litter, Tyrion Lannister drew the curtains and plumped a cushion under his elbow. Cersei would be displeased to learn that he had intercepted Stark's letter, but his father had sent him here to rule, not to please Cersei. It seemed to him that Rob Stark had given them a golden chance. Let the boy wait at River on, dreaming of an easy peace. Tyrion would reply with terms of his own. 
giving the king in the north just enough of what he wanted to keep him hopeful. Let Sir Cleos wear out his bony fray rump, riding to and fro with offers and counters. All the while their cousin, Sir Stafford, would be training and arming the new host he'd raised at Casterly Rock. Once he was ready, he and Lord Tywin could smash the Tullys and Starks between them. Now if only Robert's brothers would be so accommodating. Glacial as his progress was, still Renly Baratheon crept north and east with his huge southern host, and scarcely a night passed that Tyrion did not dread being awakened with the news that Lord Stannis was sailing his fleet up the Blackwater Rush. Well, it would seem I have a goodly stock of wildfire, but still... The sound of some hubbub in the street intruded on his worries. Tyrion peered out cautiously between the curtains. They were passing through Cobbler Square, where a sizable crowd had gathered beneath the leather awnings to listen to the rantings of a prophet. A robe of undyed wool belted with a hempen rope marked him for one of the begging brothers. Corruption! the man shouted shrilly. There is a warning! Behold the father scourge! He pointed at the fuzzy red wound in the sky. From this vantage, the distant castle on Aegon's high hill was directly behind him, with the comet hanging forebodingly over its towers. A clever choice of stage, Tyrion reflected. We have become swollen, bloated, foul, brother, couples with sister in the bed of kings, and the fruit of their incest keepers in his palace to the piping of a twisted little monkey demon. High-born ladies fornicate with fools and give birth to monsters. Even the High Septon has forgotten the gods he bathes in scented waters and grows fat on lark and lamprey while his people starve. Pride comes before prayer, maggots rule our castles, and gold is all, but no more. The rotten summer is at an end, and the whoremonger king is brought low. When the boar did open him, a great stench rose to heaven, and a thousand snakes slid forth from his belly, hissing and biting. He jabbed his bony finger back at Comet and Castle. There comes the harbinger. Cleanse yourselves. The gods cry out, lest ye be cleansed. Bathe in the wine of righteousness, or you will be bathed in fire. Fire! Fire! Other voices echoed, but the hoots of derision almost drowned them out. Tyrion took solace from that. He gave the command to continue, and the litter rocked like a ship on a rough sea as the burned men cleared a path. Twisted little monkey demon, indeed. The wretch did have a point about the high septum, to be sure. What was it that Moonboy had said of him the other day? A pious man who worships the seven so fervently that he eats a meal for each of them whenever he sits to table. The memory of the fool's jape made Tyrion smile. He was pleased to reach the Red Keep without further incident. As he climbed the steps to his chambers, Tyrion felt a deal more hopeful than he had at dawn. Time, that is all I truly need. Time to piece it all together. Once the chain is done...
he opened the door to his solar. Cersei turned away from the window, her skirts swirling around her slender hips. How dare you ignore my summons! Who admitted you to my tower? Your tower? This is my son's royal castle. So they tell me. Tyrion was not amused. Crawn would be even less so. His moon brothers had the guard today. I was about to come to you, as it happens. Were you? He swung the door shut behind him. You doubt me? Always? And with good reason? Oh, I'm hurt. Tyrion waddled to the sideboard for a cup of wine. He knew no surer way to work up a thirst than talking with Cersei. If I've given you offence, I would know how. What a disgusting little worm you are. Marcella is my only daughter. Did you truly imagine that I would allow you to sell her like a bag of oats? Marcella, he thought. Well, that egg has hatched. Let's see what colour the chick is. Hardly a bag of oats. Marcella is a princess. Some would say this is what she was born for. Or did you plan to marry her to Tommin? Her hand lashed out, knocking the wine cup from his hand to spill on the floor. Brother or no, I should have your tongue out for that. I am Joffrey's regent, not you. And I say that Marcella will not be shipped off to this Dornishman the way I was shipped off to Robert Baratheon. Tyrion shook the wine off his fingers and sighed. Why not? She'd be a deal safer in dawn than she is here. Are you utterly ignorant or simply perverse? You know as well as I that the Martells have no cause to love us. The Martells have every cause to hate us. Nonetheless, I expect them to agree. Prince Doran's grievance against House Lannister goes back only a generation, but the Dornishmen have warred against Storm's End and High Garden for a thousand years, and Renly has taken Dorn's allegiance for granted. Marcella is nine, Tristane Martell eleven. I have proposed they wed when she reaches her fourteenth year. Until such time she would be an honoured guest at Sunspear, under Prince Doran's protection. A hostage, Cersei said, mouth tightening. An honoured guest, Tyrion insisted. And I suspect Martell will treat Marcella more kindly than Joffrey has treated Sansa Stark. I had in mind to send Sir Aerys O'Cart with her. With the Knight of the King's Guard as her sworn shield, no one is like to forget who or what she is. Small good Sir Eris will do her if Doran Martell decides that my daughter's death would wash out his sister's. Martell is too honourable to murder a nine-year-old girl, particularly one as sweet and innocent as Marcella. So long as he holds her, he can be reasonably certain that we'll keep faith on our side, and the terms are too rich to refuse. Marcella is the least part of it. I've also offered him his sister's killer, a council seat, some castles on the marches. Too much. Cersei paced away from him, restless as a lioness, skirts swirling. You've offered too much, and without my authority or consent. This is the Prince of Dawn we are speaking of. If I'd offered less, he'd likely spit in my face. Too much, Cersei insisted, whirling back. What would you have offered him? That hole between your legs? Tyrion said, his own anger flaring. This time 
He saw the slap coming. His head snapped around with a crack. Sweet, sweet sister, he said. I promise you that was the last time you will ever strike me. His sister laughed. Don't threaten me, little man. Do you think father's letter keeps you safe? A piece of paper. Eddard Stark had a piece of paper, too, for all the good it did him. Eddard Stark did not have the city watch, Tyrion thought. Nor my clansmen, nor the sellswords that Brunn has hired. I do. Or so he hoped, trusting in Varys, in Sir Jaslyn Bywater, in Brunn. Lord Stark had probably had his delusions as well. Yet he said nothing. A wise man did not pour wildfire on a brazier. Instead, he poured a fresh cup of wine. How safe do you think Marcella will be if King's Landing falls? Renly and Stannis will mount her head beside yours. And Cersei began to cry. Tyrion Lannister could not have been more astonished if Aegon the Conqueror himself had burst into the room riding on a dragon and juggling lemon pies. He had not seen his sister weep since they were children together at Castley Rock. Awkwardly, he took a step toward her. When your sister cries, you were supposed to comfort her. But this was Cersei. He reached a tentative hand for her shoulder. Don't touch me, she said, wrenching away. It should not have hurt, yet it did, more than any slap. Red-faced, as angry as she was grief-stricken. Cersei struggled for breath. Don't look at me. Not... not like this. Not you. Politely, Tyrion turned his back. I did not mean to frighten you. I promise you, nothing will happen to Marcella. Liar, she said behind him. I'm not a child to be soothed with empty promises. You told me you would free Jamie, too. Well, where is he? In Riveran, I should imagine... Safe and under guard, until I find a way to free him. Cersei sniffed. I should have been born a man. I would have no need for any of you then. None of this would have been allowed to happen. How could Jamie let himself be captured by that boy? And father, I trusted in him, fool that I am. But where is he now, that he's wanted? What is he doing? Making war. From behind the walls of Harrenhal, she said scornfully. A curious way of fighting. It looks suspiciously like hiding. Look again. What else would you call it? Father sits in one castle and Rob Stark sits in another, and no one does anything? There is sitting, and there is sitting, Tyrion suggested. Each one waits for the other to move, but the lion is still poised, his tail twitching, while the fawn is frozen by fear. Bows turn to jelly. No matter which way he bounds, the lion will have him, and he knows it. And you're quite certain that father is the lion? Tyrion grinned. It's on all our banners. She ignored the jest. If it was father who had been taken captive, Jamie would not be sitting by idly, I promise you. Jamie would be battering his host to bloody bits against the walls of Riverrun, and the others take their chances. He never did have any patience, no more than you, sweet sister. Not all of us can be as bold as Jamie, but there are other ways to win wars. Aranhal is strong and well-situated. 
and King's Landing is not, as we both know perfectly well. While Father plays lion and fawn with the Stark boy, Renly marches up the Rose Road. He could be at our gates any day now. The city will not fall in a day. From Harrenhal, it is a straight, swift march down the King's Road. Renly will scarce have unlimbered his siege engines before Father takes him in the rear. His host will be the Ammer, the city walls the anvil. It makes a lovely picture. Cersei's green eyes bored into him, wary, yet hungry for the reassurance he was feeding her. And if Rob Stark marches? Arenal is close enough to the fords of the Trident, so that Roose Bolton cannot bring the northern foot across to join with the young wolf's horse. Stark cannot march on King's Landing without taking Harrenhal first, and even with Bolton, he is not strong enough to do that. Tyrion tried his most winning smile. Meanwhile, Father lives off the fat of the Riverlands, while our Uncle Stafford gathers fresh levies at the rock. Cersei regarded him suspiciously. How could you know all this? Did Father tell you his intentions when he sent you here? No. I glanced at a map. Her look turned to disdain. You've conjured up every word of this in that grotesque head of yours, haven't you, imp? Tyrion tisked. Sweet sister, I ask you, if we weren't winning, would the Starks have sued for peace? He drew out the letter that Sir Cleos Frey had brought. The young wolf has sent us terms, you see. Unacceptable terms, to be sure, but still a beginning. Would you care to see them? Yes. That fast she was all queen again. How do you come to have them? They should have come to me. What else is a hand for, if not to hand you things? Tyrion handed her the letter. His cheeks still throbbed, where Cersei's hand had left its mark. Let her flay half my face. It will be a small price to pay for her consent to the Dornish marriage. He would have that now. He could sense it. And certain knowledge of an informer, too. Well... That was the plum in his pudding. Bran Dancer was draped in bardings of snowy white wool emblazoned with the grey direwolf of House Stark, while Bran wore grey breeches and white doublet, his sleeves and colour trimmed with vair. Over his heart was the wolf's head brooch of silver and polished jet, he would sooner have had summer than a silver wolf on his breast, but Sir Roderick had been unyielding. The low stone steps balked Dancer only for a moment. When Bran urged her on, she took them easily. Beyond the wide oaken iron doors, eight long rows of trestle tables filled Winterfell's great hall, four on each side of the centre aisle. Men crowded shoulder to shoulder on the benches. "'Stark!' they called as Bran trotted past, rising to their feet. "'Winterfell! Winterfell!' He was old enough to know that it was not truly him they shouted for. It was the harvest they cheered. It was Rob and his victories. It was his lord father and his grandfather and all the Starks going back eight thousand years. 
Still, it made him swell with pride. For so long as it took him to ride the length of that hall, he forgot that he was broken. Yet when he reached the dais, with every eye upon him, Osher and Hodor undid his straps and buckles, lifted him off Dancer's back, and carried him to the high seat of his father's. Sir Roderick was seated to Bran's left, his daughter Beth beside him. Rickon was to his right, his mop of shaggy auburn hair grown so long that it brushed his ermine mantle. He had refused to let anyone cut it since their mother had gone. The last girl to try had been bitten for her efforts. "'I wanted to ride, too,' he said as Hodor led Dancer away. "'I ride better than you.' "'You don't, so hush up,' he told his brother. Sir Roderick bellowed for quiet. Bran raised his voice. He bid them welcome, in the name of his brother, the king in the north, and asked them to thank the gods, old and new, for Rob's victories and the bounty of the harvest. "'May there be a hundred more,' he finished, raising his father's silver goblet. "'A hundred more!' Pewter tankards, clay cups, and iron-banded drinking horns clashed together. Bran's wine was sweetened with honey and fragrant with cinnamon and cloves, but stronger than he was used to. He could feel its hot, snaky fingers wriggling through his chest as he swallowed. By the time he set down the goblet, his head was swimming. "'You did well, Bran,' Sir Roderick told him. "'Lord Edard would have been most proud.' Down the table, Maester Lewin nodded his agreement as the servers began to carry in the food. Such food Bran had never seen, course after course after course, so much that he could not manage more than a bite or two of each dish. There were great joints of oryx roasted with leeks, venison pies chunky with carrots, bacon, and mushrooms, mutton chops sourced in honey and cloves, savory duck peppered boar, goose, skewers of pigeon and capon, beef and barley stew, cold fruit soup. Lord Wyman had brought twenty casks of fish from White Harbour, packed in salt and seaweed, white fish and winkles, crabs and mussels, clams, heron, cod, salmon, lobster, and lampreys. There was black bread and honey cakes and oaten biscuits. There were turnips and peas and beets, beans and squash, and huge red onions. There were baked apples and berry tarts and pears poached in strong wine. Wheels of white cheese were set at every table, above and below the salt, and flagons of hot spice wine and chilled autumn ale were passed up and down the tables. Lord Wyman's musicians played bravely and well, but harp and fiddle and horn were soon drowned beneath a tide of talk and laughter, the clash of cup and plate, and the snarling of hounds fighting for table scraps. The singer sang good songs, iron lancers, and the burning of the ships, and the bear and the maiden fair, but only Hodor seemed to be listening. He stood beside the piper, hopping from one foot to the other. The noise swelled to a steady rumbling roar, a great heady stew of sound. Sir Roderick talked with Maester Lewin above Beth's curly head, while Rickon screamed happily at the Walders. Bran had not wanted the phrase at the high table, but the maester reminded him that they would soon be kin. 
Rob was to marry one of their aunts, and Arya one of their uncles. She never will, Bran said. Not Arya. But Maester Lewin was unyielding, so there they were beside Rickon. The serving men brought every dish to Bran first that he might take the Lord's portion if he chose. By the time they reached the ducks, he could eat no more. After that, he nodded approval at each course in turn and waved it away. If the dish smelt especially choice, he would send it to one of the lords on the dais, a gesture of friendship and favour that Maester Lewin told him he must make. He sent some salmon down to poor sad Lady Hornwood, the boar to the boisterous umbers, a dish of goose and berries to Clay Serwin, and a huge lobster to Joseph, the master of horse, who was neither lord nor guest, but had seen to dancers' training and made it possible for Bran to ride. He sent sweets to Hodor, an old nan as well, for no reason, but he loved them. Sir Roderick reminded him to send something to his foster brothers, so he sent little Walder some boiled beets and big Walder the buttered turnips. On the benches below, Winterfell men mixed with small folk from the winter town, friends from the nearer Holfast, and the escorts of their lordly guests. Some faces Bran had never seen before, others he knew as well as his own, yet they all seemed equally foreign to him. He watched them as from a distance, as if he still sat in the window of his bedchamber, looking down on the yard below, seeing everything, yet a part of nothing. Usher moved among the tables, pouring ale. One of Leobald Tallheart's men slid a hand up under her skirts, and she broke the flagon over his head to roars of laughter. Yet Micken had his hand down some woman's bodice, and she seemed not to mind. Bran watched Farden make his red bitch beg for bones, and smiled at old Nan plucking at the crust of a hot pie with wrinkled fingers. On the dais, Lord Wyman attacked a steaming plate of lampreys as if they were an enemy host. He was so fat that Sir Roderick had commanded that a special wide chair be built for him to sit in. But he laughed loud and often, and Bran thought he liked him. Poor one Lady Hornwood sat beside him, her face a stony mask, as she picked listlessly at her food. At the opposite end of the high table, Hawthorne and Moors were playing a drinking game, slamming their horns together as hard as knights meeting in just. It is too hot here, and too noisy, and they're all getting drunk. Bran itched under his grey and white woolens, and suddenly he wished he were anywhere but here. It is cool in the God's Wood now. Steam is rising off the hot pools, and the red leaves of the weirwood are rustling. The smells are richer than here, and before long the moon will rise, and my brother will sing to it. Bran, Sir Roderick said, you do not eat. The waking dream had been so vivid. For a moment Bran had not known where he was. I'll have more later, he said. My belly is full to bursting. The old knight's white moustache was pink with wine. You've done well, Bran. Here, and at the audiences, you will be an especially fine lord one day, I think. I want to be a knight. Bran took another sip 
of the spiced honey wine from his father's goblet, grateful for something to clutch. The lifelike head of a snarling direwolf was raised on the side of the cup. He felt the silver muzzle pressing against his palm, and remembered the last time he had seen his lord father drink from this goblet. It had been the night of the welcoming feast, when King Robert had brought his court to Winterfell. Summer still reigned then. His parents had shared the dais with Robert and his queen, with her brothers beside her. Uncle Benjamin had been there too, all in black. Bran and his brothers and sisters sat with the king's children, Joffrey and Tommen, and Princess Macella, who spent the whole meal gazing at Rob with adoring eyes. Arya made faces across the table when no one was looking. Sansa listened raptly, while the king's high harper sang songs of chivalry, and Rickon kept asking why John wasn't with them. "'Because he's a bastard,' Bran finally had to whisper to him. "'And now they are all gone.' It was as if some cruel god had reached down with a great hand and swept them all away, the girls to captivity, John to the wall, Rob and mother to war, King Robert and father to their graves, and perhaps Uncle Benjamin as well. Even down on the benches there were new men at the tables. Jory was dead, and Fat Tom, and Porther, Alan, Desmond, Holland, who had been master of horse, Harwin, his son, all those who had gone south with his father, even Septim Ordain and Vayan Pool. The rest had ridden to war with Rob, and might soon be dead as well, for all brand new. He liked Hayhead and Poxy Tim and Skittrick and the other new men well enough, but he missed his old friends. He looked up and down the benches at all their faces, happy and sad, and wondered who would be missing next year and the year after. He might have cried then, but he couldn't. He was the Stark in Winterfell, his father's son and his brother's heir, and almost a man grown. At the foot of the hall, the doors opened, and a gust of cold air made the torches flame brighter for an instant. Alebelly led two new guests into the feast. The Lady Mira of Halsweed, the rotund guardsman bellowed over the clamber, with her brother, Josian, a grey water watch. Men looked up from their cups and trenchers to eye the newcomers. Bran heard Little Walder mutter, Frog eaters! to Big Walder beside him. Sir Roderick climbed to his feet. Be welcome, friends, and uh, share this harvest with us. Serving men hurried to lengthen the tables on the dais, fetching trestles and chairs. Who are they? Rickon asked. Mudmen, answered Little Walder disdainfully. They're thieves and cravens, and they have green teeth from eating frogs. Maester Lewin crouched beside Bran's seat to whisper counsel in his ear. You must uh, greet these ones warmly. I had not thought to see them here, but uh, you know who they are. Bran nodded. Cranachmen, from the neck. Howland Reed was a great friend to your father, Sir Roderick told him. These two are his, it would seem. As the newcomers walked the length of the hall, Bran saw that one was indeed a girl, though he would never have known it from her dress. She wore lambskin breeches soft with long use, 
and a sleeveless jerkin armoured in bronze scales. Though near Rob's age, she was slim as a boy, with long brown hair knotted behind her head, and only the barest suggestion of breasts. A woven net hung from one slim hip, a long bronze knife from the other. Under her arm she carried an old iron great helm spotted with rust. A frog spear and round leathern shield were strapped to her back. Her brother was several years younger and bore no weapons. All his garb was green, even to the leather of his boots, and when he came closer, Bran saw that his eyes were the color of muffs, though his teeth looked as white as anyone else's. Both reeds were slighter build, slender as swords, and scarcely taller than Bran himself. They went to one knee before the dais. "'My lords of Stark,' the girl said, "'the years have passed in their hundreds and their thousands since my folk first swore their fealty to the king in the north. My lord father has sent us here to say the words again for all our people.' "'She is looking at me,' Bran realized. He had to make some answer. "'My brother Rob is fighting in the south,' he said, but you can say your words to me if you like. To Winterfell we pledge the faith of Greywater, they said together. Hearth and heart and harvest we yield up to you, my lord. Our swords and spears and arrows are yours to command. Grant mercy to our weak, help to our helpless, and justice to all, and we shall never fail you. I swear it by earth and water, said the boy in green. I swear it by bronze and iron, his sister said. We swear it by ice and fire, they finished together. Bran groped for words. Was he supposed to swear something back to them? Their oath was not one he had been taught. May your winters be short and your summers bountiful, he said. That was usually a good thing to say. Rise, I'm Brandon Stark. The girl, Mira, got to her feet and helped her brother up. The boy stared at Bran all the while. "'We bring you gifts of fish and frog and fowl,' he said. "'I thank you.' Bran wondered if he would have to eat a frog to be polite. "'I offer you the meat and mead of Winterfell.' He tried to recall all he had been taught of the Cranach men, who dwelt among the bugs of the Neck and seldom left their wetlands. They were a poor folk, fishers and frog-hunters, who lived in houses of thatch and woven reed on floating islands hidden in the deeps of the swamp. It was said that they were a cowardly people who fought with poison weapons and preferred to hide from their foes rather than face them in open battle. And yet Hal and Reed had been one of father's staunchest companions during the war for King Robert's crown, before Bran was born. The boy, Jojen, looked about the hall curiously as he took his seat. "'Where are the direwolves?' "'In the guard's wood,' Rickon answered. "'Shaggy was bad.' "'My brother would like to see them,' the girl said. Little Walder spoke up loudly. "'Ed, best watch they don't see him, or they'll take a bite out of him.' "'They won't bite if I'm here,' Bran was pleased that they wanted to see the wolves." Summer won't anyway, and he'll keep Shaggy Dog away. He was curious about these mudmen. He could not recall ever seeing one before. 
His father had sent letters to the Lord of Greywater over the years, but none of the Cranach men had ever called at Winterfell. He would have liked to talk to them more, but the great hall was so noisy that it was hard to hear anyone who wasn't right beside you. Sir Roderick was right beside Bran. Do they truly eat frogs? he asked the old knight. Aye, Sir Roderick said, frogs and fish and lizard lions and all manner of birds. Maybe they don't have sheep and cattle, Bran thought. He commanded the serving men to bring them mutton chops and a slice of the oryx and fill their trenches with beef and barley stew. They seemed to like that well enough. The girl caught him staring at her and smiled. Bran blushed and looked away. Much later, after all the sweets had been served and washed down with gallons of summer wine, the food was cleared and the tables shoved back against the walls to make room for the dancing. The music grew wilder, the drummers joined in, and Hatha Umber brought forth a huge curved war horn banded in silver. When the singer reached the part in The Night That Ended, where the Night's Watch rode forth to meet the others in the battle for the dawn, he blew a blast that set all the dogs to barking. Two Glover men began a spinning skirl on bladder and wood harp. Moore's Umber was the first on his feet. He seized a passing servant girl by the arm, knocking the flagon of wine out of her hands to shatter on the floor. Amidst the rushes and bones and bits of bread that littered the stone, he whirled her and spun her and tossed her in the air. The girl squealed with laughter and turned red as her skirt swirled and lifted. Others soon joined in. Hodor began to dance all by himself, while Lord Wyman asked little Beth Cassell to partner him. For all his size, he moved gracefully. When he tired, Clay Serwin danced with a child in his stead. Sir Roderick approached Lady Hornwood, but she made her excuses and took her leave. Bran watched long enough to be polite, and then had Hodor summoned. He was hot and tired, flushed from the wine, and the dancing made him sad. It was something else he could never do. I want to go. Hodor! Hodor shouted back, kneeling. Maester Lewin and Hayhead lifted him into his basket. The folk of Winterfell had seen this sight half a hundred times, but doubtless it looked queer to the guests, some of whom were more curious than polite. Bran felt the stairs. They went out the rear rather than walk the length of the hall, Bran ducking his head as they passed through the Lord's door. In the dim-lit gallery outside the great hall, they came upon Joseph, the master of horse, engaged in a different sort of riding. He had some woman Bran did not know shoved up against the wall, her skirts around her waist. She was giggling until Hodor stopped to watch. Then she screamed. Leave them be, Hodor, Bran had to tell him. Take me to my bedchamber. Hodor carried him up the winding steps to his tower and knelt beside one of the iron bars that Micken had driven into the wall. Bran used the bars to move himself to the bed, and Hodor pulled off his boots and breeches. You can go back to the feast now, but don't go bothering Joseph and that woman, Bran said. Hodor, Hodor replied, bobbing his head. When he blew out his bedside candle, darkness covered him like a soft, familiar blanket. 
the faint sound of music drifting through his shuttered window. Something his father had told him once, when he was little, came back to him suddenly. He had asked Lord Eddard if the King's Guard were truly the finest knights in the Seven Kingdoms. No longer, he answered, but once they were a marvel, a shining lesson to the world. Was there one who was best of all? The finest knight I ever saw was Sir Arthur Dane, who fought with a blade called Dawn, forged from the heart of a fallen star. They called him the Sword of the Morning, and he would have killed me but for Howland Reed. Father had gotten sad then, and he would say no more. Bran wished he had asked him what he meant. He went to sleep with his head full of knights in gleaming armor, fighting with swords that shone like star fire. But when the dream came, he was in the godswood again. The smells from the kitchen and the great hall were so strong that it was almost as if he had never left the feast. He prowled beneath the trees, his brother close behind him. This night was wildly alive, full of the howling of the man-pack at their play. The sounds made him restless. He wanted to run, to hunt. He wanted to... The rattle of iron made his ears prick up. His brother heard it too. They raced through the undergrowth toward the sound. Bounding across the still water at the foot of the old white one, he caught the scent of a stranger, the man-smell, well mixed with leather and earth and iron. The intruders had pushed a few yards into the wood when he came upon them, a female and a young male, with no taint of fear to them, even when he showed them the white of his teeth. His brother growled low in his throat, yet still they did not run. Here they come, the female said. Mira, some part of him whispered, some wisp of the sleeping boy lost in the wolf dream. Did you know they would be so big? They will be bigger still before they're grown, the young male said, watching them with eyes large, green, and unafraid. The black one is full of fear and rage, but the grey is strong, stronger than he knows. Can you feel him, sister? No, she said, moving a hand to the hilt of the long brown knife she wore. Go careful, Jojen. He won't hurt me. This is not the day I die. The male walked toward them, unafraid, and reached out for his muzzle a touch as light as a summer breeze. Yet at the brush of those fingers, the wood dissolved, and the very ground turned to smoke beneath his feet and swirled away laughing, and then he was spinning and falling, falling, falling. Catelyn as she slept amidst the rolling grasslands, Catelyn dreamt that Bran was whole again, that Arya and Sansa held hands, that Rickon was still a babe at her breast, Rob, crownless, played with a wooden sword, and when all were safe asleep, she found Ned in her bed, smiling. Sweet it was, sweet, and gone too soon. Dawn came cruel 
a dagger of light. She woke aching and alone and weary, weary of riding, weary of hurting, weary of duty. I want to weep, she thought. I want to be comforted, I'm so tired of being strong. I want to be foolish and frightened for once. Just for a small while, that's all. A day, an hour. Outside her tent, men were stirring. She heard the wicker of horses, Shad complaining of stiffness in his back, Sir Wendell calling for his bow. Catelyn wished they would all go away. They were good men, loyal, yet she was tired of them all. It was her children she yearned after. One day, she promised herself as she lay abed, one day she would allow herself to be less than strong. But not today. It could not be today. Her fingers seemed more clumsy than usual as she fumbled on her clothes. She supposed she ought to be grateful that she had any use of her hands at all. The dagger had been valerian steel, and valerian steel bites deep and sharp. She had only to look at the scars to remember. Outside, Shad was stirring oats into a kettle, while Sir Wendell Manderley sat stringing his bow. "'My lady,' he said, when Catelyn emerged, "'there are birds in this grass. Would you fancy a roast quail to break them fast this morning? Oats and bread are sufficient for all of us, I think. We have many leagues yet to ride, Sir Wendell.' "'As you will, my lady.' The knight's moon-face looked crestfallen, the tips of his great walrus moustache twitching with disappointment. "'Oats and bread! <laughs> what could be better?' He was one of the fattest men Catelyn had ever known. But however much he loved his food, he loved his honour more. "'I found some nettles and brewed a tea,' Shad announced. "'Will my lady take a cup?' "'Yes, with thanks.' She cradled the tea in her scarred hands and blew on it to cool it. Shad was one of the Winterfell men. Robert sent twenty of his best to see her safely to Renly. He had sent five lordlings as well, whose names and high birth would add weight and honour to her mission. As they made their way south, staying well clear of towns and holdfasts, they had seen bands of mailed men more than once, and glimpsed smoke on the eastern horizon but none had dared molest them. They were too weak to be a threat, too many to be easy prey. Once across the Blackwater, the worst was behind. For the past four days, they had seen no signs of war. Catelyn had never wanted this. She told Rob as much back in Riveron. When last I saw Renly, he was a boy no older than Bran. I do not know him. Send someone else. My place is here with my father— for whatever time he has left. Her son had looked at her unhappily. There is no one else. I cannot go myself. Your father's too ill. The blackfish is my eyes and ears. I dare not lose him. Your brother I need to hold River Run when we march. March? No one had said a word to her of marching. I cannot sit at River Run waiting for peace. It makes me look as if I were afraid to take the field again. When there are no battles to fight, men start to think of hearth and harvest. Father told me that. Even my Norsemen grow restless. My Norsemen, she thought. He's even starting 
to talk like a king. No one has ever died of restlessness, but rashness is another matter. We've planted seeds, let them grow. Rob shook his head stubbornly. We've tossed some seed into the wind, that's all. If your sister Lysa was coming to aid us, we would have heard by now. How many birds have we sent to the Erie? Four? I want peace, too. But why should the Lannisters give me anything if all I do is sit here while my army melts away around me as swift as summer snow? So, rather than look craven, you will dance to Lord Tywin's pipes, she threw back. He wants you to march on Harrenhal. Ask your Uncle Brynden if— I said nothing of Harrenhal, Rob said. Now will you go to Renly for me, or must I send the great John? The memory brought a wan smile to her face. Such an obvious ploy, that, yet deft for a boy of fifteen. Rob knew how ill-suited a man like great John Umber would be to treat with a man like Renly Baratheon, and he knew that she knew it as well. What could she do but accede, praying that her father would live until her return? Had Lord Huster been well, he would have gone himself, she knew. Still, that leave-taking was hard. Hard. He did not even know her when she came to say farewell. Minissa, he called her, where are the children? Uh, my little cat, my sweet Lysa. Catelyn had kissed him on the brow and told him that his babes were well. Wait for me, my lord, she said as his eyes closed. I waited for you, oh, so many times. Now you must wait for me. Fate drives me south and south again, Catelyn thought, as she sipped the astringent tea. When it is north, I should be going north to home. She had written to Bran and Rickon that last night at Riveron. I do not forget you, my sweet ones, you must believe that. It is only that your brother needs me more. We ought to reach the upper mander today, my lady, Sir Wendell announced while Shad spooned out the porridge. Lord Rinley will not be far, if the talk be true. And what do I tell him when I find him? That my son holds him no true king? She did not relish this meeting. They needed friends, not more enemies. Yet Rob would never bend the knee in homage to a man he felt had no claim to the throne. Her bowl was empty, though she could scarce remember tasting the porridge. She laid it aside. It is time we were away. The sooner she spoke to Renly, the sooner she could turn for home. She was the first one mounted, and she set the pace for the column. Hal Mullen rode beside her, bearing the banner of House Stark, the grey direwolf, on an ice-white field. They were still a half-day's ride from Renly's camp when they were taken. Robin Flint had ranged ahead to scout, and he came galloping back with a word of a far eyes watching from the roof of a distant windmill. By the time Catelyn's party reached the mill, the man was long gone. They pressed on, covering not quite a mile before Renly's outriders came swooping down on them. Twenty men, mailed and mounted, led by a grizzled grey beard of a knight, 
with blue jays on his surcoat. When he saw her banners, he trotted up to her alone. My lady, he called, I am Sir Carolyn of Greenpools, as it please you. These are dangerous lands you cross. Our business is urgent, she answered him. I come as envoy for my son Rob Stark, the king in the north, to treat with Renly Baratheon, the king in the south. King Renly is the crowned and anointed lord of all the seven kingdoms, my lady. Sir Colin answered, though courteously enough. His grace is encamped with his host near Bitterbridge, where the Rose Road crosses the Manda. It shall be my great honour to escort you to him. The knight raised a mailed hand, and his men formed a double column flanking Catelyn and her guard. Escort or captor, she wondered. There was nothing to be done but trust in Sir Colin's honour and Lord Renly's. They saw the smoke of the camp's fires when they were still an hour from the river. Then the sun came drifting across farm and field and rolling plain, indistinct as the murmur of some distant sea, but swelling as they rode closer. By the time they caught sight of the Manda's muddy waters glinting in the sun, they could make out the voices of men, the clatter of steel, the whinny of horses. Yet neither sun nor smoke prepared them for the host itself. Thousands of cook-fires filled the air with a pale, smoky haze. The horse-lines alone stretched out over leagues. A forest had surely been felled to make the tall staffs that held the banners. Great siege-engines lined the grassy verge of the rose-road. Mangonels and trebuchets and rolling rams mounted on wheels taller than a man on horseback. The steel points of pikes flamed red with sunlight, as if already blooded, while the pavilions of the knights and high lords sprouted from the grass like silken mushrooms. She saw men with spears and men with swords, men in steel caps and mail shirts, camp followers strutting their charms, archers fletching arrows, teamsters driving wagons, swineherds driving pigs, pages running messages, squires honing swords, knights riding palfreys, grooms leading ill-tempered destrias. "'This is a fearsome lot of men,' Sir Wendell Mandley observed, as they crossed the ancient stone span from which Bitterbridge took its name. "'That it is,' Catelyn agreed. Near all the chivalry of the South had come to Renly's call, it seemed. The golden rows of High Garden were seen everywhere, sown on the right breast of armsmen and servants, flapping and fluttering from the green silk banners that adorned lance and pike, painted upon the shields hung outside the pavilions of the sons and brothers and cousins and uncles of the house Tyrell. As well, Catelyn spied the fox and flowers of House Florent, fossilway apples red and green, Lord Tarley's striding huntsman, oak leaves for oak art, Cranes for crane, a cloud of black and orange butterflies for the Mullendores. Across the Mander, the Storm Lords had raised their standards. Renly's own bannermen, sworn to House Baratheon and Storm's End. Catelyn recognized Bryce Caron's nightingales, the Penrose quills, Lord Esterman's sea turtle, green on green. 
Yet for every shield she knew, there were a dozen strange to her, borne by the small lords sworn to the bannermen, and by hedge knights and free riders who had come swarming to make Renly Baratheon a king in fact as well as name. Renly's own standard flew high over all. From the top of his tallest siege tower, a wheeled oaken immensity covered with raw hides, streamed the largest war banner that Catelyn had ever seen, a cloth big enough to carpet many a hall, shimmering gold with a crown stag of Baratheon black upon it, prancing proud and tall. "'My lady, do you hear that noise?' asked Alice Mullen, trotting close. "'What is that?' She listened, shouts and horses screaming and the clash of steel and— "'Cheering!' she said. They had been riding up a gentle slope toward a line of brightly coloured pavilions on the height. As they passed between them, the press of men grew thicker, the sounds louder, and then she saw. Below, beneath the stone and timber battlements of a small castle, a melee was in progress. A field had been cleared off, fences and galleries and tilting barriers thrown up. Hundreds were gathered to watch, perhaps thousands. From the look of the grounds, torn and muddy and littered with bits of dinted armour and broken lances, they had been at it for a day or more, but now the end was near. Fewer than a score of knights remained a horse, charging and slashing at each other as watchers and fallen combatants cheered them on. She saw two destriers collide in full armour, going down in a tangle of steel and horseflesh. A tawny, Hal Mullen declared. He had a penchant for loudly announcing the obvious. Oh, splendid! Sir Wendell Mandley said, as a knight in a rainbow-striped cloak wheeled to deliver a backhand blow with a long-handled axe that shattered the shield of the man pursuing him and sent him reeling in his stirrups. The press in front of them made further progress difficult. Lady Stark, Sir Colin said, if your men would be so good as to wait here, I'll present you to the king. As you say, she gave the command, though she had to raise her voice to be heard above the tawny din. Sir Colin walked his horse slowly through the throngs with Catelyn riding in his wake. A roar went up from the crowd as a helmetless, red-bearded man with a griffin on his shield went down before a big knight in blue armour. His steel was a deep cobalt. Even the blunt morning star he wielded with such deadly effect, his mount barded in the courted sun and moon heraldry of the house Tarth. Red runnets down! Guards be damned! a man cursed. Laura shall do for that blue! a companion answered before a roar drowned out the rest of his words. Another man was fallen, trapped beneath his injured horse, both of them screaming in pain. Squires rushed out to aid them. This is madness, Catelyn thought. Real enemies on every side, and half the realm in flames, and Renly sits here, playing at war, like a boy, with his first wooden sword. The lords and ladies in the gallery were as engrossed in the melee as the men on the ground. Catelyn marked them well. Her father had oft treated with the southern lords, and not a few had been guests at River Run. She recognized Lord Mathis Rowan, stouter and more florid than ever, 
the golden tree of his house spread across his white doublet. Below him sat Lady Oakheart, tiny and delicate, and to her left Lord Randall Tarley of Horn Hill, his great sword, heartsbane, propped up against the back of his seat. Others she knew only by their sigils, and some not at all. In their midst, watching and laughing with his young queen by his side, sat a ghost in a golden crown. Small wonder the lords gather around him with such fervour, she thought. He is Robert come again. Renly was handsome, as Robert had been handsome, long of limb and broad of shoulder, with the same coal-black hair, fine and straight, the same deep blue eyes, the same easy smile. The slender circlet around his brows seemed to suit him well. It was soft gold, a ring of roses exquisitely wrought. At the front lifted a stag's head of dark green jade, adorned with golden eyes and golden antlers. The crown stag decorated the king's green velvet tunic as well, worked in gold thread upon his chest, the Baratheon sigil in the colors of High Garden. The girl who shared the high seat with him was also of High Garden, his young queen, Marjorie, daughter of Lord Mace Tyrell. Their marriage was the mortar that held the great Southern alliance together, Catelyn knew. Renly was one and twenty, the girl no older than Rob, very pretty, with a doe's soft eyes and a mane of curling brown hair that fell about her shoulders in lazy ringlets. Her smile was shy and sweet. Out in the field another man lost his seat to the knight in the rainbow-striped cloak, and the king shouted approval with the rest. Loris! she heard him call. Loris! High garden! The queen clapped her hands together in excitement. Catelyn turned to see the end of it. Only four men were left in the fight now, and there was small doubt whom king and commons favoured. She had never met Sir Loras Tyrell, but even in the distant north one heard tales of the prowess of the young knight of flowers. Sir Loras rode a tall white stallion in silver mail and fought with a long-handled axe. A crest of golden roses ran down the centre of his helm. Two of the other survivors had made common cause. They spurred their mounts toward the knight in the cobalt armour. As they closed to either side, the blue knight rained hard, smashing one man full in the face with his splintered shield, while his black destrier lashed out with a steel-shod hoof at the other. In a blink, one combatant was unhorsed, the other reeling. The blue knight let his broken shield drop to the ground to free his left arm, and then the knight of flowers was on him. The weight of his steel seemed to hardly diminish the grace and quickness with which Sir Loris moved, his rainbow cloak swirling about him. The white horse and the black one wheeled like lovers and a harvest dance, the riders throwing steel in place of kisses. Long axe flashed and morning star whirled. Both weapons were blunted, yet still they raised an awful clangor. Shieldless, the blue knight was getting much the worst of it. Sir Loris rained on blows in his head and shoulders, to shouts of High Garden from the throng. The other gave answer with his morning star, but whenever the ball came crashing in, 
Sir Loras interposed his battered green shield emblazoned with three golden roses. When the long axe caught the blue knight's hand on the backswing and sent the morning star flying from his grasp, the crowd screamed like a rutting beast. The knight of flowers raised his axe for the final blow. The blue knight charged into it. The stallion slammed together. The blunted axe head smashed against the scarred blue breastplate. But somehow the blue knight had the haft locked between still gauntleted fingers. He wrenched it from Sir Loris's hand, and suddenly the two were grappling mount to mount, and an instant later they were falling. As their horses pulled apart, they crashed to the ground with bone-jarring force. Loris Tyrell on the bottom took the brunt of the impact. The blue knight pulled a long dirk free and flicked open Tyrell's visor. The roar of the crowd was too loud for Catelyn to hear what Sir Loris said, but she saw the word form on his split, bloody lips. Yield. The blue knight climbed unsteadily to his feet and raised his dirk in the direction of Renly Baratheon, the salute of a champion to his king. Squires dashed onto the field to help the vanquished knight to his feet. When they got his helm off, Catelyn was startled to see how young he was. He could not have had more than two years on Rob. The boy might have been as comely as his sister, but the broken lip, unfocused eyes, and blood trickling through his matted hair made it hard to be certain. Approach, King Renly called to the champion. He limped towards the gallery. At close hand, the brilliant blue armour looked rather less splendid. Everywhere it showed scars, the dents of mace and warhammer, the long gouges left by swords, chips in the enamel breastplate and helm. His cloak hung in rags. From the way he moved, the man within was no less battered. A few voices hailed him with cries of, Tarth! and oddly, A beauty! A beauty! But most were silent. The blue knight knelt before the king. Grace, he said, his voice muffled by his dented great helm. You are all your lord father claimed you were, Renly's voice carried over the field. I've seen Sir Loris unhorsed once or twice, but never quite in that fashion. There were no proper unhorsing, complained a drunken archer nearby, a Tyrell rose sewn on his jerkin, a vile trick pulling the lad down. The press had begun to open up. Sir Colin, Catelyn said to her escort, who is this man, and why do they mislike him so? Sir Colin frowned. Eh, because he is no man, my lady. That's Brian of Tarth, daughter to Lord Selwyn the Avonstar. Daughter? Catelyn was horrified. Brian the Beauty, they name her. They're not her face lest they be called upon to defend those words with their bodies. She heard King Renly declare the Lady Brian of Tarth, the victor of the great melee at Bitterbridge, last mounted of one hundred sixteen knights. As champion, you may ask of me any boon that you desire. If it lies in my power, it is yours. Your grace, Brian answered, I ask the honour of a place among your rainbow guard. I would be one of your seven, 
and pledge my life to yours to go where you go, ride at your side, and keep you safe from all hurt and harm. Done, he said. Rise, and remove your helm. She did as he bid her, and when the great helm was lifted, Catelyn understood Sir Colin's words. Beauty, they called her, mocking. The hair beneath the visor was a squirrel's nest of dirty straw, and her face, Brian's eyes were large and very blue, a young girl's eyes, trusting and guileless, but the rest, her features were broad and coarse, her teeth prominent and crooked, her mouth too wide, her lips so plump they seemed swollen. A thousand freckles speckled her cheeks and brow, and her nose had been broken more than once. Pity filled Catelyn's heart. Is there any creature on earth as unfortunate as an ugly woman? And yet, when Renly cut away her torn cloak and fastened a rainbow in its place, Brian of Tarth did not look unfortunate. A smile lit up her face, and her voice was strong and proud as she said, My life for yours, your grace. From this day on, I am your shield. I swear it by the old gods and the new. The way she looked at the king, looked down at him, she was a good hand higher, though Renly was near as tall as his brother had been, was painful to see. Your grace! Sir Colin of Greenpools swung down off his horse to approach the gallery. I beg your leave, he went to one knee. I have the honour to bring you the Lady Catelyn Stark, sent as an envoy by her son Rob, Lord of Winterfell. Lord of Winterfell and King in the North, sir, Catelyn corrected him. She dismounted and moved to Sir Colin's side. King Renly looked surprised. Lady Catelyn, we are most pleased. He turned to his young queen. Marjorie, my sweet, this is the Lady Catelyn Stark of Winterfell. You are most welcome here, Lady Stark, the girl said, all soft courtesy. I am sorry for your loss. You are kind, said Catelyn. My lady, I swear to you, I will see that the Lannisters answer for your husband's murder, the king declared. When I take King's Landing, I'll send you Cersei's head. And will that bring my Ned back to me, she thought? It will be enough to know that justice has been done, my lord. Your grace, Brian the Blue corrected sharply, and you should kneel when you approach the king. The distance between a lord and a grace is a small one, my lady, Catelyn said. Lord Renly wears a crown, as does my son. If you wish, we may stand here in the mud and debate what honours and titles are rightly due to each, but it strikes me that we have more pressing matters to consider. Some of Renly's lords bristled at that, but the king only laughed. Well said, my lady. There will be time enough for graces when these wars are done. Tell me, when does your son mean to march against Harrenhal? Until she knew whether this king was friend or foe, Catelyn was not about to reveal the least part of Rob's dispositions. I do not sit on my son's war councils, my lord. So long as he leaves a few Lannisters for me, I'll not complain. What has he done with the Kingslayer? Jamie Lannister is held prisoner at River Run. Is she alive? Lord Mathis Rowan seemed dismayed. 
Bemused Renly said, It would seem the dire wolf is gentler than the lion. Gentler than the Lannisters, murmured Lady Oakhart with a bitter smile, is drier than the sea. I call it weak. Lord Randall Tarley had a short, bristly grey beard and a reputation for blunt speech. No disrespect to you, Lady Stark, but it would have been more seemly had Lord Rub come to pay homage to the king himself, rather than hiding behind his mother's skirts. King Rob is warring, my lord, Catelyn replied with icy courtesy, not playing at tawny. Renly grinned. Go softly, Lord Randall. I fear you're overmatched. He summoned a steward in the livery of Storm's End. Find a place for the ladies' companions, and see they have every comfort. Lady Catelyn shall have my own pavilion. Since Lord Caswell has been so kind as to give me use of his castle, I have no need of it. My lady, when you are rested, I would be honoured if you would share our meat and mead at the feast Lord Caswell is giving us tonight. A farewell feast. I fear his lordship is eager to see the heels of my hungry horde. Oh, not true, your grace, protested a wispy young man who must have been Caswell. What's mine is yours. Whenever someone said that to my brother Robert, he took them at their word, Renly said. Do you have daughters? Yes, your grace, two. Then thank the gods I'm not Robert. My sweet queen is all the woman I desire. Renly held out his hand to help Marjorie to her feet. We'll talk again when you've had a chance to refresh yourself, Lady Catelyn. Renly led his bride back toward the castle, while his steward conducted Catelyn to the king's green silk pavilion. If you have need of anything, you've only asked, my lady. Catelyn could scarcely imagine what she might need that had not already been provided. The pavilion was larger than the common rooms of many an inn, and furnished with every comfort. Feather mattress and sleeping furs, a wooden copper tub large enough for two, braziers to keep off the night's chill, slung leather camp chairs, a writing table with quills and inkpot, bowls of peaches, plums and pears, a flagon of wine with a set of matched silver cups, cedar chests packed full of Renly's clothing, books, maps, game boards, a high harp, a tall bow and a quiver of arrows, a pair of red-tailed hunting hawks, a veritable armory of fine weapons. He does not stint himself, this Renly, she thought, as she looked about. Small wonder this host moves so slowly. Beside the entrance, the king's armor stood sentry. A suit of forest green plate, its fittings chased with gold, the helm crowned by a great rack of golden antlers. The steel was polished to such a high sheen that she could see her reflection in the breastplate, gazing back at her as if from the bottom of a deep green pond. The face of a drowned woman, Catelyn thought. Can you drown in grief? She turned away sharply, angry with her own frailty. She had no time for the luxury of self-pity. She must wash the dust from her hair and change into a gown more fitting for a king's feast. Sir Wendell Manderley, Lucas Blackwood, Sir Perwin Frey, and the rest of her high-born companions accompanied her to the castle. The great hall of Lord Caswell's keep was great only by courtesy. Yet room was found on the crowded benches for Catelyn's men, 
admits Renly's own knights. Catelyn was assigned a place on the dais between red-faced Lord Mathis Rowan and genial Sir John Fossaway, of the Green Apple Fossaways. Sir John made jests while Lord Mathis inquired politely after the health of her father, brother, and children. Brian of Tarth had been seated at the far end of the high table. She did not gown herself as a lady, but chose a knight's finery instead, a velvet doublet quartered rose and azure, breeches and boots, and a fine tall sword belt, her new rainbow cloak flowing down her back. No garb could disguise her plainness, though. The huge freckled hands, the wide flat face, the thrust of her teeth. Out of armor her body seemed ungainly, broad of hip and thick of limb, with hunched muscular shoulders but no bosom to speak of and it was clear from her every action that Brian knew it, and suffered for it. She spoke only in answer, and seldom lifted her gaze from her food. Of food there was plenty. The war had not touched the fabled bounty of High Garden. While singers sang and tumblers tumbled, they began with pears poached in wine— and went on to little savoury fish rolled in salt and cooked crisp, and capons stuffed with onions and mushrooms. There were great loaves of brown bread, mounds of turnips and sweet corn and peas, immense hams and roast geese, and trenchers dripping full of venison stewed with beer and barley. For the sweet, Lord Caswell's servants brought down trays of pastries from his castle kitchens. Cream swans, and spun sugar unicorns, lemon cakes in the shape of roses, spiced honey biscuits and blackberry tarts, apple crisps, and wheels of buttery cheese. The rich foods made Catelyn queasy, but it would never do to show frailty when so much depended on her strength. She ate sparingly while she watched this man who would be king. Renly sat with his young bride on his left hand and her brother on the right. Apart from the white linen bandage around his brow, Sir Loras seemed none the worse for the day's misadventures. He was indeed as comely as Catelyn had suspected he might be. When not glazed, his eyes were lively and intelligent, his hair an artless tumble of brown locks that many a maid might have envied. He had replaced his tattered tawny cloak with a new one, the same brilliantly striped silk of Renly's rainbow guard, clasped with the golden rose of Highgarden. From time to time, King Renly would feed Marjorie with some choice morsel off the point of his dagger, or lean over to plant the lightest of kisses on her cheek. But it was Sir Loris who shared most of his jests and confidences. The king enjoyed his food and drink, that was plain to see, yet he seemed neither glutton nor drunken. He laughed often and well, and spoke amiably to high-born lords and lowly serving wenches alike. Some of his guests were less moderate. They drank too much and boasted too loudly to her mind. Lord Willemsons, Joshua and Elias, disputed heatedly about who would be the first over the walls of King's Landing. Lord Varner dandled a serving girl in his lap, nuzzling at her neck, while one hand went exploring down her bodice. Guyard the Green, who fancied himself a singer, diddled a harp, and gave them a verse about tying lions' tails in knots, 
parts of which rhymed. Sir Mark Mullendore brought a black-and-white monkey and fed him morsels from his own plate, while Sir Tanton, of the red apple fossaways, climbed on the table and swore to slay Sander Clegane in single combat. The vow might have been taken more solemnly if Sir Tanton had not had one foot in the gravy boat when he made it. The height of folly was reached when a plump fool came capering out in gold-painted tin with a cloth lion's head and chased a dwarf around the tables, whacking him over the head with a bladder. Finally, King Renly demanded to know why he was beating his brother. "'Why, your grace, I'm the kin-slayer,' the fool said. "'It's king-slayer, fool of a fool,' Renly said, and the hall rang with laughter. Lord Rowan, beside her, did not join the merriment. "'They are all so young,' he said. It was true. The Knight of Flowers could not have reached his second name-day when Robert slew Prince Rhaegar on the Trident. Few of the others were very much older. They had been babes during the sack of King's Landing, and no more than boys when Balin Greyjoy raised the Iron Islands in rebellion. They are still unblooded, Catelyn thought, as she watched Lord Bryce go Sir Robar into juggling a brace of daggers. It's all a game to them still, a tawny writ large, and all they see is the chance for glory and honour and spoils. They are boys, drunk on song and story, and like all boys, they think themselves immortal. War will make them old, Catelyn said, as it did us. She had been a girl when Robert and Ned and John Aaron raised their banners against Ares Targaryen, a woman by the time the fighting was done. I pity them. Why? Lord Rowan asked her. Look at them. They're young and strong, full of life and laughter, and lust, I more lust than they know what to do with. There will be many a bastard bred this night, I promise you. Why pity? Because it will not last, Catelyn answered sadly. Because they are the knights of summer, and winter is coming. Lady Catelyn, you are wrong. Brian regarded her with eyes as blue as her armour. Winter will never come for the likes of us. Should we die in battle, they will surely sing of us, and it's always summer in the songs. In the songs all knights are gallant, all maids are beautiful, and the sun is always shining. Winter comes for all of us, Catelyn thought. For me, it came when Ned died. It will come for you too, child, and sooner than you like. She did not have the heart to say it. The king saved her. Lady Catelyn, Renly called on, I feel the need of some air. Will you walk with me? Catelyn stood at once. I shall be honoured. Brian was on her feet as well. Your grace, give me but a moment to dun my mail. You should not be without protection. King Renly smiled. If I am not safe in the heart of Lord Caswell's castle, with my own host around me, one sword will make no matter, not even your sword, Brian. Sit and eat. If I have need of you, I'll send for you. His words seemed to strike the girl harder than any blow she had taken that afternoon. As you will, your grace. Brian sat, eyes downcast. 
Renly took Catelyn's arm and led her from the hall, past a slouching guardsman, who straightened so hurriedly that he near dropped his spear. Renly clapped the man on the shoulder and made a jest of it. This way, my lady. The king took her through a low door into a stair tower. As they started up, he said, But chance is Sir Barristan Selmy with your son at Riveron? No, she answered, puzzled. Is he no longer with Joffrey? He was the Lord Commander of the King's Guard. Renly shook his head. The Lannisters told him he was too old, and gave his cloak to the Hound. I'm told he left King's Landing, vowing to take up service with the true king. That cloak Brian claimed today was the one I was keeping for Selmy, in hopes that he might offer me his sword. When he did not turn up at Eyegarten, I thought perhaps he had gone to Riveron instead. We have not seen him. He was old, yes, but a good man still. Hope he has not come to harm. The Lannisters are great fools. They climbed a few more steps. On the night of Robert's death, I offered your husband a hundred swords and urged him to take Joffrey into his power. Had he listened, he would be regent today, and there would have been no need for me to claim the throne. Ned refused you. She did not have to be told. He had sworn to protect Robert's children, Renly said. I lacked the strength to act alone, so when Lord Eddard turned me away, I had no choice but to flee. Had I stayed, I knew the Queen would see to it that I did not long outlive my brother. Had you stayed and lent your support to Ned, he might still be alive, Catelyn thought bitterly. I liked your husband well enough, my lady. He was a loyal friend to Robert, I know. But he would not listen, and he would not bend. Here, I wish to show you something. They had reached the top of the stairwell. Renly pushed open a wooden door, and they stepped out onto the roof. Lord Caswell's keep was scarcely tall enough to call a tower, but the country was low and flat, and Catelyn could see for leagues in all directions. Wherever she looked, she saw fires. They covered the earth like fallen stars, and like the stars, there was no end to them. "'Count them, if you like, my lady,' Renly said quietly. "'You will still be counting when dawn breaks in the east. "'How many fires burn around Riveron tonight, I wonder?' Catelyn could hear faint music drifting from the great hall, seeping out into the night. She dare not count the stars. "'I'm told your son crossed the neck with twenty thousand swords at his back,' Renly went on. Now that the lords of the Trident are with him, perhaps he commands forty thousand. No, she thought, not near so many. We have lost men in battle, and others to the harvest. I've twice that number here, Renly said, and this is only part of my strength. Mace Tyrell remains at Highgarden with another ten thousand. I have a strong garrison holding Storm's End, and soon enough the Dornishmen will join me with all their power. And never forget my brother Stannis, who holds Dragonstone and commands the lords of the Narrow Sea. It would seem that you are the one who has forgotten Stannis, Catelyn said, more sharply than she intended. His claim, you mean? Renly laughed. <laughs> ah, let's be blunt, my lady. Stannis would make an appalling king. Nor is he like to become one. 
Men respect Stannis, even fear him, but precious few have ever loved him. He is still your elder brother. If either of you can be said to have a right to the Iron Throne, it must be Lord Stannis. Renly shrugged. Tell me, what right did my brother Robert ever have to the Iron Throne? He did not wait for an answer. Oh, there was talk of the blood ties between Baratheon and Targaryen, of weddings hundred years past, of second sons and elder daughters. No one but the maesters cared about any of it. Robert won the throne with his war hammer. He swept a hand across the campfires that burned from horizon to horizon. Well, there is my claim. As good as Robert's ever was. If your son supports me, as his father supported Robert, he'll not find me ungenerous. I will gladly confirm him in all his lands, titles, and honours. He can rule in Winterfell as he pleases. He can even go on calling himself King in the North if he likes, so long as he bends the knee and does me homage as his overlord. King is only a word, but fealty, loyalty, service, those I must have. And if he will not give them to you, my lord? I mean to be king, my lady, and not of a broken kingdom. I cannot say it plainer than that. Three hundred years ago, a stark king knelt to Aegon the dragon when he saw he could not hope to prevail. That was wisdom. Your son must be wise as well. Once he joins me, this war is good as done. We— Renly broke off suddenly, distracted. What's this now? The rattle of chains heralded the raising of the portcullis. Down in the yard below, a rider in a winged helm urged his well-lathered horse under the spikes. Summon the king! he called. Renly vaulted up into a crenel. I'm here, sir. Your grace! The rider spurred his mount closer. I came as swift as I could from Storm's End. We are besieged, Your Grace. So Courtenay defies them, but... But? That's not possible. I would have been told if Lord Tywin left Arendelle. These are no Lannisters, my liege. It's Lord Stannis at your gates. King Stannis, he calls himself now. John a blowing rain lashed at John's face as he spurred his horse across the swollen stream. Beside him, Lord Commander Mormont gave the hood of his cloak a tug, muttering curses on the weather. His raven sat on his shoulder, feathers ruffled, as soaked and grumpy as the old bear himself. A gust of wind sent wet leaves flapping around them like a flock of dead birds. The haunted forest! John thought ruefully. The drowned forest, more like it. He hoped Sam was holding up, back down the column. He was not a good rider, even in fair weather, and six days of rain had made the ground treacherous, all soft mud and hidden rocks. When the wind blew, it drove the water right into their eyes. The wall would be flowing off to the south, the melting ice mingling with warm rain to wash down in sheets and rivers. Pip and Toad would be sitting near the fire in the common room, drinking cups of mulled wine before their supper. John envied them. 
His wet wool clung to him, sodden and itching. His neck and shoulders ached fiercely from the weight of mail and sword, and he was sick of salt cud, salt beef, and hard cheese. Up ahead, a hunting horn sounded a quavering note, half drawn beneath the constant patter of the rain. Buckwell's horn, the old bear announced. The guards are good. Craster's still there. His raven gave a single flap of his big wings, croaked, Corn! and ruffled his feathers up again. John had often heard his black brothers tell tales of Craster and his keep. Now he would see it, with his own eyes. After seven empty villagers, they had all come to dread finding Craster's as dead and desolate as the rest. But it seemed they would be spared that. Perhaps the old bear will finally get some answers, he thought. Anyway, we'll be out of the rain. Thorin Smallwood swore that Craster was a friend to the watch, despite his unsavory reputation. The man's half m mad, I won't d deny it, he told the old bear. But you'll be the same if you sp sp spent your life in this cursed wood. Even so, he's never turned a ranger away from his f f fire, nor does he love Mance Raider. He he'll give us good c counsel. So long as he gives us a hot meal and a chance to dry our clothes, I'll be happy. Diamond said Craster was a kingslayer, liar, raper, and craven, and hinted that he trafficked with slavers and demons. And worse, the old forester would add, clacking his wooden teeth, there's a cold smell to that one, there is. John, Lord Mormont commanded, ride back along the column and spread the word, and remind the officers that I want no trouble about Craster's wives. The men are to mind their hands and speak to these women as little as need be. Aye, my lord. John turned his horse back the way they'd come. It was pleasant to have the rain out of his face, if only for a little while. Everyone he passed seemed to be weeping. The march was strung out through half a mile of woods. In the midst of the baggage train, John passed Samuel Tarley, slumped in his saddle under a wide, floppy hat. He was riding one dray horse and leading the others. The drumming of the rain against the hoods of their cages had the ravens squawking and fluttering. You put a fox in with them? John called out. Rain ran off the brim of Sam's hat as he lifted his head. Oh, hello, John. No, they just hate the rain, same as us. How are you faring, Sam? Wetly, the fat boy managed to smile. Nothing has killed me yet, though. Good. Craster's keep us just ahead. If the guards are good, he'll let us sleep by his fire. Sam looked dubious. Dolores had said Craster's a terrible savage. He marries his daughters and obeys no laws but those he makes himself. And Dywin told Gren he's got black blood in his veins. His mother was a wilding woman who lay with a ranger. So he's a bast. Suddenly he realized what he was about to say. A bastard, John said with a laugh. You can say it, Sam. I've heard the word before. He put his spurs into his sure-footed little garron. I need to hunt down Sir Uttin. Be careful around Crester's women. As if Samuel Tarley needed warning on that score. We'll talk later, after we've made camp. 
John carried the word back to Sir Otten Withers, plodding along with the rear guard. A small, prune-faced man of an age with Mormont, Sir Otten always looked tired, even at Castle Black, and the rain had beaten him down unmercifully. "'Welcome, Tidings,' he said. "'This wet has soaked my bones, and even my saddle-sores complain of saddle-sores.' On his way back, John swung wide of the column's line of march and took a shorter path through the thick of the wood. The sounds of man and horse diminished, swallowed up by the wet green wild, and soon enough he could hear only the steady wash of rain against leaf and tree and rock. It was mid-afternoon, yet the forest seemed as dark as dusk. John wove a path between rocks and puddles, past great oaks, grey-green sentinels, and black-barked ironwoods. In places, the branches wove a canopy overhead, and he was given a moment's respite from the drumming of the rain against his head. As he rode past a lightning-blasted chestnut tree, overgrown with wild white roses, he heard something rustling in the undergrowth. "'Ghost!' he called out. "'Ghost! To me!' but it was Dywin who emerged from the greenery, forking a shaggy grey garron with Gren a horse beside him. The old bear had deployed outriders to either side of the main column to screen their march and warn of the approach of any enemies, and even there he took no chances, sending the men out in pairs. "'Oh, it's you, Lord Snow!' Dywin smiled, an oaken smile. His teeth were carved of wood and fit badly." Sort me and the boy, Alice, one of them others, to deal with. Lost your wolf. He's off hunting. Ghost did not like to travel with the column, but he would not be far. When they made camp for the night, he'd find his way to John at the Lord Commander's tent. Fishing, I call it, in this wet, Dywin said. My mother always said rain was good for growing crops, Gren put in hopefully. Aye, a good crop of mildew, Diamond said. The best thing about a rain like this, it saves a man from taking baths. He made a clacking sound on his wooden teeth. Buckwalls found Craster, John told them. Had he lost him? Diamond chuckled. See that your young butts don't go nosing about Craster's wives, you hear? John smiled. Want them all for yourself, Diamond? Diamond clacked his teeth some more. Not be I do. Crestus got ten fingers and one cock, and he don't count but to eleven. He never miss a couple. How many wives does he have truly? Gren asked. More than you ever will, brother. Well, it's not so hard when you breed your own. <laughs> There's your beast, Snow. Ghost was trotting along beside John's horse with tail held high, his white fur ruffled up thick against the rain. He moved so silently, John could not have said just when he appeared. Gren's mount shied at the scent of him, even now, after more than a year. The horses were uneasy in the presence of the dire wolf. With me, ghost! John spurred off to Craster's keep. He had never thought to find a stone castle on that far side of the wall, but he had pictured some sort of mutt and bailey, with a wooden palisade and a timber tower keep. 
What they found instead was a midden heap, a pigsty, an empty sheepfold, and a windowless daub and wattle hall scarce worthy of the name. It was long and low, chinked together from logs and roofed with sod. The compound stood atop a rise, too modest to name a hill, surrounded by an earthen dike. Brown rivulets flowed down the slope where the rain had eaten gaping holes in the defences, to join a rushing brook that curved around to the north, its thick waters turned into a murky torrent by the rains. On the southwest he found an open gate flanked by a pair of animal skulls on high poles, a bear to one side, a ram to the other. Bits of flesh still clung to the bear skull, John noted as he joined the line riding past. Within, Jarman Buckwell's scouts and men from Thorin Smallwood's van were setting up horse lines and struggling to raise tents. A host of piglets rooted about three huge sows in the sty. Nearby, a small girl pulled carrots from a garden, naked in the rain, while two women tied a pig for slaughter. The animal squeals were high and horrible, almost human in their distress. Chet's hounds barked wildly in answer, snarling and snapping despite his curses, with a pair of Craster's dogs barking back. When they saw a ghost, some of the dogs broke off and ran, while others began to bay and growl. The dire wolf ignored them, as did John. Well, thirty of us will be warm and dry, John thought, once he'd gotten a good look at the hall. Perhaps as many as fifty. The place was much too small to sleep two hundred men, so most would need to remain outside. And where to put them? The rain had turned half the compound yard to ankle-deep puddles, and the rest to sucking mud. Another dismal night was in prospect. The Lord Commander had entrusted his mount to Dolorous Ed. He was cleaning mud out of the horse's hooves as John dismounted. "'Lord Mormont's in the hall,' he announced. "'He said for you to join him, eh? Best leave the wolf outside.' He looks hungry enough to eat one of Craster's children, eh? Well, truth be told, I'm hungry enough to eat one of Craster's children, so long as he was served out, eh? <laughs> Go on, I'll sit your horse. If it's warm and dry inside, eh? Don't tell me. I, I wasn't asked in. He flicked a glob of wet mud out from under a horseshoe. Does this mud look like shit to you? Could it be the old hill is made of Craster's shit, eh? John smiled. Well, I hear he's been here a long time. You cheer me, nut. Go and see the old bear, eh? Go stay, he commanded. The door to Craster's keep was made of two flaps of deer hide. John shoved between them, stooping to pass under the low lintel. Two dozen of the chief rangers had preceded him and were standing around the fire pit in the center of the dirt floor while puddles collected about their boots. The hall stank of soot, dung, and wet dog. The air was heavy with smoke, yet somehow still damp. Rain leaked through the smoke hole in the roof. It was all a single room, with a sleeping loft above reached by a pair of splintery ladders. John remembered how he felt the day they had left the wall, nervous as a maiden, but eager to glimpse the mysteries and wonders beyond each new horizon.
Well, here's one of the wonders, he told himself, gazing about the squalid, foul-smelling hall. The acrid smoke was making his eyes water. A pity that Pip and Toad can't see all they're missing. Craster sat above the fire, the only man to enjoy his own chair. Even Lord Commander Mormont must seat himself on the common bench, with his raven muttering on his shoulder. Jarman Buckwell stood behind, dripping from patch mail and shiny wet leather. Beside Thorin Smallwood, in the late Sir Jeremy's heavy breastplate and sable-trim cloak. Craster's sheepskin jerkin and cloak of sewn skins made a shabby contrast, but around one thick wrist was a heavy ring that had the glint of gold. He looked to be a powerful man, though well into the winter of his days now, his mane of grey hair growing to white. A flat nose and a drooping moustache gave him a cruel look, and one of his ears was missing. So this is a wildling. John remembered old Nan's tales of the savage folk who drank blood from human skulls. Craster seemed to be drinking a thin yellow beer from a chipped stone cup. Perhaps he had not heard the stories. I've not seen Benjamin Stark for three years, he was telling Mormont, and if truth be told... I never once missed him. A half-dozen black puppies and the odd pig or two skulked among the benches, while women in ragged deerskins passed horns of beer, stirred the fire, and chopped carrots and onions into a kettle. He ought to have passed here last year, said Thorin Smallwood. A dog came sniffing around his leg. He kicked it and sent it off yipping. Lord Mormon said, Ben was searching for Sir Waymar Royce, who'd vanished with Garrod and young Will. I and those three, I recall. The lordling not older than one of these pups, too proud to sleep under my roof, him and his sable cloak and black steel. My wives give him big cow-eyes all the same. He turned his squint on the nearest of the women. Garrod says... They were chasing raiders. I told him, with a commander that green, best not catch him. Garrod wasn't half bad, for a crow. Had less ears than me, that one. The bite took him, same as mine. Craster laughed. Now I hear, he got no head, neither. The bite'll do that, too. John remembered a spray of red blood on white snow, and the way... Theon Greyjoy had kicked the dead man's head. The man was a deserter. On the way back to Winterfell, John and Rob had raced and found six direwolf pups in the snow. A thousand years ago. When Sir Waymar left you, where was he bound? Craster gave a shrug. Happens I have better things to do than tend to the comings and goings of crows. He drank a pull of beer and set the cup aside. Had no good southern wine up here for a bear's night. I could use me some wine and a new axe. Mine's lost its bite. Can't have that. I got me women to protect. He gazed around at his scurrying wives. You are few here and isolated. 
Mormont said. If you like, I'll detail some men to escort you south to the wall. The raven seemed to like the notion. Wall, it screamed, spreading black wings like a high collar behind Mormont's head. The host gave a nasty smile, showing a mouthful of broken brown teeth. And what would we do there? Serve you at supper? We're free folk here. Craster serves no man. These are bad times to dwell alone in the wild. The cold winds are rising. Let them rise. My roots are sunk deep. Craster grabbed a passing woman by the wrist. Tell him, wife. Tell the Lord Crow how well content we are. The woman licked at thin lips. This is our place. Craster keeps us safe. Better to die free than live a slave. Slave, muttered the raven. Mormont leaned forward. Every village we have passed has been abandoned. Yours are the first living faces we have seen since we left the wall. The people are gone. Whether dead, fled, or taken, I could not say. The animals as well. Nothing is left. And earlier we found the bodies of two of Ben Stark's rangers only a few leagues from the wall. They were pale and cold, with black hands and black feet, and wounds that did not bleed. Yet when we took them back to Castle Black, they rose in the night and killed. One slew Sir Jeremy Riker, and the other came for me, which tells me that they remember some of what they knew when they lived. But there was no human mercy left in them. The woman's mouth hung open, a wet pink cave. But Craster only gave a snort. <laughs> We've had no such troubles here, and I'll thank you not to tell such evil tales under my roof. I'm a godly man, and the gods keep me safe. If whites come walking, I'll know how to send them back to their graves, though I could use me a sharp new axe. He sent his wives scurrying with a slap on her leg and a shout of, More beer, and be quick about it. No trouble from the dead, Jarman Buckle said. But what of the living, my lord? What of your king? King, cried Mormont's raven. King, king, king. That man's raider, Craster spit into the fire. King beyond the wall. What do free folk want with kings? He turned his squint on Mormont. There's much I could tell you, a raider and his doings, if I had a mind. This of the empty villages, that's his work. You would have found this hall abandoned as well, if I were a man to scrape to such. He sends a rider, tells me I must leave my own cape to come grovel at his feet. I sent the man back, but kept his tongue. It's nailed to that wall there, he pointed. Might be I could tell you where to seek Mansreader, if I had a mind. The brown smile again. But we'll have time enough for that. You'll be wanting to sleep beneath my roof, belike, and eat me out of pigs. A roof would be most welcome, my lord, Mormont said. We've had hard riding and too much wit. Then you'll be guest here for a night. No longer. 
I'm not that fond of crows. The lofts for me and mine, but you'll have all the floor you like. I've meat and beer for twenty, no more. The rest of your black crows can peck after their own corn. We've pecked in our own supplies, my lord, said the old bear. We should be pleased to share our food and wine. Craster wiped his drooping mouth with the back of a hairy hand. I'll taste your wine, Lord Crow, that I will. One more thing. Any man lays a hand on my wives, he loses the hand. Your roof, your rule, said Thorin Smallwood, and Lord Mormont nodded stiffly, though he looked none too pleased. That's settled, then. Craster grudged them a grunt. Do you have a man can draw a map? Sam Tarley can, John pushed forward. Sam loves maps. Mormont beckoned him closer. Send him here, after he's eaten. Have him bring quill and parchment. And find Tollet as well. Tell him to bring an axe, a guest gift for our host. Who's this one now? Craster said before John could go. He has the look of a Stark. My steward and squire, John Snow. A bastard, is it? Craster looked John up and down. Man wants to bed a woman. Seems like he ought to take her to wife. That's what I do. He shooed John off with a wave. Well, run and do your service, bastard, and see that axe is good and sharp now. I've no use for dull steel. John Snow bowed stiffly and took his leave. Sir Artin Withers was coming in as he was leaving, and they almost collided at the deer hide door. Outside the rain seemed to have slackened. Tents had gone up all over the compound. John could see the tops of others under the trees. Dolores Ed was feeding the horses. Call give the wilding an axe, why not, eh? He pointed out Mormont's weapon, a short-hafted battle-axe with gold scroll-work inlaid on the black steel blade. He'll give it back, I vow, buried in the old bear's skull, eh? Like as not. Why not give him all our axes and our swords as well, eh? Oh, I mislike the way they clank and rattle as we ride. We'll travel faster, eh, without em? Straight to hell's door. Does it rain in hell, I wonder? <laughs> eh? Perhaps Craster would like a nice hat instead, eh? John smiled. He wants an axe and wine as well. See, the old bear's clever, eh? If we get the wildling well and truly drunk, eh? Perhaps he'll only cut off an ear when he tries to slay us with that axe. I've two ears, but only one ear, eh? Smallwood said Craster is a friend to the watch. Do you know the difference between a wildling who's a friend to the watch and one who's not, eh? Asked the doer squire. Our enemies leave our bodies for the crows, eh? And the wolves. Our friends bury us in secret graves. I wonder how long that bear's been nailed up on that gate. And what Craster had there before we came hallooing, eh? Ed looked at the axe doubtfully, the rain running down his long face. Is it dry in there, eh? Drier than out here. If I look about, eh? Not too close to the fire, belike they'll take no note of me till morning, eh? The ones under his roof will be the first he murders, but at least 
We'll die dry, eh? John had to laugh. Craster's one man. We're two hundred. I doubt he'll murder anyone. You cheer me, said Ed, sounding utterly morose. And besides, there's much to be said for a good sharp axe. I'd hate to be murdered with a maul. I, I, I saw a man hit in the brow with a maul once, eh? Cool. Scarce spit the skin at all. But his head turned mushy and swelled up big as a gourd, only purply red, eh? A comely man, but he died ugly, eh? It's good that we're not giving them malls. Ed walked away, shaking his head, his sudden black cloak shedding rain behind him. John got the horses fed before he stopped to think of his own supper. He was wondering where to find Sam when he heard a shout of fear. Wolf! He sprinted around the hall towards the cry, the earth sucking at his boots. One of Craster's women was backed up against the mud-spattered wall of the keep. Keep away! she was shouting at Ghost. You keep away! The direwolf had a rabbit in his mouth and another dead and bloody on the ground before him. Get it away, my lord! she pleaded when she saw him. He won't hurt you. He knew at once what had happened. A wooden hutch, its slats shattered, lay on its side in the wet grass. He must have been hungry. We haven't seen much game. John whistled. The direwolf bolted down the rabbit, crunching the small bones between his teeth, and padded over to him. The woman regarded them with nervous eyes. She was younger than he'd thought at first, a girl of fifteen or sixteen years, he judged, dark hair plastered across a gaunt face by the falling rain, her bare feet muddy to the ankles. The body under the sewn skins was showing in the early turns of pregnancy. "'Are you one of Craster's daughters?' he asked. She put a hand over her belly. "'Wife, now?' Edging away from the wolf, she knelt mournfully beside the broken hutch. "'I was going to breed them rabbits. There's no sheep left.' The watch will make good for them. John had no coin of his own, or he would have offered it to her, though he was not sure what good a few coppers or even a silver piece would do her beyond the wall. I'll speak to Lord Mormont on the morrow. She wiped her hands on her skirt. My lord, I'm no lord. But others had come crowding round, drawn by the woman's scream and the crash of the rabbit hutch. Don't you believe him, girl? called out Lark, the sister-man, a ranger mean as a cur. That's Lord Snow himself! Bastard of Winterfell, and brother to kings, mocked Chet, who left his house to see what the commotion was about. That wolf's looking at you hungry, girl, Lark said. Might be it fancies that tender bit in your belly. John was not amused. You're scaring her. Warning her, more like. Chet's grin was as ugly as the boils that covered most of his face. We're not to talk to you, the girl remembered suddenly. Wait, John said, too late. She bolted, ran. Lark made a grab for the second rabbit, but Ghost was quicker. When he bared his teeth, the sister man slipped in the mud and went down on his bony butt. The others laughed. The direwolf took the rabbit in his mouth and brought it to John. There was no call to scare the girl, he told them. 
We'll hear no scolds from you, bastard. Chet blamed John for the loss of his comfortable position with Maester Eamon, and not without justice. If he had not gone to Eamon about Sam Tarley, Chet would still be tending an old blind man instead of a pack of ill-tempered hunting hounds. You may be the Lord Commander's pet, but you're not the Lord Commander, and you wouldn't talk so bloody bold without that monster of yours always about. I'll not fight a brother while we're beyond the wall, John answered, his voice cooler than he felt. Lark got to one knee. He's afraid of you, Chet. On the sisters, we have a name for them like him. I know all the names. Save your breath. He walked away, ghost at his side. The rain had dwindled to a thin drizzle by the time he reached the gate. Dusk would be on them soon, followed by another wet, dark, dismal night. The clouds would hide moon and stars and Mormont's torch, turning the woods black as pitch. Every piss would be an adventure, if not quite of the sort Jon Snow had once envisioned. Out under the trees, some rangers had found enough duff and dry wood to start a fire beneath a slanting ridge of slate. Others had raised tents or made crude shelters by stretching their cloaks over low branches. Giant had crammed himself inside the hollow of a dead oak. How delight my castle, Lord Snow? It looks snug. You know where Sam is? Keep on the way you were. If you come to Sir Otten's pavilion, you've gone too far. Giant smiled. Unless Sam's found him a tree too, what a tree that would be. It was Ghost who found Sam in the end. The dire wolf shot ahead like a quarrel from a crossbow. Under an outcrop of rock that gave some small degree of shelter from the rain, Sam was feeding the ravens. His boots squished as he moved. "'My feet are soaked through,' he admitted miserably. "'When I climbed off my horse, I stepped in a hole and went in up to my knees. "'Take off your boots and dry your stockings. "'I'll find some dry wood. "'If the ground's not wet under the rock, we might be able to get a fire burning.' John showed Sam the rabbit, and we'll feast. Won't you be attending Lord Mormont in the hall? No, but you will. The old bear wants you to map for him. Craster says he'll find Man's Raider for us. Oh, Sam did not look anxious to meet Craster, even if it meant a warm fire. He said eat first, though. Dry your feet. John went to gather fuel digging down under dead falls from the drier wood beneath, and peeling back layers of sudden pine needles until he found likely kindling. Even then it seemed to take forever for a spark to catch. He hung his cloak from the rock to keep the rain off his smoky little fire, making them a small, snug alcove. As he knelt to skin the rabbit, Sam pulled off his boots. "'I think there's musk growing between my toes,' he declared mournfully, wriggling the toes in question. The rabbit will taste good. I don't even mind about the blood and all. He looked away. Well, only a little. John spitted the carcass, banked the fire with a pair of rocks, and balanced their meal atop them. The rabbit had been a scrawny thing, 
but as it cooked it smelt like a king's feast. Other rangers gave them envious looks. Even Ghost looked up hungrily, flame shining in his red eyes as he sniffed. "'You had yours before,' John reminded him. "'Is Craster as savage as the rangers say?' Sam asked. The rabbit was a shade underdone, but tasted wonderful. "'What's his castle like?' A midden heap with a roof and a fire pit, John told Sam what he had seen and heard in Craster's keep. By the time the telling was done, it was dark outside, and Sam was licking his fingers. "'That was good, and now I'd like a leg of lamb. A whole leg just for me, sauce with mint and honey and cloves. Did you see any lambs?' "'There was a sheepfold, but no sheep.' "'How does he feed all his men?' "'I didn't see any men. "'Just Craster and his women, and a few small girls. "'I wonder he's able to hold the place. "'His defences were nothing to speak about, only a muddy dyke. "'You'd better go up to the hall and draw that map. "'Can you find the way?' "'If I don't fall in the mud—' "'Sam struggled back into his boots, "'collected quill and parchment, "'and shouldered out into the night, the rain— pattering down on his cloak and floppy hat. Ghost laid his head on his paws and went to sleep by the fire. John stretched out beside him, grateful for the warmth. He was cold and wet, but not so cold and wet as he had been a short time before. Perhaps tonight the old bear will learn something that will lead us to Uncle Benjamin. He woke to the sight of his own breath misting in the cold morning air. When he moved, his bones ached. Ghost was gone. The fire burnt out. John reached to pull aside the cloak he'd hung over the rock and found it stiff and frozen. He crept beneath it and stood up in a forest turned to crystal. The pale pink light of dawn sparkled on branch and leaf and stone. Every blade of grass was carved from emerald, every drip of water turned to diamond. Flowers and mushrooms alike wore coats of glass. Even the mud puddles had a bright brown sheen. Through the shimmering greenery, the black tents of his brothers were encased in a fine glaze of ice. So there is magic beyond the wall after all. He found himself thinking of his sisters, perhaps because he'd dreamed of them last night. Sansa would call this an enchantment, and tears would fill her eyes at the wonder of it all. But Arya would run out laughing and shouting, wanting to touch it all. Lord Snow, he heard, soft and meek, he turned. Crouched atop the rock that had sheltered him during the night was the rabbit keeper, wrapped in a black cloak so large it drowned her. Sam's cloak. John realized at once. Why is she wearing Sam's cloak? The fat one told me I'd find you here, my lord, she said. We ate the rabbit, if that's what you came for. The admission made him feel absurdly guilty. Oh, Lord Crow, in with the talking bird, he gave Craster a crossbow worth a hundred rabbits. Her arms crossed over the swell of her belly. Is it true, my lord? Are you brother to a king? A half-brother, he admitted. I'm Ned Stark's bastard. My brother Rob is the king in the north. 
Why are you here? The fat one, that, um, Sam, he said to see you. He gave me his cloak so no one would say I didn't belong. Won't Craster be angry with you? My father drank overmuch of the Lord Crow's wine last night. He'll sleep most of the day. Her breath frosted the air in small, nervous puffs. They say the king gives justice and protects the weak. She started to climb off the rock awkwardly, but the ice had made it slippery, and her foot went out from under her. John caught her before she could fall, and helped her safely down. The woman knelt on the icy ground. My lord, I beg you, don't beg me anything. Go back to your hall. You shouldn't be here. We were commanded not to speak to Craster's women. You don't have to speak with me, my lord. Just take me with you. When you go, that's all I ask. All she asks, he thought, as if that were nothing. Oh, I'll be your wife, if you like. My father, he's got nineteen now. One less won't hurt him none. Black brothers are sworn never to take wives. Don't you know that? And we're guests in your father's hall, besides. Not you, she said. I watched. You never ate at his board, nor slept by his fire. He never gave you guest right, so you're not bound to him. It's for the baby I have to go. I don't even know your name. Gilly, he called me, for the gilly flower. That's pretty. He remembered Sansa telling him once that he should say that whenever a lady told him her name. He could not help the girl, but perhaps the courtesy would please her. Is it Craster who frightens you, Gilly? For the baby, not for me. If it's a girl, that's not so bad. She'll grow a few years and he'll marry her. But Nella says if it's to be a boy, and she's had six and knows these things, he gives the boys to the guards. Come the white cold, he does. And of late it comes more often. That's why he started giving them sheep even though he has a taste for mutton. Only now the sheep's gone, too. Next it will be dogs till... She lowered her eyes and stroked her belly. What gods? John was remembering that they'd seen no boys in Craster's keep, nor men either, save Craster himself. The cold gods, she said, the ones in the night, the white shadows. And suddenly John was back in the Lord Commander's tower again. A severed hand was climbing his calf, and when he pried it off with the point of his longsword, it lay writhing, fingers opening and closing. The dead man rose to his feet, blue eyes shining in that gashed and swollen face. Ropes of torn flesh hung from the great wound in his belly, yet there was no blood. What color are their eyes? he asked her. Blue, as bright as blue stars, and as cold. She has seen them, he thought. Craster lied. Will you take me just so far as the wall? We do not ride for the wall. We ride north, after Mans Raider and these others, these white shadows and their whites. We seek them, Gilly. Your babe would not be safe with us. Her fear was plain on her face. You will come back, though, when your warring's done. You'll pass this way again. We may, if any of us still live. 
That's for the old bear to say, the one you call the Lord Crow. I'm only his squire. I do not choose the road I ride. No, he could hear the defeat in her voice. Sorry to be of trouble, my lord. I only... They said the king keeps people safe, and I thought... Despairing, she ran, Sam's cloak flapping behind her like great black wings. John watched her go, his joy in the morning's brittle beauty gone. Damn her, he thought resentfully, and damn Sam twice for sending her to me. What did he think I could do for her? We're here to fight wildlings, not save them. Other men were crawling from their shelters, yawning and stretching. The magic was already faded. Icy brightness turning back to common dew in the light of the rising sun. Someone had gotten a fire started. He could smell wood smoke drifting through the trees and the smoky scent of bacon. John took down his cloak and snapped it against the rock, shattering the thin crust of ice that formed in the night then gathered up Longclaw and shrugged his arm through a shoulder strap. A few yards away he made water into a frozen bush, his piss steaming in the cold air and melting the ice wherever it fell. Afterwards he laced up his black wool breeches and followed the smells. Gren and Dywin were among the brothers who had gathered round the fire. Hake handed John a hollow heel of bread filled with burnt bacon and chunks of saltfish warmed in bacon grease. He woofed it down while listening to Dywin's boast of having three of Craster's women during the night. "'You did not,' Gren said, scowling. "'I would have seen.' Dywin whapped him alongside his ear with the back of his hand. "'You see, you're blind as Maester Eamon. You never even saw that bear.' "'What bear?' "'What's that bear?' "'Called it. There's always a bear, eh?' declared Dolorous Ed, in his usual tone of gloomy resignation. "'One killed my brother, eh, when I was young. Afterwards it wore his teeth round its neck on a leather song. And they were good teeth, too. Better than mine, eh? I've had nothing but trouble with my teeth, eh?' "'Did Sam sleep in the hall last night?' John asked. I'd not call it sleeping, eh? The ground was hard, the rushes ill-smelling, eh? And my brother snore frightfully. Speak of bears, if you will. None ever growl so fierce as Brown Bernard. I was warm, though, eh? Some dogs crawled atop of me during the night. My cloak was almost dry, eh? When one of them pissed in it. Or perhaps it was Brown Bernard. Have you noticed the rain stopped the instant I had a roof over me, eh? It will start again now that I'm back out. Gods and dogs alike delight to piss on me, eh? I'd best go see to Lord Mormont, John said. The rain might have stopped, but the compound was still a morass of shallow lakes and slippery mud. Black brothers were folding their tents, feeding their horses, and chewing on strips of salt beef. John and Buckwell scouts were tightening the girths on their saddles before setting out. John, Buckwell greeted him from horseback. Keep a good edge on that bastard sword of yours. We'll be needing it soon enough. Craster's Hall was dim after daylight. 
Inside, the night torches had burned low, and it was hard to know that the sun had risen. Lord Mormont's raven was the first to spy him enter. Three lazy flaps of his great black wings, and it perched atop Longclaw's hilt. Corn! It nipped a strand of John's hair. Ignore that wretched beggar bird, John. It's just had half my bacon. The old bear sat at Craster's board, breaking his fast with the other officers on fried bread, bacon, and sheep gut sausage. Craster's new axe was on the table, its gold inlay gleaming faintly in the torchlight. Its owner was sprawled unconscious in the sleeping loft above, but the women were all up, moving about and serving. What sort of day do we have? Cold, but the rain has stopped. Very good. See that my horse is saddled and ready. I mean for us to ride within the hour. Have you eaten? Craster serves plain fare, but filling. I will not eat Craster's food, he decided suddenly. I broke my fast with the men, my lord. John shooed the raven off Longclaw. The bird hopped back to Mormont's shoulder, where it promptly shat. You might have done that on snow instead of saving it for me, the old bear grumbled. The raven quarked. He found Sam behind the hall, standing with Gilly at the broken rabbit hutch. She was helping him back into his cloak. But when she saw John, she stole away. Sam gave him a look of wounded reproach. I thought you would help her. And how was I to do that? John said sharply. Take her with us, wrapped up in your cloak. We were commanded not to. I know, said Sam guiltily. But she was afraid. I know what it is to be afraid. I told her... He swallowed. What? That we take her with us? Sam's fat face blushed a deep red. On the way home... He could not meet John's eyes. She's going to have a baby. Sam, have you taken leave of all your senses? We may not even return this way. And if we do, do you think the old bear is going to let you pack off one of Craster's wives? Well, I thought maybe by then I could think of a way. I have no time for this. I have horses to groom and saddle. John walked away as confused as he was angry. Sam's heart was as big as the rest of him, but for all his reading, he could be as thick as Gren at times. It was impossible, and dishonorable besides. So why do I feel so ashamed? John took his accustomed position at Mormont's side, as the night's watch streamed out past the skulls on Craster's gate. They struck off north and west along a crooked game trail, Melting ice dripped down all about them, a slower sort of rain with its own soft music. North of the compound, the brook was in full spate, choked with leaves and bits of wood, but the scouts had found where the ford lay, and the column was able to splash across. The water ran as high as a horse's belly. Ghost swam, emerging on the bank with his white fur dripping brown. When he shook, spraying mud and water in all directions, Mormont said nothing, but on his shoulder the raven screeched. My lord, John said quietly, as the wood closed in around them once more, Craster has no sheep, nor any sons.
Mormont made no answer. At Winterfell, one of the serving women told us stories, John went on. She used to say that there were wildlings who would lay with the others to birth half-human children. Hearth tales! Does Crestler seem less than human to you? In half a hundred ways. He gives his sons to the wood. A long silence, then, yes. And, yes, the raven muttered, strutting. Yes, yes, yes. You knew. Small would tell me, long ago. All the rangers know, though few will talk of it. Did my uncle know? All the rangers, Mormont repeated. You think I ought to stop him? Kill him, if need be? The old bear sighed. Were it only that he wished to rid himself of some mouths, I'd gladly send Yorin or Conwis to collect the boys. We could raise them to the black, and the watch would be that much the stronger, but the wildlings serve crueler gods than you or I. These boys are Craster's offerings, his prayers, if you will. His wives must offer different prayers, John thought. How is it you came to know this? The old bear asked him. From one of Craster's wives? Yes, my lord, John confessed. I would sooner not tell you which. She was frightened and wanted help. The wide world is full of people wanting help, John. Would that some could find the courage to help themselves. Craster sprawls in his loft even now, stinking of wine and lost to sense. On his board below lies a sharp new axe. Were it me, I'd name it Answered Prayer and make an end. Yes. John thought of Gilly. She and her sisters. They were nineteen, and Craster was one, but... Yet it would be an ill day for us if Craster died. Your uncle could tell you of the times Craster's keep made the difference between life and death for our rangers. My father... He hesitated. Go on, John. Say what you would say. My father once told me that some men are not worth having. John finished. A banner man who is brutal or unjust dishonors his liege lord as well as himself. Crest is his own man. He has sworn us no vows, nor is he subject to our laws. Your heart is noble, John, but learn a lesson here. We cannot set the world to rights. That is not our purpose. The Night's Watch has other wars to fight. Other wars, yes, I must remember. Jarman Buckwell said I might have need of my sword soon. Did he? Mormont did not seem pleased. Craster said much and more last night, and confirmed enough of my fears to condemn me to a sleepless night on his floor. Mance Raider is gathering his people together in the Frost Fangs. That's why the villages are empty. It is the same tale that Sir Dennis Malister had from the wildling his men captured in the gorge, but Craster has added the where, and that makes all the difference. Is he making a city or an army? Now that is the question. How many wildlings are there? How many men of fighting age? No one knows with certainty. 
The frost fangs are cruel, inhospitable, a wilderness of stone and ice. They will not long sustain any great number of people. I can see only one purpose in this gathering. Man's raider means to strike south into the Seven Kingdoms. Wildlings have invaded the realm before. John had heard the tales from Old Nan and Maester Lewin both, back in Winterfell. Raymond Redbeard led them south in the time of my grandfather's grandfather, and before him there was a king named Bale the Bard. Aye, and long before them came the Horn Lord and his brother kings, gentle and gorn, and in ancient days Joraman, who blew the horn of winter and woke giants from the earth. Each man of them broke his strength on the wall, or was broken by the power of Winterfell on the far side. But the Night's Watch is only a shadow of what we were. And who remains to oppose the wildlings besides us? The Lord of Winterfell is dead, and his heir has marched his strength south to fight the Lannisters. The wildlings may never again have such a chance as this. I knew Man's Raider John. He is an oath-breaker, yes, but he has eyes to see, and no man has ever dared to name him Faintheart. What will we do? asked John. Find him, said Mormont. Fight him. Stop him. Three hundred, thought John, against the fury of the wild. His fingers opened and closed. Theon She was undeniably a beauty. But your first is always beautiful, Theon Greyjoy thought. Now there's a pretty grin, a woman's voice said behind him. The lordling likes the look of her, does he? Theon turned to give her an appraising glance. He liked what he saw. Ironborn, he knew at a glance, lean and long-legged, with black hair cut short, wind-chafed skin, strong, sure hands, a dirk at her belt. Her nose was too big and too sharp for her thin face, but her smile made up for it. He judged her a few years older than he was, but no more than five and twenty. She moved as if she were used to a deck beneath her feet. Yes, she's a sweet sight, he told her, though not half as sweet as you. Oh, ho, ho, she grinned. I'd best be careful. This lordling has a honeyed tongue. Taste it and see. Is it that way, then, she said, eyeing him boldly. There were women on the Iron Islands, not many, but a few, who crewed the longships along with their men, and it was said that salt and sea changed them, gave them a man's appetites. Have you been that long at sea, Lordlin? Or were there no women where you came from? Women enough, but none like you. And how would you know what I'm like? My eyes can see your face. My ears can hear your laughter. And my cock's gone hard as a mast for you. The woman stepped close and pressed a hand to the front of his breeches. Well, you're no liar, she said, giving him a squeeze through the cloth. How bad does it hurt? Fiercely. Poor Lordling. She released him and stepped back. As it happens, I'm a woman wed and new with child. The gods are good, 
Theon said. No chance. I'd give you a bastard that way. Even so, my man wouldn't thank you. No, but you might. And why would that be? I've had lords before. They're made the same as other men. Have you ever had a prince? He asked her. When you're wrinkled and grey, and your tits hang past your belly, you can tell your children's children that once you loved a king. Oh, is it love we're talking now? And here I thought it was just cocks and cunts. Is it love you fancy? He decided that he liked this wench, whoever she was. Her sharp wit was a welcome respite from the damp gloom of Pike. Shall I name my longship after you, and play you the high harp, and keep you in a tower room in my castle with only jewels to wear, like a princess in a song? You ought to name your ship after me, she said, ignoring all the rest. It was me who built her. Sigrin built her, my lord father's shipwright. I am Eskred, Ambrode's daughter and wife to Sigrin. He had not known that Ambrode had a daughter, or Sigrin a wife, but he'd met the younger shipwright only once, and the older one he scarce remembered. You're wasted on Sigrin. Oh, Sigrin told me this sweet ship is wasted on you. Theon bristled. Do you know who I am? Prince Theon of House Greyjoy. Who else? Tell me true, my lord. How well do you love her, this new maid of yours? Sigrin will want to know. The longship was so new that she still smelled of pitch and resin. His uncle Aaron would bless her on the morrow, but Theon had ridden over from Pike to get a look at her before she was launched. She was not so large as Lord Balin's own great kraken, or his uncle Victorian's iron victory, but she looked swift and sweet, even sitting in her wooden cradle on the strand, lean black hull a hundred feet long, a single tall mast, fifty long oars, deck enough for a hundred men, and at the prow the great iron ram in the shape of an arrowhead. Sigrin did me good service, he admitted. Is she as fast as she looks? Faster for a master who knows how to handle her. It has been a few years since I sailed a ship, and I've never captained one, if truth be told. Still, I'm a great joy and an iron man. The sea is in my blood. And your blood will be in the sea if you sail the way you talk, she told him. I would never mistreat such a fair maiden. Fair maiden, she laughed. She's a sea bitch, this one. There, and now you've named her Sea Bitch. That amused her. He could see the sparkle in her dark eyes. And you said you'd name her after me? She said in a voice of wounded reproach. I did. He caught her hand. Help me, my lady. In the Greenlands they believe a woman with child means good fortune for any man who beds her. And what do they know about ships in the Greenlands? Or women, for that matter. Besides, I think you've made that up. If I confess... Will you still love me? Still? When have I ever loved you? Never, he admitted. But I am trying to repair that lack, my sweet Eskret. The wind is cold. Come aboard my ship, and let me warm you. On the morrow my uncle Aaron will pour sea water over her prow and mumble a prayer to the drowned god, but I'd sooner bless her with the milk of my loins and yours. The drowned god might not take that kindly. Bugger the drowned god. If he troubles us, I'll drown him again. 
were off to war within a fortnight, would you send me into battle or sleepless with longing? Gladly. A cruel maid. My ship is well named. If I steer her unto the rocks in my distraction, you'll have yourself to blame. Do you plan to steer with this? Eskred brushed the front of his breeches once more and smiled as a finger traced the iron outline of his manhood. Come back to Pike with me, he said suddenly thinking. What will Lord Balin say? And why should I care? I'm a man grown. If I want to bring a wench to bed, it is no one's business but my own. And what would I do in Pike? Her hand stayed where it was. My father will feast his captains tonight. He had them to feast every night while he waited for the last stragglers to arrive, but Theon saw no need to tell all that. Would you make me your captain for the night, my lord prince? She had the wickedest smile he'd ever seen on a woman. I might, if I knew you'd steer me safe into port. Well, I know which end of the oar goes in the sea, and there's no one better with ropes and knots. One-handed, she undid the lacings of his breeches, then grinned and stepped lightly away from him. A pity I'm a woman wed, and you with child. Flustered, Theon laced himself back up. I need to start back to the castle. If you do not come with me, I may lose my way for grief, and all the islands would be poorer. Oh, we couldn't have that. But I have no horse, my lord. You could take my squire's mount, and leave your poor squire to walk all the way to Pike. Share mine, then. You'd like that well enough, the smile again. Now, would I be behind you or in front? You'd be wherever you like. I like to be on top. Where has this wench been all my life? My father's hall is dim and dank. It needs Eskrid to make the fires blaze. The lordling has a honeyed tongue. Isn't that where we began? She threw up her hands. And where we end. Eskred is yours, sweet prince. Take me to your castle. Let me see your proud towers rising from the sea. I left my horse at the inn. Come. They walked down the strand together, and when Theon took her arm, she did not pull away. He liked the way she walked. There was a boldness to it, part saunter and part sway, that suggested she would be just as bold beneath the blankets. Lord's Port was as crowded as he'd ever seen it, swarming with the crews of the longships that lined the pebble shore and rode at anchor well out past the breakwater. Iron men do not bend their knees often nor easily, but Theon noted that oarsmen and townfolk alike grew quiet as they passed and acknowledged him with respectful bows of the head. They have finally learned who I am, he thought, and passed time too. Lord Goodbrother of Great Wick had come in the night before with his main strength, near forty longships. His men were everywhere, conspicuous in their striped goat's-hair sashes. It was said about the inn that Otter Gimpney's whores were being fucked bow-legged by beardless boys in sashes. The boys were welcome to them, as far as Theon was concerned, a poxier den of slattens he hoped he'd never see. His present companion was more to his taste. That she was wed to his father's shipwright and pregnant to boot 
only made her more intriguing. Has my lord prince begun choosing his crew? Esgrid asked as they made their way toward the stable. Ho, Bluetooth! she shouted to a passing seafarer, a tall man in a bearskin vest and raven-winged helm. How fair's your braid? Fat with child, and talking of twins. So soon! Esgrid smiled that wicked smile. You got your oar in the water quickly. Oi, and stroked and stroked and stroked, roared the man. A big man, Theon observed. Bluetooth, was it? Should I choose him for my sea bitch? Only if you mean to insult him. Bluetooth has a sweet ship of his own. I've been too long away to know one man from the other, Theon admitted. He looked for a few of his friends he'd played with as a boy, but they were gone, dead or grown into strangers. My uncle, Victorian, has loaned me his own steersman. Raymond Stormdrunk, a good man, so long as he's sober. She saw more faces she knew and called out to a passing trio, Oller, Carl, where's your brother, Skate? The drone god needed a strong oarsman, I fear, replied the stocky man with a white streak in his beard. What he means is... Elders drank too much wine, and his fat belly burst, said the pink-cheeked youth beside him. What's dead may never die, Esgred said. What's dead may never die, Theon muttered the words with them. You seem well known, he said to the woman when the men had passed on. Every man loves the shipwright's wife. He had better, lest he wants his ship to sink. If you need men to pull your oars... You could do worse than those three. Lord Sport has no lack of strong arms. Theon had given the matter no little thought. It was fighters he wanted, and men who would be loyal to him, not to his lord father or his uncles. He was playing the part of a dutiful young prince for the moment, while he waited for Lord Balan to reveal the fullness of his plans. If it turned out that he did not like those plans, or his part in them, however, well... Strength is not enough. A longship's oars must move as one if you would have her best speed. Choose men who have rowed together before if your ways. Sage counsel. Perhaps you'll help me choose them. Better believe I want a wisdom. Women fancy that. I may, if you treat me kindly. Well, how else? Theon quickened his stride as they neared the Miraham, rocking high and empty by the quay. Her captain had tried to sail a fortnight past, but Lord Balan would not permit it. None of the merchantmen that called at Lordsport had been allowed to depart again. His father wanted no word of the hosting to reach the mainland before he was ready to strike. "'My lord,' a plaintive voice called down from the forecastle of the merchanter. The captain's daughter leaned over the rail, gazing after him. Her father had forbidden her to come ashore— but whenever Theon came to Lordsport, he spied her wandering forlornly about the deck. "'My lord, a moment,' she called after him. "'As it please, my lord.' "'Did she?' Esgred asked, as Theon hurried her past the cog. "'Please, my lord.' He saw no sense in being coy with this one. "'For a time. Now she wants to be my sort-wife.' "'Oh, well.' She'd profit from some sorting, no doubt. Too soft and bland, that one. 
or am I wrong? You're not wrong. Soft and bland, precisely. How had she known? He had told Wex to wait at the inn. The common room was so crowded that Theon had to push his way through the door. Not a seat was to be had at bench nor table. Nor did he see his squire. Wex! he shouted over the din and clatter. If he's up with one of those poxy whores, I'll strip the hide off him, he was thinking, when he finally spied the boy dicing near the hearth, and winning, too, by the look of the pile of coins before him. Time to go! Theon announced. When the boy paid him no mind, he seized him by the ear and pulled him from the game. Wex grabbed up a fistful of coppers and came along without a word. That was one of the things Theon liked best about him. Most squires have loose tongues, but Wex had been born dumb, which didn't seem to keep him from being clever as any twelve-year-old had a right to be. He was a base-born son of one of Lord Butley's half-brothers, Taking him as squire had been part of the price Theon had paid for his horse. When Wex saw Eskred, his eyes went round. You'd think he'd never seen a woman before, Theon thought. Eskred will be riding with me back to Pike. Sadly horses, and be quick about it. The boy had ridden in on a scrawny little garron from Lord Balon's stable, but Theon's mount was quite another sort of beast. Where did you find that hell horse? Eskred asked when she saw him, but from the way she laughed, he knew she was impressed. Lord Botley bought him in Lannisport a year past, but he proved to be too much horse for him, so Botley was pleased to sell. The Arn Islands were too sparse and too rocky for breeding good horses. Most of the islanders were indifferent riders at best, more comfortable on the deck of a longship than in the saddle. Even the lords rode garrons or shaggy hard-law ponies, and ox-carts were more common than drays. The small folk, too poor to own either one, pull their own ploughs through the thin, stony soil. But Theon had spent ten years in Winterfell, and did not intend to go to war without a good mount beneath him. Lord Butley's misjudgment was his good fortune. A stallion with a temper as black as his hide, larger than a courser, if not quite so big as most destriers. As Theon was not quite so big as most knights, that suited him admirably. The animal had fire in his eyes. When he met his new owner, he pulled back his lips and tried to bite off his face. Does he have a name? Eskred asked Theon as he mounted. Smiler. He gave her a hand and pulled her up in front of him, where he could put his arms around her as they rode. I knew a man once who told me that I smiled at the wrong things. To you, only by the lights of those who smile at nothing, he thought of his father and his uncle Aaron. Are you smiling now, my lord prince? Oh, yes. Theon reached around her to take the reins. She was almost of a height with him. Her hair could have used a wash, and she had a faded pink scar on her pretty neck but he liked the smell of her, salt and sweat and woman. The ride back to Pike promised to be a good deal more interesting than the ride down had been. When they were well beyond Lordsport, Theon put a hand on her breast. Eskred reached up and plucked it away. I'd keep both hands on the reins 
or this black beast of yours is like to fling us both off and kick us to death. I broke him of that. Amused, Theon behaved himself for a while, chatting amiably of the weather, grey and overcast, as it had been since he arrived with frequent rains, and telling her of the man he'd killed in the Whispering Wood. When he reached the part about coming that close to the Kingslayer himself, he slid his hand back up to where it had been. Her breasts were small, but he liked the firmness of them. You don't want to do that, my lord prince. Oh, but I do. Theon gave her a squeeze. Your squire is watching you. Let him. You'll never speak of it, I swear. Eskrid pried his fingers off her breast. This time she kept him firmly prisoned. She had strong hands. I like a woman with a good tight grip. She snorted. I'd not have thought it by that wench on the waterfront. You must not judge me by her. She was the only woman on the ship. Tell me of your father. Will he welcome me kindly to his castle? Why should he? He scarcely welcomed me, his own blood, the heir to Pike and the Iron Islands. Are you? she asked mildly. It said that you have uncle's brothers, a sister. My brothers are long dead, and my sister... Well, they say Asher's favourite gown is a chainmail hauberk that hangs down past her knees with boiled leather small clothes beneath. Men's garb won't make her a man, though. I'll make a good marriage alliance with her once we've won the war. If I can find a man to take her, as I recall, she had a nose like a vulture's beak, a ripe crop of pimples, and no more chest than a boy. You can marry off your sister, Esgred observed, but not your uncle's. My uncle's? Theon's claim took precedence over those of his father's three brothers, but the woman had touched on the sore point nonetheless. In the islands, it was scarce unheard of for a strong, ambitious uncle to dispossess a weak nephew of his rights and usually murder him in the bargain. But I am not weak, Theon told himself, and I mean to be stronger yet by the time my father dies. My uncles pose no threat to me, he declared. Aaron is drunk on seawater and sanctity. He lives only for his god. His god, not yours. Mine as well. What is dead can never die, he smiled thinly. If I make pious noises, as required, damp hair will give me no trouble, and my uncle Victorian... Lord Captain of the Iron Fleet and a fearsome warrior. I have heard them sing of him in the alehouses. During my Lord Father's rebellion, he sailed into Lannisport with my uncle Euron and burned the Lannister fleet where it lay at anchor, Theon recalled. The plan was Euron's, though. Victorian is like some great grey bullet, strong and tireless and dutiful, but not like to win any races. No doubt he'll serve me as loyally as he served my lord father. He has neither the wits nor the ambition to plot betrayal. Huron Croy has no lack of cunning, though. I've heard men say terrible things of that one. Theon shifted his seat. My uncle Euron has not been seen in the islands for close on two years. He may be dead. If so, it might be for the best. Lord Balon's eldest brother had never given up the old way, even for a day. His silence 
with its black sails and dark red hull, was infamous in every port from Ibn to Ashai, it was said. He may be dead, Eskred agreed, and if he lives, why he has spent so long at sea, he'd be half a stranger here. The Ironborn would never seat a stranger in the sea-stone chair. I suppose not, Theon replied, before it occurred to him that some would call him a stranger as well. The thought made him frown. Ten years is a long time, but I'm back now, and my father is far from dead. I've time to prove myself. He considered funding Esgred's breast again, but she would probably only take his hand away, and all this talk of his uncle's had dampened his ardour somewhat. Time enough for such play at the castle, in the privacy of his chambers. I will speak to Helia when we reach Pike, and see that you have an honoured place at the feast, he said. I must sit on the dais at my father's right hand, but I will come down and join you when he leaves the hall. He seldom lingers long. He has no belly for drink these days. A grievous thing when a great man grows old. Lord Balon is but the father of a great man. Oh, <laughs> a modest lordling. Only a fool humbles himself when the world is so full of men eager to do that job for him. He kissed her lightly on the nape of her neck. What shall I wear to this great feast? She reached back and pushed his face away. I'll ask Helia to garb you. One of my lady mother's gowns might do. She is off on our law and not expected to return. The cold winds have worn her away, I hear. Will you not go see her? Harlor is only a day's sail, and surely Lady Greyjoy yearns for last sight of her son. Would that I could. I'm kept too busy here. My father relies on me, now that I'm returned. Come peace, perhaps. Your coming might bring her peace. Now you sound like a woman, Theon complained. I confess I am, and you with child. Somehow that thought excited him. So you say, but your body shows no sign of it. How shall it be proven? Before I believe you, I shall need to see your breast grow ripe and taste your mother's milk. And what will my husband say to this, your father's own sworn man and servant? We'll give him so many ships to build, he'll never know you've left him. She laughed. It's a cruel lordling who seized me. If I promised you that one day you may watch my babe get suck. Will you tell me more of your war, Theon of House Greyjoy? There are miles and mountains still ahead of us, and I would hear of this wolf-king you served, and the golden lions he fights. Ever anxious to please her, Theon obliged. The rest of the long ride passed swiftly as he filled her pretty head with tales of Winterfell and war. Some of the things he said astonished him. She is easy to talk to. God's praise her, he reflected. I feel as though I've known her for years. If the wench's pillow play is half the equal of her wit, I'll need to keep her. He thought of Sigrin, the shipwright, a thick-bodied, thick-witted man, flaxen hair already receding from a pimple brow, and shook his head. A waste. A most tragic waste. It seemed scarcely any time at all before the great curtain wall of Pike loomed up before them. The gates were open. 
Theon put his heels into Smiler and rode through at a brisk trot. The hounds were barking wildly as he helped Eskred dismount. Several came bounding up, tails wagging. They shot straight past him and almost bowled the woman over, leaping all around her, gapping and licking. Off! Theon shouted, aiming an ineffectual kick at one big brown bitch, but Eskred was laughing and wrestling with them. A stableman came pounding up after the dogs. Take the horse, Theon commanded him, and get those damned dogs away. The lout paid him no mind. His face broke into a huge, gap-toothed smile, and he said, Lady Usher, you're back. Last night, she said, I sailed from Greatwick with Lord Goodbrother and spent the night at the inn. My little brother was kind enough to let me ride with him from Lordsport. She kissed one of the dogs on the nose and grinned at Theon. All he could do was stand and gape at her. Asher? No, she cannot be Asher. He realized suddenly that there were two Ashers in his head. One was the little girl he had known. The other, more vaguely imagined, looked something like her mother. Neither looked a bit like this, this, this. The pimples went when the breast came, she explained, while she tussled with a dog. But I kept the vulture's beak. Theon found his voice. Why didn't you tell me? Asher let go of the hound and straightened. I wanted to see who you were first, and I did. She gave him a mocking half-bow. And now, little brother, pray excuse me. I need to bathe and dress for the feast. I wonder if I still have that chain-mailed gown I like to wear over my boiled leather small clothes. She gave him that evil grin and crossed the bridge with that walk he'd like so well, half saunter and half sway. When Theon turned away, Wex was smirking at him. He gave the boy a clout on the ear. That's for enjoying this so much, and another harder, and that's for not warning me. Next time, grow a tongue. His own chambers in the guest keep had never seemed so chilly, though the thralls had kept a brazier burning. Theon kicked his boots off, let his cloak fall to the floor, and poured himself a cup of wine, remembering a gawky girl with knob knees and pimples. She unlaced my breeches, he thought, outraged. And she said, Oh, God. And I said, Oh, he groaned. He could not possibly have made a more appalling fool of himself. No, he thought then. She was the one who made me a fool. The evil bitch must have enjoyed every moment of it. And the way she kept reaching for my cock. He took his cup and went to the window seat where he sat drinking and watching the sea while the sun darkened over Pike. I have no place here, he thought. And Asher is a reason may the others take her. The water below turned from green to grey to black, and by then he could hear distant music, and he knew it was time to change for the feast. Theon chose plain boots and plainer clothes, somber shades of black and grey, to fit his mood. No ornament. He had nothing bought with iron. I might have taken something of that wildling I killed to save Bran Stark, but he had nothing worth a taking. That's my cursed luck. I killed the poor. 
the long smoky hall was crowded with his father's lords and captains when Theon entered, near four hundred of them. Dagmar Cleftjaw had not yet returned from Old Wick with the stone houses and drums, but all the rest were there. Harlaws from Harlaw, Black Tides from Black Tide, Spars, Merlins, and Good Brothers from Great Wick, Saltcliffs and Sunderlys from Saltcliff, and Botleys and Winches from the other side of Pike. The thralls were pouring ale, and there was music, fiddles, and skins and drums. Three burly men were doing the finger dance, spinning short-hafted axes at each other. The trick was to catch the axe or leap over it without missing a step. It was called the finger dance because it usually ended when one of the dancers lost one or two or five. Neither the dancers nor the drinkers took much note of Theon Greyjoy as he strode to the dais. Lord Balon occupied the sea-stone chair, carved in the shape of a great kraken from an immense block of oily black stone. Legend said that the first men had found it standing on the shore of Old Wick when they came to the Iron Islands. To the left of the high seat were Theon's uncles. Asher was ensconced at his right hand in the place of honour. "'You come late, Theon,' Lord Balon observed. "'I ask your pardon,' Theon took the empty seat beside Asher. Leaning close, he hissed in her ear, "'You're in my place.' She turned to him with innocent eyes. "'Prother, surely you're mistaken. Your place is at Winterfell.' Her smile cut. "'And where are all your pretty clothes? "'I heard you fancied silk and velvet against your skin.' "'She was in soft green wool herself, simply cut, "'the fabric clinging to the slender lines of her body. "'Your hober must have rusted away, sister,' he threw back. "'A great pity. "'I'd like to see you all in iron.' "'Asher only laughed. "'You may yet, little brother, "'if you think your sea bitch can keep up with my black wind.' One of their father's thralls came near, bearing a flagon of wine. Are you drinking ale or wine tonight, Theon? She leaned over close. Or is it still a taste of my mother's milk you thirst for? He flushed. Wine, he told the thrall. Asher turned away and banged on the table, shouting for ale. Theon hacked a loaf of bread in half, hollowed out a trencher, and summoned a cook to fill it with fish stew. The smell of the thick cream made him a little ill, but he forced himself to eat some. He'd drunk enough wine to float him through two meals. If I wretch, it will be on her. Does father know that you married his shipwright? he asked his sister. No more than Seagrin does, she gave a shrug. Eskred was the first ship he built. He named her after his mother. I would be hard-pressed to say which he loves best. Every word you spoke to me was a lie. Not every word. Remember when I told you I like to be on top? Asher grinned. That only made him angrier. All that about being a woman wed and new with child. Oh, that part was true enough. Asher leapt to her feet. Rolf, here! She shouted down at one of the finger dancers, holding up a hand. He saw her, spun and suddenly an axe came flying from his hand, the blade gleaming as it tumbled end over end through the torchlight. Theon had time for a choked gasp 
before Asher snatched the axe from the air and slammed it down into the table, splitting his trencher in two and splattering his mantle with drippings. There's my lord husband. His sister reached down inside her gown and drew a dirk from between her breasts. And here's my sweet Socklin babe. He could not imagine how he looked at that moment, but suddenly Theon Greyjoy realized the great hall was ringing with laughter, all of it at him. Even his father was smiling, gods be damned, and his uncle Victorian chuckled aloud. The best response he could summon was a queasy grin. We shall see who is laughing when all this is done, bitch. Asher wrenched the axe out of the table and flung it back down at the dancers to whistles and loud cheers. You do well to heed what I told you about choosing a crew. A thrall offered them a platter, and she stabbed a salted fish and ate it off the end of her dirk. If you had troubled to learn the first thing of Seagrin, I could never have fooled you. Ten years a wolf, and you land here and think to prince about the islands? But you know nothing, and no one. Why should men fight and die for you? I'm their lawful prince, Theon said stiffly. By the laws of the Greenlands you might be, but we make our own laws here. Or have you forgotten? Scowling, Theon turned to contemplate the leaking trencher before him. He would have stew in his lap before long. He shouted for a thrall to clean it up. Half my life I've waited to come home, and for what? Muckery and disregard. This was not the pike he remembered. Or did he remember? He had been so young when they took him away to hold hostage. The feast was a meagre enough thing, a succession of fish stews, black bread, and spiceless goat. The tastiest thing Theon found to eat was an onion pie. Ale and wine continued to flow, well after the last of the courses had been cleared away. Lord Balon Greyjoy rose from the sea-stone chair. "'I've done with your drink, and come to my cellar,' he commanded his companions on the dais. "'We have plans to lay.' He left them with no other word, flanked by two of his guards. His brothers followed in short order. Theon rose to go after them. "'Oh, my little brother is in a rush to be off,' Asher raised her drinking horn and beckoned for more ale. "'Our Lord Father is waiting.' "'and has for many a year. "'It will do him no harm to wait a little longer. "'But if you fear his wrath, scurry after him by all means. "'You ought to have no trouble catching our uncles,' she smiled. "'One is drunk on seawater, after all, "'and the other is a great grey bullock so dim he'd probably get lost.' "'Theon sat back down, annoyed. "'I run after no man.' "'No man.' but every woman. It was not me who grabbed your cock. I don't have one, remember? You grabbed every other bit of me quick enough. He could feel the flush creeping up his cheeks. I'm a man with a man's hungers. What sort of unnatural creature are you? Only a shy maid. Asher's hand darted out under the table to give his cock a squeeze. Theon nearly jumped from his chair. What? Don't you want me to steer you into port, brother? Marriage is not for you, Theon decided. 
When I rule, I believe I will pack you off to the Silent Sisters. He lurched to his feet and strode off unsteadily to find his father. Rain was falling by the time he reached the swaying bridge out to the sea tower. His stomach was crashing and churning like the waves below, and wine had unsteadied his feet. Theon gritted his teeth and gripped the rope tightly as he made his way across, pretending that it was Asher's neck he was clutching. The solar was as damp and draughty as ever. Buried under his sealskin robes, his father sat before the brazier with his brothers on either side of him. Victorian was talking of tides and winds when Theon entered, but Lord Balon waved him silent. "'I have made my plans. It is time you heard them.' "'I have some suggestions. When I require your counsel, I'll ask for it,' his father said. "'We have had a bird from Ulwick.' Dagmar is bringing the drums and stone houses. If the gods grant us good winds, we will sail when they arrive. Or you will. I mean for you to strike the first blow, Theon. You shall take eight long ships north. Eight? His face reddened. What can I hope to accomplish with only eight long ships? You are to harry the stony shore, raiding the fishing villages and sinking any ships you chance to meet. It may be that you will draw some of the northern lords out from behind their stone walls. Aaron will accompany you, and Dagmar Clefjaw. May the drawn god bless our swords, the priest said. Theon felt as if he'd been slapped. He was being sent to do reaver's work, burning fishermen out of their hovels and raping their ugly daughters. And yet it seemed Lord Balan did not trust him sufficiently to do even that much. Bad enough to have to suffer damp hair skulls and chidings. With Dagmar Clefjaw along as well, his command would be purely nominal. Asher, my daughter, Lord Balan went on, and Theon turned to see that his sister had slipped in silently. You shall take thirty longships of Pikmen round Sea Dragon Point. Land upon the tidal flats north of Deepwood Mutt. March quickly, and a castle may fall before they even know you're upon them. Asher smiled like a cat in cream. I've always wanted a castle, she said sweetly. Then take one. Theon had to bite his tongue. Deepwood Mutt was a stronghold of the Glovers, with both Robert and Galbart warring in the south. It would be lightly held, and once the castle fell, the Iron Men would have a secure base in the heart of the North. I should be the one sent to take Deepwood. He knew Deepwood Mott. He had visited the Glovers several times with Eddard Stark. Victorian, Lord Balon said to his brother, the main thrust shall fall to you. When my sons have struck their blows, Winterfell must respond. You should meet small opposition as you sail up Salt Spear and the Fever River. At the headwaters, you will be less than twenty miles from Moat Kaelin. The neck is the key to the kingdom. Already we command the western seas. Once we hold Moat Kaelin, the pup will not be able to win back to the north. And if he's fool enough to try, his enemies will seal the south end of the causeway behind him. And rub the boy will find himself caught like a rat in a bottle. Theon could keep silent no longer. 
a bold plan, father. But the lords in their castles... Lord Balon rode over him. The lords have gone south with a pup. Those who remain behind are the cravens, old men, and green boys. They will yield or fall one by one. Winterfell may defy us for a year, but what of it? The rest shall be ours, forest and field and hall, and we shall make the folk our thralls and sort wives. Aaron Dampere raised his arms. And the waters of wrath will rise high, and the drowned god will spread his dominion across the green lands. What is dead can never die, Victorian intoned. Lord Balan and Asher echoed his words, and Theon had no choice but to mumble along with them. And then it was done. Outside the rain was falling harder than ever. The rope bridge twisted and writhed under his feet. Theon Greyjoy stopped in the centre of the span and contemplated the rocks below. The sound of the waves was a crashing roar, and he could taste the salt spray on his lips. A sudden gust of wind made him lose his footing, and he stumbled to his knees. Asher helped him rise. "'You can't hold your wine either, brother.' Theon leaned on her shoulder and let her guide him across the rain-slick boards. "'I liked you better when you were Eskred,' he told her accusingly. She laughed. "'Well, that's fair. I liked you better when you were nine.' 